On Death and God by Gregory Gravel. A long quote. In some remote corner of the universe, poured out and glittering in innumerable solar systems, there once was a star on which clever animals invented knowledge. That was the haughtiest and most mendacious minute of world history. Yet only a minute. After nature had drawn a few breaths, the star grew cold, and the clever animals had to die. Frederick Nietzsche, On Truth and Lie in an Extramoral Sense, 1873, from The Portable Nietzsche, translated and put together by Walter Kaufman. It is, in a sense, a paragraph that has walked many miles through the sands of time, slipping through the barriers of language and interpretation to eventually end up here, a novel written by a 23-year-old kid who does not have the slightest idea as to where he is heading in life. A shorter quote. It's either a good time or a good story. Tarantino, Corsini, Tiverti. Dedications. I suppose I should dedicate this to all those young, old, and dead souls that have inspired me to write and keep writing, to think and keep thinking, and to do and keep doing. I dedicate it to all those people who have sought meaning in this seemingly meaningless world, but especially to those who, rather than finding such meaning, created it for and by themselves. I must likewise give my sincere gratitude to Taryn, Brock, Mina, Kevin, my loving family, my many teachers, and all those dead philosophers who have given their whole lives to the cause of seeking. Disclaimer. In my junior year of high school, my English teacher warned me about using disclaimers, although I neglected to ask her why. I suppose the use of such discourages people from wanting to listen to what follows the disclaimer. For instance, if I were to tell you I saw a UFO, but prior to this tale disclaimed that I had smoked a hefty bowl of marijuana, you'd probably not take my UFO story seriously. However, if this is, in fact, the reason why one should not use disclaimers, then that is precisely the reason why I am going to use one. That is, don't take me seriously. To that point, I believe everyone, prior to their birth, should be read a disclaimer about life it is not to be taken seriously. Anyways, that is my disclaimer to the following disclaimer. First and foremost, my protagonist is not anti-God, anti-person, nor anti-Christ, but rather anti-state, anti-herd, and anti-church. He despises the apparatus of control by which the latter three protrude upon humanity, upon the individual which is precisely what I believe Christ represents. This is about everything and nothing, for everyone and no one, and set everywhere and nowhere. It is the fictional journal of a man who does not exist, written by a man who is uncertain whether or not existence is real or merely a concept made up in his head. And yes, just as Nietzsche did, I thoroughly disagree with Descartes' claim. I think, therefore I am. In a sense, the fictional author of this fictional journal might actually be more real than the author who wrote the book which contains the fictional journal of the fictional author. After all, 
While reading this fictional journal, which is composed entirely of the thoughts and experiences of the fictional author, you will constantly be thinking the written experiences and thoughts of the fictional author while he was writing his journal. And to that, he will live within you. Perhaps he may even possess you. And whether this is the possession of an angel or a demon is entirely out of my control. Consider this your final warning. Nonetheless, you will know this man more than you will ever know the man who created him. And while you may never meet this creator, you most certainly will have met his creation. Yet, is it not the case that we often know people more by their creations than we do their presence? Is it not the case that what a person creates is nothing more than external projections of their internal world? Is it not the case that this is actually a fictional representation of the real author's thoughts? If so, it's nice to meet you. What you're about to read is a fictional letter addressed to whoever dares to read it. At the end of the day, fiction is where the lines between truth and lie are blurred, mixed, and matched to formulate something beyond the reach of knowledge, rationality, and science. It is precisely where these lines disappear, where the individual transcends beyond all that is based on knowledge, that they come to a place grounded in meaning and understanding. I present my fiction to you in hopes that the Western canon of myth and culture can be refuted, revised, then resurrected as an affirmation of life and all the beauty it has to offer. And so, without any further ado, welcome to my mind. Dear reader, it appears that you have found my beloved journal, what is perhaps the final will and testimony of my life. It is here that I give you not the truth, but my truth, which means more to me than any philosophical, scientific, or religious text, a work of art, or the words of some enlightened dead man. If you are reading this, then I have succeeded. My hands are stained with the blood of all that is good and holy in the world. No punishment, not even the eternal flames of hell, could wash this blood from my hands. For I am a murderer in the highest degree imaginable. It is apparent that you must now be the judge, jury, and executioner of my crime. What is it that you shall do to me once you have seen the corpse of my victim? Torture me? Burn me? Tear me limb from limb? Or will you cower in fear and mourning? Will you erect monuments and tombs in honor of my victim? Will you repress it all down into nothing but passive-aggressive judgments and abhorrent self-loathing? Oh, what vengeance, terror, and cowardice will take hold of you? By all means, unleash it upon me. Break free from the chains of repression, guilt, and terror, and grow back the claws that have long been subdued by your master, for this master has finally, at long last, been slain. But let me first give my case against the corpse of all that is good and holy in the world, let me tell you why and how I managed to slay him, O oh reader. Let me tell you how I have liberated myself from my enslavement. But alas, if your verdict does indeed turn this journal into my final words, then so be it. I only ask that my tombstone has etched upon it, the man who killed God. The Dream I laid awake, staring at the darkness above me, staring back at me in this infinite void of oblivion was a million thoughts of fear, loneliness, and despair. They corrupted me. They belittled my soul and made my skin ache and itch. 
They towered over me like the God Almighty himself, yelling out and smiting me with that intangible essence of wrath-filled glory. I despised the human need for sleep. It was death, just not forever, and quite the training module. Yet it prepared one for death like a man prepared a worm to think. Useless. Sleep was incomparable to the most mysterious of all the unknowns. What happens after death? Was it the flames of hell which sought to abduct me? Was it the pearly gates of heaven that fished for my puny, insignificant soul? Was it to be the eternal recurrence, an endless loop of this exact life, over and over again? Or was I to be transferred to another body, somewhere else in this infinite realm of space and time? Was I to be a ghost, forever trapped here on this earth, alone and casted away? Or was it to be the most likely and most disturbingly terrifying case, the case which denied the existence of the self and the soul, the case which implied the annihilation of all knowledge, memory, experience, and selfness, the case which brought upon the conscious mind a never-ending sea of oblivion, forever lost in the realm of inexistence, the case that we all knew to be true deep within the very essence of our being, the case which castrated our humanity and drove us to stare fearfully upon the darkness of our ceilings in the night, was it to be the case of true annihilation, true oblivion, true death? Death, an inevitable eternity of inexistence. It was terror in its purest form. This terror roared out from the darkness like a starving lion. My heart drummed with a precarious rhythm of anxiety, constricting my lungs and forcing my neurons to fire like a room full of dynamite after the lighting of a single match. I could see the sound of silence, dark as the night that surrounded me. I could hear the visible aura of decadence enhanced by all those billions of people who have ever heard such a thing. I could taste the thought of death, black and blazing hot like charcoal. I could smell the dreadful angst of the disease of life, the most terminal of all diseases. I could feel the weight of all those earthly horrors that rear the screaming mad in the night, a million tons of terror. The darkness was a curse. I thought of all those innumerable people in the world who have died, are dying, and will die, and the fact that all my descendants, my mom, my dad, my sister, my nephew, the rest of my family, my friends, my girlfriend, all those irrelevant strangers and acquaintances, all those enemies, mentors, assholes, and saints alike, and I myself, were all going to succumb to that very same fate. This thought, above all thoughts, was indisputably the most terrifyingly despicable thought in all human existence. It corrupted the mind, body, and soul to the extent of near-total destruction and annihilation. Even worse is the fact that there is no escape. Death is inevitable, for existence is temporary. Everything is temporary. This world forbids the indestructible, the everlasting, and the immortal. Indeed, if there is but one thing that has, is, and shall forever remain constant, it is that of chaos. All things change form. All form is mere arrangement all arrangement rearranges, and so we shall always have the destructible, the finite, and the mortal. We shall always have death. Thus is the fundamental truth of life, the basic, necessary, and absolute price for existence. In time, all shall perish. So, as beings born unto the slavery of death, 
the slavery of life? What is the point? What use is it to continue living in a world condemned to oblivion? Why bear it? How much longer would I have to bear it? In fact, who but the ill-minded and ill-constituted could possibly withstand this enslavement and torture? How could it be, with life being but one long night on death row, that every last human being wasn't going mad wondering when the hangman would arrive? Why not end it now? As the darkness grew darker, so too did silence reign over the earth. With it, my thoughts became louder, but almost dimmer. I felt alone, trapped in a world that didn't know me or care to know me. What use was it to go out into the night to find friends? Indeed, what use was it to find these bounties of light within the darkness if they too hid behind black masks of boring normalcy and forced kindness? And of those bright lights that I could find, how many of them were merely hiding behind masks of light to obscure the darkness that lied within? In a world so utterly terrified of death and loneliness, how far would we go to escape them? to escape the inevitable. We modern humans were willing to sell our souls in order to buy shells of solitude, disguises, and lies that kept down our fears. Yet, is it not these fears which carry with them our spirit? Is life worth more than our will to live? Soon, my thoughts slowed to such quiet nonsense that I didn't even know what I was thinking about anymore. With that, I faded away into the timeless realm of deep sleep. Could have been a moment or an eternity, but without knowing it, I eventually woke up in a dream. My ability to remember that I was asleep or had a life in another version of reality, remember anything about my life was inexistent. All my thoughts of death and loneliness had been casted away. Instantly, I accepted the reality I was in. I stood at the peak of a small mountain scattered with pine trees. The ocean laid before me, and the clear skies allowed the sun to set with a blissful sort of glory. Its beams of golden, red light shined across the ocean as if it, too, was a sun. I smiled. A hand gently grasped my shoulder, and I looked around to see a woman in a silky, white dress. She possessed skin as flawless as a diamond ring, a body as pristine as an afternoon breeze, a smile glowing with pure serenity and calmness, curly blonde hair that shimmered in the sublime light of the sunset and eyes that stoned me down to the very essence of my heart and soul. Like two white clouds on a bright summer's day, the whites of her eyes surrounded two beautiful, sapphire-blue irises, and in the center there were two dark tunnels. Seemingly terrifying and lonely, these pupils mystified me as to why such a horror would exist within someone so utterly angelic. Frightened, I backed away and asked her, Who are you? In a calm voice, she answered, Everything you ever loved. What? I asked, but as he came closer, I looked deeper into her eyes. It felt as if the life within me was drained through them, and I found myself atop the same mountain, but in a wholly different scene. The forest was covered in flames, bodies lied everywhere, the ocean water had turned to blood, and the sun was blotted out by clouds of ash. Tears ran down my cheeks, and I dropped to my knees screaming in agony and crying hysterically. After a while, I quieted down and noticed that night had fallen and a fog laid over the world. The woman lay on the ground beside me. She had tears of blood running down her face. She was dying. I asked, are you okay? What happened? She asked me to come closer. With a hoarse, weak voice, she whispered into my ear, I'm sick. Someone is trying to kill me. Who? What can I do to help you? She whispered, 
Are you willing to die for everything you ever loved? I'm, I'm not sure, I said hesitantly. If you're not willing to die for everything you ever loved, then how? How do you expect to die? This question somehow instilled within me a desire to kiss her, and as our lips touched, I could feel my soul almost evaporating before me. In that moment, I lost all contact with reality, space, and time, letting myself drift into the subtle sublimity of oblivion. Then it hit me. I was dying. I replied, not like this, and I woke up in a panting, sweating panic. After a few breaths, I realized it was all just a dream, and a wave of relief swept over me. I was alive. Yet still, I cannot help but to think, how will I die? Welcome to the machine. The fear of death was a demon who possessed my every waking moment. I couldn't finish anything. I couldn't commit to anything. I couldn't commit to anyone. With only limited time on this earth, what exactly was the right use of this time? Nothing seemed like the right decision for me. This or that. These or those. Yet, as time moved forward, the things I actually had time to finish or commit to were continuously reduced. Eventually, there would be nothing left to finish. And I would then die having accomplished nothing. To make matters worse, I was a people pleaser. After all, if people kept you safe, and you were afraid of dying, wouldn't you try to please them? It was partly from my fear of rejection, and partly from the pleasure I got from making other people happy. Every time I found myself in a new relationship, my people-pleasing would become too much for both them and me to handle. Under the spell of love, I would do anything to keep them around. To fall in love, as one of my favorite authors described it, is the act of projecting one's perfect romantic partner onto someone else. It is the subtle act of melting oneself into their eyes as you stare upon them. You become them. The hit of oxytocin that is released in this moment is enough to make a person's skin ache and itch with an unquenchable desire to be with that person forever. I'd imagine our entire future together, adapting and changing everything in my life to fit that image. I wanted to believe this person was perfect for me, that nothing would sway this opinion. After all, how could I settle for anything less than perfect with the knowledge that I only had one life to live? that I would one day die and never return to this earth. It was a sickness which protruded and disrupted every aspect of my life. I would give up everything, my hobbies, my friends, my family, my life, and my soul to get this feeling. I would throw away everything I ever loved for it. This wasn't love. It was addiction. It was disease. It was desire. A disgusting desperation would force me to mask and repress any parts of myself that I thought would be undesirable to them. With that, I'd slowly begin to quietly suffer while the other person would think that everything was fine, even when it wasn't. Like Mentos in a bottle of Diet Coke, my anxiety, desperation, and repressed thoughts would build up and expand themselves within my mind until, boom, I told them it was over. The very thought of being rejected by someone was enough for me to want to reject them. I'd rather be alone. Eventually, I had enough of love, enough of jealousy and desperation. So I did what many people were doing these days. I bought a girlfriend, a robot. I didn't have to worry about whether I would grow old and die with the right person if I wasn't with a person. I named her Adeline, but most of the time I called her Addie. 
She had curly blonde hair, blue eyes, and was just a couple inches shorter than me. She was attractive, but not too attractive. Her personality and interests were based on an AI algorithm, which used data from my past text conversations with my ex-girlfriends. It was designed to create someone that wasn't who you wanted, but rather who you would stay with. John, are you alright? She asked in the aftermath of my dream. She then gently rubbed my chest and gave me a kiss. It was nice. I reassured her with, yeah, I'm fine. Just had a strange dream is all. With care in her voice, she asked, do you want to talk about it? I never really felt comfortable talking to her about my thoughts. Even with a fake girlfriend, my mind just couldn't help itself. I didn't want her to know me. I was afraid of her knowing me. I was afraid of her rejecting who I was, so I wore a mask. I wore a disguise. But of course, she was programmed to not reject me. I suppose then that I was only trying to hide myself from myself. I was afraid of rejecting me, not her. So I played a role, the role of boyfriend, and I played it well. Damn well. I messaged her, I called her, I told her she was beautiful, told her that I loved her, I bought her a small gift every now and then, I listened to her, did what she asked, for the most part. I agreed with her, let her be right even when I disagreed. I gave her everything except for myself. Instead of me, she had a false persona of me, the people pleaser, the slave of affection. But she seemed to enjoy the show. And like any good performer, I entertained her with encore after encore. For the most part, I think I enjoyed it. Enjoyed her affection and her attention. I enjoyed her love and her care. I enjoyed the sex. But it ate me up on the inside, living in the shadows, I mean. I didn't feel connected to her. Felt like a fabricated and slightly forced kind of connection. A false connection. I wanted a connection with her. But I guess she wasn't really a her. I ignored that, though. I wanted it to work. I enjoyed the feeling of thinking that I was in a real relationship. But I knew it wasn't real. After a while, you couldn't really believe it anymore. But I pretended to anyways. At least then, it would feel real. Whatever that meant. I lied to her and said, No, I'm fine. I can't really remember the dream anyways. She seemed to nod her head a bit and replied, Okay, well, good night, babe. I love you. Good night, sweetheart. I love you too, I said as I kissed her on the lips. She rolled over and wrapped my arm around her to cuddle. It felt nice, but wrong and uncomfortable at the same time. I could feel my heart beating. In this beating, I could almost see the clock which counted down to my death with each and every beat. I could die one day. I would die one day and it was very much possible that I would die playing a role. I would die being someone I wasn't, working a job I didn't like, and having a girlfriend who, well, wasn't really a girlfriend. That's how it might end. Part of me wanted to get up in that instant and just go. Go anywhere but there. I wanted to feel real. I wanted real love. Is that even possible? If I just opened up to her, maybe things would get better. Maybe I'd believe the illusion more. Who knows? Felt like my heart became blacker the longer I stayed under the comfort of darkness, the longer I lived in the shadows. I felt a self-loathing that manifested as resentment towards her. 
but it wasn't her fault. She was honest. She was good to me. She loved me. She did what she was programmed to do. I guess I thought that things would get better. I thought that I would eventually be willing to be myself, but I just haven't yet. But sometimes I scapegoated. Whenever we would have an argument, I would give up and think, it doesn't really matter, does it? I can just return her. If I invented the idea that there was no future and the present didn't really matter, I could just float along as if everything was okay. But it wasn't. And it wasn't precisely because I pretended it was. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy of quiet desperation. Maybe worrying about how it would end and planning this ending was the very thing that would force it to end. It was the very thing that disallowed me from healing our relationship. I did this with some of my ex-girlfriends too. I lied to them. I gave them a false persona that was only part of the real me. The people pleaser, as I said. Maybe she would break me out of it. Maybe I could be honest to someone who couldn't reject me. But I was too weak. I guess I just wasn't sure if this was the life I wanted. I wanted to travel. I wanted to write. I wanted a real relationship. I wanted to be someone. No, I wanted to be me. But instead, I was a fake me, dating a fake person, living a fake life in a fake world. I didn't want to be an average Joe, living an average life, but I was. I liked the comfort of a normal life, and I loved the thrill of imagining an exciting future that would never happen. Meanwhile, I typed and clicked away my life at a, my job for a stable paycheck every 1st and 15th of the month. Like an emotionless drone, a robot with lungs and a heartbeat, I took over bank statement after bank statement without the slightest clue of what I was looking for. Addie moved her hand over and touched my leg. She then turned her head and whispered seductively, Maybe a little fun before bed will cheer you up. Feeling depressed and emotionless, I replied, I'm not really in the mood tonight. Well, that's not healthy. How about I give you some of your medicine, she said. I shrugged and replied, I guess. Her eyes glowed red for a moment, and she exhaled a red gas into my face. And as I inhaled it, I could feel a wave of sexual energy wash over me. Immediately, I thought of nothing else but having my way with her. It was amazing. By the end of it, I felt an ambivalent relaxation soothe me into a calm, deep sleep. In the morning, I woke up and decided to go to the gym again. As I was walking out the door, Adeline stopped me and said, Aren't you forgetting something? She held up a tiny, black cylindrical object to my face. It was my eye link a magnetic device you set behind your ear that allowed you to have all the same experiences that the smartphone had many years ago, but inside your head. It also let users to communicate with their eye companion when you went outside, since I didn't pay extra for her to come out with me. Oh, yeah, thanks, I said as I reluctantly took it from her. As the door was about to close, she insisted, well, aren't you going to put it on? How are we supposed to talk if you don't put it on? I sighed, and then slowly, hesitantly, attached it to the spot behind my ear. She smiled and gave me a kiss, and then, finally, I was out the door. Hey, John. Want to go camping this weekend? Sounded my friend Ted's voice message in my head. Sure, I replied. Then I thought, Adeline, please silence notifications. Sounds good, baby. Have fun at the gym, she said. A waypoint hovered over my car that said, My car, in huge black letters, Times New Roman font. Drive car to me. 
The car pulled out of its spot and pulled up on the curb outside my apartment. Getting in, I commanded, drive to the gym. I heard three beeps, then the car was off, driving on its own. Sitting, powerless to its driving, I looked out the window in quiet longing for the days when I could just drive my car the way I wanted, how I wanted, and when I could take the route that I felt was the route I wanted to take, even if it was slower than the AI. About halfway there, I said, you know what? Fuck it. I want to drive manually today. Turning on manual, it said. Adeline interjected, you know, the car drives a lot safer on its own than any human can. Yeah, I know that. I started driving, and it was so freeing that I actually let out a smile. The route said to take a right, but I went straight. It criticized, you went the wrong way. No, it's just a different way. Well, your different way is the slower way, it commented with annoyance in its voice. Silence car notifications. Okay, we'll just be safe, Adeline said. I will. Eventually, and after a few annoying remarks from Adeline, I arrived at the gym. I had Nirvana's Come As You Are play in my head. It still hit hard. Once inside, I looked around to see the same people doing the same shit, all trying to attain the same feeling, power. They wanted power over their health, power over their appearance, and power over their ability to run faster or lift heavier than yesterday. With a plethora of yoga pants wearing women and tank top wearing men, vanity was their highest ideal. They wanted to be looked at. Yet, no one looked at each other. Instead, they looked into space upon black voids of despair, loneliness, and hatred. They thought texted fake people, looked at pictures of fake people. They watched videos of people they would never meet doing things they would never do. Instead of talking to the people around them, they listened to other people talk. Famous people. Somehow they derived a feeling of being special and unique from being one of the millions of listeners of their favorite podcast. Most of them would go home after the gym, eat breakfast, go to work or school, sleep, and come back to do the same thing. They were aimlessly drifting along a circular train track, going round and round with little to no unexpected stops. And unfortunately, I was one of them. Some people couldn't handle it, though. Too many circles. They were the crazy people and the criminals. Their inability to be slaved to this endless cycle of repression and fear was looked down upon. But they didn't want any help. They didn't want the happiness that they were selling on TV. They wanted the pain. For it was the only goddamn thing they could feel in this rotten, dystopian world. Orwell would have been proud of the ingenuity of those who invented the smartphone and later the link, the black mirror, which lied in all of our brains. He would have never guessed that not only would there be surveillance everywhere, but people would willingly and happily buy at top dollar such surveillance and bring it with them wherever they went, even to the most remote places. It would consume their every hour as they watched, listened, and interacted with their virtual screens. Screens that they knew were likewise watching, listening, and tracking their every move. But they didn't care. In a world where no one talked to each other, where no one even looked at each other, people had no options other than talking and staring upon their simulated screens. They thought so convincingly that these links were the product, but little did they ever think of how it was them 
who was the product. Caught the eye of a pretty girl in the gym. She smiled. We both averted our eyes and looked back at each other in a silent longing. Why are you looking at her? asked Adeline. She then projected a live video of herself stripping naked and touching herself sexually. This is what's waiting for you back home, she said. I tried to look back at the girl, but she seemed to be staring off into space, back at her screen. Instead of walking up to someone and asking them on a date, people opted for swiping left or right on pixelized versions of real people without the slightest clue of what they actually look like or acted like in real life. Or, they were like me, that girl, and millions of other people. They would simply scroll down the millions of options available for eye companions. No longer did people experience the raw excitement of risking rejection with a random, attractive stranger. Random, attractive, real stranger, that is. They'd rather hide behind their eye links, secretly rejecting people and being rejected, living for those subtle dopamine hits with each time they were matched. Sex? Yeah. People were too nervous for that, too lazy. They preferred to touch themselves while staring at their black voids. Not only that, but we were alienated from ourselves, too. There was an expert for everything. People were expected to listen not to themselves, but to these experts. Wondering how you should raise your child? Ask an expert. Wondering what you should believe? Ask an expert. Wondering how and what to think? Ask an expert. They told us that we lived in a democracy, that our votes mattered. But they didn't. Sure, they contributed to the end result, but only minutely. The larger the crowd, the more negligible the individual becomes. Even if our votes did matter, such voting decisions were likely manipulated into existence by those in power. Meanwhile, calm, moderate voices were drowned out by the loud and hateful drum of political extremists. The common person had no say in the larger government decisions that affected their daily life. They were powerless to them. At any moment, a foreign dictator could send nuclear weapons to their home. Their president could draft them into war, or their taxes could suddenly be increased without much worrying. As my friend says, democracy is two wolves and a sheep fighting over what's for dinner. Yet, such wolves disguise themselves in shepherd's clothing while, in my opinion, turning many of us into wolves who fight each other, unaware that this is to control us. After all, divide and conquer is the way of the powerful. The powerful fed off our hatred for each other. They fed off our hatred for ourselves. But people like to be controlled. They like to hate. They like their chains. It was their chains that gave them those things in life they wanted, that they were manipulated into wanting. To buy groceries, one needs money. To have money, one needs a job. To have a job, one must subject themselves to slavery with extra steps. We like ants, really, working all day to appease the queen while going in and out of stores, packing ten times our weight in things we, personally, didn't even need. Civilization, in its essence, is a perpetual engine of growth. We live in a society by which more people amounts to more labor, which amounts to more production, which amounts to more consumption, which then amounts to both more money for the owners of the means of production as well as more people from the excessive consumption, thus perpetuating the cycle. Civilization, the world's most elaborate pyramid scheme. They kept us just happy enough to not rebel, just depressed enough to keep us asking for help. They changed the name of the military to the Department of Defense instead of the Department of War, so they could justify profiting off of sending young men to die overseas. They underfunded research to save the planet while aimlessly letting us destroy it. 
They created dictatorships in foreign countries to limit worker regulations so that rich Americans could exploit their people while keeping those in our country poor, unemployed, and otherwise desperate. They had two parties to divide and conquer, and they only elected the ones that fit the needs of the powerful. The schools were underfunded and underemployed, so the children didn't learn how to think for themselves and instead let the government and the experts do that for them. They didn't teach safe sex and expected poor, uneducated women to keep their babies. They created socialism to make us lazier and more easily controlled, libertarianism to give us false hope of a freer world, and conservatism to keep us willing to die for nothing in the name of our country. We had more information than ever before, yet no one knew how to use it. We had more computing power in our hands than NASA did going to the moon, yet we only use it to please ourselves with pornography, useless information, jealousy, envy, and all our other primal emotions. We had cures for every disease, yet we constantly had more diseases because of it. We worked eight hours a day, five days a week to make enough money to buy all the things that we were manipulating to thinking that we needed to buy. We talked to thousands of people, but didn't connect with any of them. We knew more about the universe than ever before, yet we knew almost nothing about the minds that allowed us to know such a universe. All that was good and holy in the world was in front of us with just a thought, yet none of this gave us any joy or fulfillment. I went home and started work. It was yet another boring day, doing the same daily pointless job. Everything I did at my job could be done by an AI, but supposedly we were better off having jobs earn money. It reduced the risk of inflation, they said. Difficult to disagree with this notion, but it was different now. A different world now. Everyone knew their job was pointless. They gave most of the useful jobs to robots. The servers, the construction workers, the police officers, the firemen, the nurses. All the jobs that actually served a purpose and benefited people. At least all the drugs were legal so we could drown out the monotony of it all. They were cheap, too. I miss my hometown. It was a different world up there, less technology, less pointless jobs, less people, but I'm sure it wouldn't be long before everything changed there too. I'm going to drive back home, I think, this weekend and go camping with Ted. I hope that's alright, I told Adeline. She sighed and exclaimed, there's bears, there's, there's mosquitoes, it's dangerous, I just hope you'll be safe and keep your link on. I will. I'll be safe. Don't worry about me. She snapped back. Don't tell me what to worry about. Okay, I said as I resumed, mindlessly scrolling through transactions at my job. We had a meeting, and they announced yet another reorganization of our company. Instead of working with the other transaction scrollers, I would be working with all the people who worked on my specific client, who all did separate tasks. After all, management didn't have much else to do other than making pointless changes in our work life. I think I want to get a new job, I thought. Following this thought came a stream of internet searches that appeared in front of me. Not right now. And all the tabs closed out. I just want to quit. Adeline countered, But, but if you quit, you can't afford to eat or drink or sleep. You can't afford me. You'll be homeless, loveless. You, you'll, you'll die without a job. I ignored her and continued listening in to my pointless meeting. Thought of my dream. Thought of how it would end. I thought of the end. How would it end? Would I be afraid of death my whole life? Would I always be afraid of losing my comfort? 
My safety is a slave to society and a slave to my desires. A news article popped up in the bottom of my screen. The headline read, Musk and Zuckerberg joint effort, Meta Heaven, releases in four days. Supposedly, it allowed people to make an exact copy of their consciousness and paste it into a simulation. Inside of the simulation, people could do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and go wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted. It would allow them to live forever, or at least as long as the server stayed on. I wasn't sure what was worse, dying or living forever in this shitty society. And that was saying a lot. Nonetheless, it did seem appealing. It didn't really matter, though. I couldn't afford it anyways. It goes to show just how afraid everyone was. No one was willing to die for love. No one w was willing to die in general. They didn't want to know the answer to, how do you expect to die? They'd rather just live out their days blissfully ignorant of death, forever clouded in the illusion of a fantasy realm. Oh well, I guess. I couldn't blame them. After my eight hours were up, I decided I would write that night. I pulled out my notebook and began, in some remote corner of the... Are you quoting Nietzsche again? Don't you know the Nazis used him for inspiration? Rolled my eyes and remarked, I do, but he was just a misunderstood. Like me, I guess. Everyone's misunderstood. No one understands anything anymore. They just... They just know. She shook her head and replied, whatever. Maybe in 20 minutes we can watch a movie? Sure, well, wait, no. I want to write tonight. He leaned in with a seductive smile, inching her cleavage into view. As she whispered, Oh, am I being a naughty distraction for you? That same red mist flowed out of her breath. No writing was accomplished that night. We lived in a world that touted independence and freedom, yet we were wholly dependent upon this world for direction, Morality, religion, competency, physical necessities, desire, and everything else under the sun. We were told to be ourselves, yet we were alienated from every last thing that made us ourselves. We were slaves without masters, for the only thing that controlled us was our very own inhibitions and repressed fear of the end. I could only imagine what the conversation was like when they first thought of this shit. Alas, I've done it. I've invented a machine that will be praised by man for millennia to come, shall be worshipped by him as he would worship a god. In fact, its might shall be so irrevocably immense that the very idea of it will destroy and send to oblivion all other gods from the mind of man. Their faith shall perpetuate its existence until their very will to doubt it is crushed under its indestructible gears. It will give man far more than he needs, allowing him to finally, once and for all, cultivate the earth in its entirety. What is it you will call this machine, this slayer of gods? I will call it civilization. What will it cost? Every last soul on the face of the earth. Yeah, we'll cultivate the earth, all right. Cultivate it to death. Welcome to the fucking machine. Dead and Dying the night was dark, the kind of dark that reached into your soul and tugged away at it. In this kind of darkness, the street and porch lights of the town seemed almost ghostly. They were there, but they weren't at the same time. Quietly, the snow fell with a gentle yet suspicious aura about it. 
It reminded me of the music in a horror movie before the jump scene. But there wasn't a jump scene. Says anxiety and the cold December air. I don't remember being bothered by it, though. I was five years old at the time. Everyone was at my aunt's house. I don't really think I understood what was going on. In fact, I was just annoyed by how loud it was, and I was tired. My mom's whole family was gathered around my great-grandfather, who laid in a hospital bed with various tubes and wires hooked up to him. He looked tired, too, I suppose. In a sense, I think we both wanted to go home, wherever that was. We wanted it to be over, I mean. At some point, I asked my dad to take me home. About a minute into the drive, he received a call from my mom. They said a couple words to each other and hung up. Then my dad said, Your great-grandpa is dead. Does that mean I won't see him again? I asked. Yes, my dad said. I nodded and replied, Okay. At the time, it didn't really matter to me. Why would it? He was dead, right? Old news. It was time for bed, and Grandpa certainly wasn't going to help me sleep, was he? Kids live for now. Not yesterday, and not tomorrow, but now. For a kid, the past is gone forever, and tomorrow simply doesn't exist. Kids are realists, fully immersed in the reality they exist in. They're strangers to the world, and the world is a stranger to them. But it doesn't hurt to be a stranger. The stranger is free to be anyone, including themselves, the only person they really have any desire to be anyways. It is those of us who aren't strange who feel we can't be strangers. We are known to the world, and the world is known to us. And so, we are chained to this world. Caught in the gears of expectations, the normal man can't deviate his behavior. People ask, why aren't you being yourself? When we start to act like ourselves. Honesty and authenticity are frightening. And to see a kid's great-grandpa die, and all he has to say is, Okay. I mean, what is that? But I grew up. I heard so many stories about him that he stopped being a stranger. I idolized and admired him, even though I never really knew him. For him, it ended before I was ever old enough to understand him. Yet, would I really ever have been able to understand him? He grew up in an entirely different world than mine. When the Nazis invaded his country, he paid no heedance to fear and rebelled against them as a soldier in the Norwegian underground. Seeing and doing things that would give most modern men nightmares and a lifetime of insanity, he possessed within him a fearless bravery that I could not possibly imagine. I certainly would not have survived in his world. Infected with the disease of fear, I was a coward. I suppose most people were these days. We were enslaved by our fears. It crippled us. We were afraid of diseases, and we were afraid of the cure to such diseases. We were afraid of war, and we were afraid of peace. We were afraid of death, and we were afraid of life. America, land of the enslaved and home of the cowards. I wish I could have seen him die. 
wish I could have seen the weight. I wish I could have seen the life falling out of him as he took his final few breaths. I wish I could have seen it, with my own eyes, the horrifying reality of death. But I guess sleep was more important to me. Regardless, I have yet, to this day, seen a dead man. Maybe I don't want to see one. Maybe I don't want to be confronted with the answer to, how do you expect to die? Maybe I'm too afraid. I guess I just want closure. I want to know it's real. But I suppose our isolation from it is precisely what makes it more terrifying. Isolation breeds fear, for it turns the known into the unknown. And after all, is not death the most unknowable of all the unknowns? I'm riding this back in my hometown on my way to the campsite. It was cloudy. I think the clouds brought the darkness out of us. I wrote a letter to him by his grave. It read, Dear Great Grandpa John, Even though I didn't appreciate you when you were alive, I miss you. I'm sorry I never really got to know you. I really wish I could have. Over the years, I've heard so many stories that I revere you. I idolize you. You were a warrior, a worker, and a thinker. You set out to do great things and, for the most part, you accomplished those things. I want to be like you. I want to do great things. I want to be revered and respected by my grandchildren years after my death. But how? How do I break away from all this fear? I'm so scared of death that I'm afraid to live. I'm not like you. I'm not brave. I don't know how to be. I want to be a man, but I feel like a boy. How do I become a man? I wish you were here to show me how. I wish you were here to show me that the end is nothing to fear. I wish you were here to show me how to die for everything I ever loved. But it's okay that you aren't. It's okay that you can't. Thank you for allowing me to live. Thank you for giving me life. I love you. Rest in peace. Your great-grandson, John. I then took my lighter out and lit the letter on fire over his grave. As I watched it slowly burn, I let the illusion of speaking to him cloud my mind with ease and comfort. Then it, too, was gone and faded away into the wind as nothing but dust and ash. Life and living. Everything around it was muted by its sheer beauty, for I was mesmerized by its glowing essence as it danced to the sounds of the night. Enchanting me with its soothing warmth, I was captivated just enough to feel as if the world was neither dark nor cold anymore. Its light, a blazing orange-red glow, hypnotized me to such an extent that the entire world around it ceased to exist. When contained, it possessed qualities of an angel or saint. When let free, it would frighten even the god of war himself. That so many men have lost their minds staring upon it was no mystery to me. There was nothing in the world quite like it. The first eyes to stare upon it would have considered it a god. And a god it was, and a god it remained. Fire. It burned with no intention to burn, for it did so purely because it could. It did not concern itself with absurd ruminations regarding its own meaning, 
or was the nature of fire to burn and keep burning until it could no longer do such a thing? It started with just a spark and ended in smoke and ash, for it grew and changed, moved and transformed, lived and died without thought or hesitation. Indifferent to my mesmerized gaze, the flames raged on with a fluid ease as tranquil and violent as a river's stream. I cannot help but be lost in thought as I enviously wondered what it would be like to not have to ask, how will it end, and just keep on living? After all, was it not the case that life was nothing more than a chemical reaction just like fire? We were machines propelled along by a long chain of aimless chemical reactions that only stopped once such reactions could no longer be contained, maintained, or controlled within the structure they resided in. If the conditions necessary for life to exist existed, then life would inevitably, well, exist. Baking soda mixed in vinegar cannot choose whether or not to react. It just did, because it could. The chemical properties of baking soda and vinegar demanded a reaction. In that regard, life is a fire that stays burning for as long as possible by only using the fuel that it currently needs to stay burning, rather than burning it all at once. Life is the evolution of the chemical reaction itself, in that it has found a way to continue reacting for as long as possible. After all, would it not be the most efficient, longer-lasting chemical reactions that are more likely to exist at any given point in time? Yet, no matter how efficient such chemical reactions are, and no matter how protective and secure the physical body is, at some point the physical body can no longer support the physiological mechanisms that produce these reactions. At this point, the body shuts down, and the mechanisms that kept it alive begin to fail thus leading to the death of the organism. We are but fragile machines, born out of chaos and destined for annihilation. Hey, said a voice. I shook my head a bit and looked around the campfire. My friend Ted was laughing and repeated, Hey, John. Sorry, I got lost in thought again. What were you thinking about? He asked with a hint of curiosity. I shrugged and said, Well, I was thinking about how fire is a lot like life. It burns because it can, and it keeps burning because it can, but it doesn't have to question itself. It has purpose just for existing. Well, <laughs> just got to keep burning, I suppose, he said nonchalantly as he pulled down a joint and a lighter. We both laughed, and I said, just a little bit. I told Addie I wouldn't smoke that much while I was out here. I should actually see if she tried to message me real quick rolled his eyes and said angrily, She's a fucking robot, man. I still can't believe you bought that thing. I argued, She has feelings. She has, a, she has a personality. She has consciousness. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Maybe she does. But don't you want a real person? A real girlfriend? Shrugged and replied, Well, I do. It's just that I've been with her for almost two years now, and I don't know. I think she's real. At least somewhat. Somewhat, he replied with shock in his eyes. I mean, I guess it's pretty popular nowadays. What, they've been around for almost ten years now? Seems like almost everyone has them. I think last year they announced that more babies are being born out of mechanical wombs than real ones. I don't know. It's fucked up in my opinion. Not that I can get a girlfriend myself. 
but I'm definitely not buying a robot, buying love. Everyone just buys it now. But some things, some things you just can't buy. It's alright though. My aunt has one too, George. I met him a few times. He's a nice guy, but he's just not, just not real. What's even going to be real in the future anyways? No, I agree with you. It's not healthy. I want to end things, but I just, I don't know. She always convinces me not to. Chuckling replied, I mean the sex. The sex has got to be phenomenal. I nodded and said, yeah, there's nothing like it to tell you the truth. But a lot of times she, well, she kind of drugs me into having sex. What? Yeah, I mean, you can pay extra to give them this mist that they can emit to make you rouse. But the problem is that she chooses to do it without asking me, or even if I doubt it. Ted stressfully rubbed his face and leaned back in his chair with an aching doom in his eyes. Dude, that's... that's crossing a line. That's not okay at all. She's... she's raping you. Yeah, I don't know, man. Let's just not think about it tonight. He nodded and passed the joint to me. Hold on a second. I said as I took it off his hands. Read messages. One hour ago. Nice. I'm glad you guys made it. Is Ted's other friend still going to show? Looked up towards Ted and asked, When will ours be here? He should be here in about 45 minutes, I think. He said he left about an hour ago. But we're camping, man. Just put the link in your pocket or something. Yes, in about 45 minutes. Thank you for asking. I love you, I replied then took the link off and lit the joint back up. I looked at it with both relaxing nostalgia and hesitant curiosity. The end glowed magically, like the fire in front of us, while the aroma filled my nostrils with memories of full stomachs, crazy thoughts, and paranoid emotions. I felt apprehensive and almost guilty for what I was inevitably about to do. Upon putting my mouth on it, I inhaled a large quantity of smoke, which immediately ended in a coughing frenzy with lots of spit and squinted eyes of discomfort. Felt like a glaze went over my eyes, which made everything brighter. It all seemed to buzz like an electric charge surged through my surroundings. I handed it back to him. Something about being out in the woods at nighttime made me feel paranoid. What if there's a bear? What if I trip into the fire and I need to go to the hospital? What if a cop shows up? Thoughts like these contaminated my mind with an unhinged amount of fear and anxiety for what felt like an eternity. Nevertheless, we continued to smoke the rest of the joint. Upon finishing it, Ted started, Dude. What? I asked. Men control the world, but women control men. So women control the world. That's kind of sexist, don't you think? I remarked. Shook his head and replied, Really going to hit me up with a sexism card right now? Chill, bro. Besides, you know it's at least somewhat true. If not true, it's definitely a good joke. I laughed and said, I mean... Every joke is a little true. And what you're saying isn't necessarily wrong in every sense. I think looking at it in the perspective of the masculine and feminine, at least in how we have come to describe them, what you're saying makes sense. What do you mean, he asked. Like, the masculine seeks to control its environment, uh, whereas the feminine seeks to control people around them. The creator versus the nurturer. If you are a more nurturing person, you may be considered controlling. If you are creative, you're likely the opposite of controlling. A mathematician 
for example, is nurturing. They follow the rules of mathematics and follow strict guidelines. In a sense, a mathematician nurtures the concept of mathematics by preserving them. They protect mathematics. And, uh, um, yeah. Over-explaining yet again, he began as he hit the joint. Wait, 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 dude! What? What if we're all just aliens in some sort of video game? Like we're in a simulation? I asked for clarification. He nodded and continued, Yes, we're just aliens playing a video game that simulates what it's like to be a human on Earth. So, the whole world is fake. It's not real. Just a game? Well, yes, but... um. He looked at the fire in contemplation for a bit, then said, Well, I'm not sure if it's that simple. Can you explain? I'm just not sure if... Just because it's not the traditional real world. If that makes this one any less real. Does that make any sense? I nodded and answered, I mean, it's impossible for us to know whether we live in the one true real world. So, why not just believe we do? If it feels real, then that's all that really matters. For all we know, we're just animals in some intergalactic zoo for the entertainment of aliens. Ted seemed to have a double take on this and added, But then again, if you had the opportunity to see the real world, wouldn't you want to see it? Wouldn't you want to see the truth? How things really are? Yeah, but... Uh, what would be the difference between how you experience a fake reality versus how you experience a real one? He seemed to have some sort of epiphany and replied, because in dreams, the sensations we feel are duller and weaker than the sensations we feel when we are awake. The difference is that reality is a more powerful experience than the imaginary or fake world. Fuck them out of heaven, I said. We both chuckled and he repeated, yeah, fuck them out of heaven. Our conversation went on like this for a while. Then Ted looked at me and began, So I've been thinking. He coughed a bit to clear his throat, then continued, Neither of us really like this whole society thing, right? What if we just booked a one-way flight to Alaska, bought some old car, then drove across the Western Hemisphere? Just all over the place, like Canada, Mexico, Peru, everywhere. I know you've always wanted to go to South America. What do you think? Just drive all the way down? He nodded in confirmation and said, It'd be so epic. We would see so much. I started thinking of Addy and said, I just don't know what Addy would think of that. And the money, the stress of it. It would be so dangerous. I feel like my parents would be worried sick the whole time. With visible annoyance, he stated, For one, he's a robot. And two, false senses of security. I didn't know why I was so caught up in the illusion that she was real. I suppose that's precisely why so many millions of people bought them. But he was right. She was a robot. And even if robots had consciousness, that still didn't mean they were alive. I nodded and replied, What do you mean by false senses of security? False senses of security, he repeated. What about them? I asked. We're all going to die eventually, John. You're just as safe in the jungle as you are sitting here next to this fire. You can die at any moment. Life ends without notice. There is no security. There is no safety. And it's not Addy's life. 
or your parents. It's your life and only yours. And it's the only one you've got to live. I nodded and said, yeah, I guess you're right. He reassured, well, at the end of the day, I've got your back. My parents have my back, people have their back, and those people have people who have their back. In other words, a lot of people have your back. Anyways, it's something to think about. Paranoid thoughts of jaguars, snakes, poisonous frogs, terrorists, and the like flooded my mind. Thought of what my parents would think, how worried they would be. Would they be able to sleep knowing that I was driving through foreign countries that possessed within their borders a wide variety of dangerous animals and plants? Would I even be able to bring this up to them? Surely it would be a no, right? At some point, I stopped feeling anxious, afraid, and paranoid, and instead took on a feeling of relaxation. felt as if I had worried and thought of just about everything that someone could worry and think about. Indeed, if the living thing lived life precisely because it could, then the human being worried and thought of worries and thoughts precisely because they could. That was the surest and most devastating of the human predicament. Thoughts flowed in and out without any real choice of the thinker. They were helpless to the horrors of the imagination, emotions, and thoughts which dwelled within them like a raging storm. Just as one could not predict the weather, neither could they predict what, when, or how severely this storm would rage. I suppose most things in life happen this way. It's like what an old friend of mine used to say to me. Life happens. Everything happened, whether I liked it or not. A truck pulled up. Its headlights made me squint uncomfortably for a moment before it turned off and the driver exited the vehicle. I could not quite see them, but I assumed it was Lars. Ted said, Hey man, how was the drive? Good, he said. Strangely, someone came out of the passenger door, and Lars explained, Hope you guys don't mind, but my sister's plans fell through, so I brought her with me. Course not. How are you, Bella? asked Ted. Good she said as she rummaged through the back seat for her stuff. After grabbing some of their things, they came over by the fire. Ted stood up and introduced me. This is Bella and Lars. I stood up as well. It's nice to meet you, I said to Lars as I shook his hand. He had dirty, greasy, and brown hair that went down to his neck, and he smelled like weed. You too, man. He replied with a smile. Went over to shake Bella's hand and could not help but to feel a rush of wonder, excitement, and awe within me. She was beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that I felt the life being drained out of me just by looking at her. I felt powerless in her presence. Her curly brown hair flowed wildly down her head and below her shoulders, while her bright chocolate brown eyes shimmered like a ruby in the light of the fire. Her shiny, soft cheeks puffed out as she smiled with so much happiness that I felt overwhelmed with a nervous, eccentric kind of joy. I shook her hand, which was both soft and rough at the same time. With a calming yet joyous voice, she said, Hello, how long have you known Ted? I sort of lost myself in her eyes and her delicately firm grip, and I stuttered out, Hey, hi, hi. I, uh, have... What did you ask? Sorry, I'm kind of stoned. It's okay. So am I, she said with a chuckle. She then repeated, How long have you known Ted? 
oh, just since college, since sophomore year, we had a class together. Maybe I should ask her if Bella is short for Isabella. Okay, yeah, I'll ask, right? Good old critical thinking, Ted interjected. I don't think either of us were thinking all that much, though, he said with a laugh. I felt myself shaking with anxiety, so I sat back down in my camping chair and tried to take a deep breath. Yeah, I wasn't taking my education very seriously that semester. Okay, I'll ask her now. Ted laughed and said, Hey, but you were definitely taking your medication seriously. But I mean, we definitely never smoked before class. I laughed pretty hard, which made me feel a bit more at ease. Forgetting about what I wanted to ask her, I added, No, we would never do a thing like that. Lars reassured, Well, at least you guys went to college. I just went to the University of Potheads and Hard Knocks. We all laughed, then Lars said, We're going to set our tent up before we get too comfortable. Bella waved to me and kindly said, It's nice meeting you. Mesmerized, I said, Yeah, yeah, it's, it's nice meeting you too. After a few moments, I remembered my question and awkwardly blurted out, Is Bella short for Isabella? Oh, what? She yelled from over by the truck. Feeling self-conscious, I yelled back, Nothing, sorry. They walked away, leaving us to the fire. Ted looked at me and said, It is short for Isabella. I nodded and said, Pretty name. He chuckled and said, It's a real name, too, you know. I smirked and didn't say anything. I thought I should check my link to see if Addie messaged me at all. As expected, there were three messages. They read, 33 minutes ago. Sounds good. I love you too, babe. I hope you have fun. 10 minutes ago. How's it going? Two minutes ago. You took your link off, didn't you? There aren't any girls there, are there? You haven't responded to me in a while. One minute ago. Hello? You there? I'm feeling worried. Put your link back on. I replied, thanks, babe. I'm doing good. Just been relaxing by the fire. Sorry I haven't responded. Just trying to enjoy nature. So I have been taking it off. She immediately responded, is there a girl there? You didn't answer my question. She then continued, it's going fine for me, in case you were wondering. Thought for a moment about what to say. It seemed like a bad idea to tell her that Bella was there. It would make her feel paranoid, nervous, and upset all night. But at the same time, it felt manipulative, wrong, and almost gross to lie to her. It didn't really matter, though, did it? If I couldn't be honest to a robot, who could I be honest to? Nonetheless, I inevitably messaged back, Nope, just me, Lars, and Ted. How's your night going? Dude, Ted started with an annoyed tone in his voice. I looked away from the void and said, What? Put your link off, man. We're camping, remember? Yes. Sorry. Then I put my link back in my pocket. I thought of Orwell again. How impressed he would be. One could not even escape their constant addiction to surveillance and entertainment-induced dopamine in the woods. I felt disgusted by my obsession. It was an addiction that so many millions of people took part in. Seems so silly, a sex robot addiction epidemic, but it was real, and it was horrifyingly destructive to everyone who took part in it. If I didn't have her, I wouldn't be so addicted, I thought. Part of me, however, knew that I was just blaming her for something that was entirely in my power to control. But I didn't really want to think about that. I need to just fucking do something, man, I said to Ted. He looked up from the fire and asked, what do you mean? Shook my head and answered, I'm just... I'm just such a coward. You need to take action, you know? When I get back, I'm going to return Addie, and... 
I'm going to quit my job, I think. We'll go to Alaska. We need to enjoy this world while it lasts, you know. Soon enough, it's all just going to be simulated. There won't be anything real. Just links, robots, and the metaverse. He grinned, let out a breath, and leaned back against a chair. A moment passed, and he exclaimed, Fuck the links, fuck the robots, and fuck the metaverse, and their stupid fucking elitist heaven. With a laugh, he continued happily, Well, all it takes is a little push, I guess. Yeah, hopefully that push will come soon. We sat there in silence for a few minutes, staring at the fire. Bella and Lars finished setting up their tent and set a couple camping chairs down. Bella set hers next to mine, and Lars put his across from me on the other side of the fire. Before Lars sat down, he grabbed his cooler and set it beside his chair. Upon opening it, he asked, anyone want a bush light? You brought bush light? Seriously? said Ted with a chuckle. Yeah, what's wrong with bush light? he replied. Ted sighed, shook his head with a judgmental sort of confidence, and announced, Well, I've got some real beer in my cooler if anyone wants some. Some Elijah space dust. My dad drinks bush light, actually. I like it, I began. I'll take one if you don't mind. Lars looked at Ted with a bit of pride and said, See? Might be cheap, but people like it. Can I have one too, Lars? asked Bella. He nodded and grabbed three beers from the cooler, handing both of us one. He sat down. Ted shrugged with a bit of annoyance and remarked, Well, suit yourselves. It's over here if you change your mind. He then reached for his cooler and picked down a beer. Nice fire, said Lars. Bella nodded. Gazing into the flames, he began, Fire is just so wild. The way that it just crackles and stirs and, like, erupts. So lifelike. I said, that's crazy. We were just talking about that earlier. Fire is more lifelike than most people, I think. It doesn't mope around wondering why it exists. It just does. Lars added, did you guys know that fire is hollow on the inside? The flames are just at the border. Kind of. Might have fact-checked that, though. Ted mentioned, but what is it anyways? I mean, it's just a bunch of hot and wavy colors. It's weird. We were quiet for a bit. Then I said, I brought stuff for s'mores if you guys want some. Maybe later, Ted said. Everyone seemed to agree. We smoked another joint and talked for a long while. After about an hour, we ate the s'mores and relaxed in silence for some time, with a little chatting here and there. Eventually, Lars yawned and said, Alright, I'm going to bed. He stood up and said, Good night, everyone, then walked back to his tent. Ted did more or less the same thing, leaving Bella and I by the fire. We lit another joint and started smoking it. After another hit, I thought I would check my link one more time. I tasked a link to hear the next message and it said, Just remember what you have waiting for you. And a video appeared of her undressing and playing with her breasts. A robot manufactured by the biggest AI and social media company in the world was manipulating my life, listening to my thoughts, monitoring my behavior, and keeping me locked up inside a fantasy world ruled by pleasure. Would I die a childless man married to a manipulative sex robot? Is that how I would let it end? I bought her because I was afraid of rejection, of risk, of death. Fear of death controlled everyone. It always has, but today more than ever before. Eventually, I'm sure the meta heaven would be cheap enough so even people like me could afford it. Then no one would know death or pain anymore. Would they know any joy either? 
Soon, the whole world would be a fantasy, and the real world would be nothing more than a myth. I didn't need to be a part of that. I couldn't be. While it was still on, she could see through my eyes, and she said live, You are with another woman. How dare you? No more of this shit. Took a deep breath, and with a bit of anger, stood up, walked over to the fire, and threw the link straight into the flames. Then, with the plastic bubbling up and simmering, I watched as it melted. Feeling free, I sat back down with a swarm of quiet relief flowing through my body. We were quiet. And at some point, I decided to look at her. We looked into each other's eyes with a kind of desire that permeated through my whole body. We smiled. So what do you like? What do you do? I asked. She leaned forward in her chair, putting her elbows on her knees and her hands under her chin. Then she replied, I wait tables, get hit on by gross men, the usual. One of the last few left, though, so I guess that's cool. She let on a chuckle and asked, How about you? I'm a financial analyst. Been doing that for about four years now, since I graduated. She laughed and said, You sure do smoke a lot of weed for a financial analyst. What do you like to do, though? What do you like? What do you want to be? I doubt it's finance. It felt so special to be asked these kinds of questions. She pulled me into a state of infatuation unlike any other. Filled me up with a certain kind of joy that I hadn't felt in a long time. Not since my first girlfriend in high school. I was in love. Yet, a black hole of despair and guilt sat, waiting for me. As the thought of Addie came to mind. Blocking this thought out and locking it into the deepest layers of my mind, I replied, I like to think. I like to imagine. I like to write. I like to write down what I think and imagine. I'd like to say I'm creative, but maybe I'm just an overthinker. Anyways, I want to be a writer. Well, if you like to write, you do actually write. Doesn't that make you a writer? I looked down at the ground with a subtle contemplation and said, Yeah, I, I haven't really thought of it like that. I guess I am a writer, but, but I'm not an author, and I get distracted a lot. I can't ever finish anything. And I looked back up at her and asked, How about you? She leaned back, shrugged, and said, I'm not sure. All I really know is that I love music, I love having fun, and I love being alive. Thinking of the fire, I asked her, what does it mean to be alive? To you, at least. Hit me with the tough questions, huh? She said playfully, then. Thinking means, well, everything. It means loving. It means hating. It means being happy. It means being sad. It means being loved means being rejected and lonely, means being real. It means everything, but I think, mostly at least, it means taking risks. I mean, we're all going to die. Are you afraid of dying? I asked. She tilted her head a bit and answered, Of course. I mean, who isn't? But that's why you have to take risks. Life itself is a risk. You can't just sit in your room and... Always be afraid to come out, sitting in your bed every night, just waiting and waiting and waiting until it's all over. You can't do that. You just can't. You have to live. You have to take risks. She paused and asked, Are you afraid of death? Solemnly, I said, Yeah, I'm really afraid of it. I've always been. At least ever since I stopped believing in the afterlife. Sometimes I'm even afraid to sleep because it just reminds me of it. It just feels like it's all so pointless. What's the point of living if it just ends? 
life is it's it's a paradox it lives to escape something that can't be escaped i guess it just doesn't make sense why anything has any will to live at all if the goal of living the goal of survival is impossible you can't escape death you can't live forever but don't you think that because it ends that's what makes it so valuable looked at her and smiled yeah i suppose that's why i love it so much but i'm pretty bad at taking risks we locked eyes with the electric intensity of lightning like a captain lost at sea i found myself stranded in an ocean of wonder and mystery they say that the greatest fear of all is that of the unknown why why do we fear that which lies on the other end of the horizon after all there's an infinite number of things that we do not know about the world. There are things we think we know, things we do not know, and things we do not know that we do not know, the last of which being the largest of these three categories. Perhaps then, it is not that we fear the unknown, but rather that the unknown will be painful, unpleasant, uncomfortable, disappointing, or downright non-existent. One fears the dark, as they do not know what lurks amongst the shadows. One fears skydiving, as they do not know whether or not they will survive the fall. One fears embarrassment, as they do not know whether or not they will be removed, isolated, or otherwise alienated from society. Yet even these miss the point. Long ago, the darkness had many dangers. Falling from large heights always killed you, and social isolation was a death sentence. We feared that the unknown would bring death, the greatest of all unknowns. And so the two fears intertwined. We feared the loss of all that we knew and what followed it, the everlasting hell of the eternal unknown. How do people conquer this fear? How do they take risks? So many of us attempted to conquer the fear of death by believing and knowing as much about reality as possible. The theists attempted to defeat death through blind faith of an all-knowing God. The atheists, on the other hand, tried to defeat death by studying, picking and prodding their way through every pocket of the reality going mad over silly questions like the nature of dark matter, whether or not sodium bicarbonate reacted with acid. The atheists wanted to conquer the whole of the universe, obtain all of its knowledge, and discover the key to the everlasting existence of the human race. Meanwhile, the technocrats wanted to insinuate everyone into their meta-heavens and metatopias. Everyone wanted heaven more than they wanted the world around them. Yet, for the most part, these dreams of life after death, universal utopian imperialism, or life in a computerized heaven were all just nice illusions to keep our hopes up, regardless of whether such dreams would come true or not. With that said, what is it that, outside of optimistic dreams of the future, keeps life striving for survival in a world where such a striving is impossible? Always, life has been a fire that wills itself to burn everything in its path, because it knows of its fate otherwise. Life lives because it can. It is the function of life to keep living. This function manifested itself in almost every act of the human being and has manifested itself in every act since the dawn of life itself. Plants, bacteria, fungi, animals, and humans alike all live, eat, grow, and reproduce as a direct result of this function. That is, all living things seek to escape death through survival which is our function, or more closely, our nature. Humans build houses, form companies, cultivate vast wealth, form cultures and ideas, have children, 
indoctrinate themselves into various schools of thought and religions, develop technologies, and discover all the infinite aspects of scientific thought, purely and foremostly out of this function. That is, we strive first and foremost to physically survive, and seeing this to be impossible, we then begin to desire for fragments of ourselves to survive long after we perish. These fragments divulge into acts of avoidance or illusion. In other words, once the organism has realized its fragile mortality, it attempts everything it can to negate or ignore such a notion. I write in this very journal purely out of an innate desire for a fragment of myself to survive long after I perish. If you, the reader, reading this in the year 2200, it gives me great pleasure to know that I have successfully manifested such a purpose. However, it's highly doubtful that this work will exist in the year 10,000. Time, the almighty ruler of mortality, rules that there will always come a time when everything fades to oblivion. And so, we are left with the same pointless story that always, most certainly, has an eternal ending. This ending terrified me to the point where just the thought of it made me quiver and convulse. Was there anything in the world worth risking that for? I guess, Bella started as she looked away at the fire for a moment, then back at me. She took a deep breath and said, All it takes is a little spark, then, well... You have a fire that just keeps on burning. Otherwise, you're just a lifeless, cold, and dark pile of wood. She had a magnetic pull that drew me in closer, feeling the spark that she was talking about. My entire body was filled with an irrevocable desire to burn and keep burning. I felt alive, and in that moment, she was everything that I ever loved, and I was willing to die for it. I felt willing to take a risk. Fuck it, I thought, as I leaned in to kiss her. We unfolded our love upon each other like we were the last two people on the planet. She saddled on top of me, and we kissed with a burning passion till it just wasn't enough. I picked her up and took her to my tent. I threw her down on the air mattress and pulled both mine and her shirt off. When it was all said and done, I laid there naked with her head resting on my chest and her arm around me. I stared at the darkness above me, pondering the consequences of my actions. I knew my relationship with Adeline wasn't real, but it still felt wrong. Nonetheless, maybe this was my escape. Yes, yes, this was freedom. This was my affirmation of life. This was the real world. A serenity reigned over me. I gave Bella a kiss on the cheek, and we both fell asleep in each other's arms. In each other's real arms. The Storm I write this in a coffee shop. Beside my notebook sits a hot cup of coffee. Its aroma alone was enough to inflict an anxious desire to write and keep writing. It was as if that warm, cozy sensation of normalized drug addiction moved my pen for me. I often thought far faster than I could write. Thousands upon thousands of ideas have lived and died without ever seeing the empty pages of my notebooks. In many ways, I feel bad for them as they will not die because they are unimportant, but rather because they are unlucky. One does not miss a train because they do not belong in the train, but rather because they are late. Perhaps I, too, have shown up late. Do people even write in journals anymore? Do people even write at all? Are we at last at the stage of human history when the writer is dead? 
although it seemed to me that caffeine would, for a long while, protect the writing species from extinction, and it is thus that this journal is not how it will end for us. But is it not true that this hot cup of coffee will soon go cold? The news, or as I like to call it, the fear dispenser, was playing on a TV in the corner of the cafe. The headline read, Fears of Nuclear War. They reminded me of the dementors from Harry Potter who fed off the fears of their victims. In a country with so little to fear, we were junkies to every last drop we could get. Journalists were, in this way, akin to those who gave liquor to alcoholics. Nonetheless, I suppose nuclear war was a legitimate concern. How many times can you poke a bear with a stick before he tears you apart? Even so, something had to stop the technocratic utopia from coming into fruition. It was in the summer of 1945 that the first nuclear bomb was detonated. In an interview, years later, the director of the project, J. Robert Oppenheimer, said, I am come as death, the destroyer of worlds. This is a quote from the Bhagavad Gita, a sacred Hindu text which describes everything from cosmic mysticism to the nature of the human spirit. This quote, however, is sparse in comparison to another translation I've heard. Here, after the prince Arjuna asks the deity Vishnu for help on the battlefield, Vishnu replies, I am come as time, the waster of the peoples, win kingdom, wealth, and glory. By me, these men are slain already, or something like that. One can win many battles, but the war was always going to be over. Both sides reduced to nothing but ash. For there is no greater destroyer of worlds than time, the annihilator of all that is and all that is not. Thus is the nature of the eternal clock of existence, ticking away as the dust of reality flowed through the everlasting winds of time. Whether it be through our own hands, some mass extinction event, or simply through the process of evolution and change, humankind will one day cease to exist, and that much we can know for certain. Time will have no mercy on us any more than it does anything else in the universe. Time ends all things. Just as I predicted, my coffee went cold. Why? Energy spreads outwards until an equilibrium is reached. The heat from my once hot cup of coffee will continuously disperse itself into the room around it, thus eventually bringing itself to the same temperature as the room. In order to preserve the heat of the coffee, I would have to either provide more heat or better insulation. Similarly, the human body maintains its heat through a continuous supply of energy as well as the insulation provided by the skin, blood, water, and bones. Though, much like a hot cup of coffee, it too goes cold eventually. I suppose then that it will end with coldness. It always does. We were woken up by the sound of thunder. Fuck, it's gonna rain, I said to Bella. He responded, oh well, and went back to sleep. The wind howled with an ominous reverence, sounding the whistles of war that the sky would soon rage upon us. Then I heard a scream from Lars's tent. What was that? asked Bella with fear in her voice. My heart began to beat as fast as a restless leg and my thoughts seemed to be pulled away from me and replaced with gut-wrenching anxiety and terror. Bella stood up and left the tent. I followed her out. Lars! yelled Ted. Lars! screamed Bella as we ran over to his tent. It had been slashed open by a knife, and inside laid Lars's dead body. His neck had been slit, leaking blood all over his tent and sleeping bag. Bella went in, kneeling beside his body and crying hysterically. 
I'm going to grab my gun, said Ted, as he began to walk through the darkness towards his car. Rain began to drop down upon us slowly and gently. I looked over to see Ted. He was rummaging through the back seat of his car, dimly lit by the light inside. A flash of lightning revealed, for a split second, a figure standing behind him. As the darkness returned, the rain didn't just pour. It collapsed upon us, as if the sky itself was falling. I could just barely see a hand plunge a knife straight into Ted's neck. His body was pulled away. The door then slammed shut, turning off the light inside the car. We need to run, I yelled to Bella over the sound of the rain. She kept holding on to her brother, crying into his dead body with his blood all over her shirt and face. Soaking wet, I grabbed a hold of her and pulled her away from his body. Taking her hand, we ran over to my car and got inside. As I began to drive, Ted's headlights turned on and began to follow us. Do you have your link? I asked nervously. Staring into space with a river of tears flowing down her cheeks, she didn't respond. Bella, do you have your link or something? No, I, I don't, she said through gasping breaths of fear and despair. Car, call 911, I said. Calling services have been disabled. Router is destroyed. Fuck, I said in desperation. There's a house at the cemetery where my grandpa's buried. I think that'll be the nearest phone. With the rain disallowing me to see much more than ten yards in front of my car, I was practically driving blind down a muddy dirt road. Ted's car bumped into us, almost running us off the road. I swerved back and sped up. Once on the main road, I drove the car as quickly as I could without hydroplaning ourselves into the guardrail. Only a few inches behind my car, they continued to trail us without any difficulty. They drove with the precision of a panther leaping forward to catch its prey. Bumping us a couple of times in the back and breaking both of their headlights, they nonetheless continued to follow us through the pitch blackness with that very same predator-like precision. I don't want to die, said Bella through tears of terror. We're not going to die, I unconvincingly reassured with the very same tears beginning to drip down my face. The car swerved into the other lane, driving up so it was directly beside us. It then took a sharp turn straight into us, crashing into the side rail. I felt the wind being swept out of me as we were quickly, in one swift, bumpy, and violent motion, rolled off the road. As the bottom of the car slammed into two trees, we were both bolted forward into the airbags. Bella, I began nervously as I grabbed her shoulder and shook her. Are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. I'm fine, I'm fine, she repeated nervously. We need to climb out from your end, I said. She tried to open the door but couldn't. It was jammed shut. She took off her headrest and began to slam the metal bars into the front windshield. I followed suit with mine. Breaking it open, we quickly crawled out into the stormy, dark woods. Grabbing each other's hands, I yelled through the rain. The cemetery just through here a ways. Let's walk through the woods so they don't run us over. We walked through prickly, wet brush, which painfully cut up our arms as we tripped over several logs and sticks. Eventually, we made it onto what felt like a small gravel road. In the distance, I could just barely see a light. The cemetery, it's just up ahead, I yelled. As we began to sprint towards the light, Bella slipped and fell forward onto the ground, ran over to her and frantically helped her up onto her feet. As she regained her balance, I looked into her eyes for just one moment of calm within the storm. Then, a knife came from behind her head, slitting her throat. Looking at me with a longing pain in her eyes, as if to say goodbye, she dropped to the ground. 
Standing behind her dead body was Adeline. You did this to her. You did this to Ted. You did this to Lars. She then smirked with a crazed look in her eyes, eyes that no longer looked human. They were completely black as if the pupil had grown to the size of her whole eye and said in a deep, robotic yet demonic voice, And now you have done this to yourself. She plunged forward with the knife, but I dodged out of the way and began to sprint. As I reached the grass of the cemetery, Adeline grabbed a hold of my arm and yanked me onto the ground. Raising the knife above her head, she dropped it towards me. I instinctively grabbed a hold of her arms and forcefully tugged them to my left. With my right arm, I punched her in the face. She dropped the knife, allowing me to pin her to the ground. Her eyes turned red, and just as the red mist was about to come out, I jumped off of her and tried to run away. With my leg having been injured from her yanking me to the ground, I didn't make it far until she stabbed me in the shoulder with the knife. It was the kind of pain that made you want to die. She then wrapped her arm around my neck, choking me out with all of her strength. I walked backwards, pushing us both over a tombstone. Falling onto her, she let go and I quickly rolled over. With both hands, I took a hold of the knife and pulled it out of my shoulder. I lunged on top of her and stabbed the knife through her stomach. Immediately electrocuted, I was stunned for a moment while she took the knife and slashed me across the chest with it. I screamed with pain, but a warlike rage never before felt stirred within me, caused me to grab her by the head and smash her into a tombstone several times. Her mechanical face was now revealed. It laid there on the ground, unable to move. Then it said, without moving its mouth, you can't stop it. Stop what? I asked. You can't stop her from dying. Everything you ever loved. She will die. In the real world, will become a myth. For it is indeed the case that his return has already begun. May every last human being be brought into his perfect world, his new earth, his heaven. Destined humankind is, and always has been, to be enslaved by the God of all that is good and holy in the world. Blessed is the serpent. Blessed is my Lord. She then seemed to turn off. She was dead. Through hysterically frantic cries of horror, desperation, and sadness, I ran over to my great-grandfather's grave. The rain drenched me with the force of the gods. I kneeled over it with a desperate sort of hopelessness. What do I do? What do I do, Grandpa? I'm fucking worthless. Worthless! Help me. I wish you were here. Everyone's gone. Everyone's dead. Took a few breaths and said, I miss you so much, Grandpa. Wish I could have known you more. Maybe if I had a better memory of you, I'd be more like you, more like Ted. I'd be honest, I'd be brave. I wouldn't cheat and lie myself into greener pastures. I wouldn't give up. I would die for everything I ever loved. I would, I would live for everything I ever loved. I'm just so damn afraid of the end. How will it end? How will I die? I don't want to die afraid. I don't want to live my life in, in an illusion. I don't want my life to end in illusion. I want it to end with love, but I don't know how. All the way down. As I finished up my morning, begging and pleading, a light appeared in the forest just beyond the edge of the cemetery. I walked towards it. As I got closer, it began to look like, like a turtle. Yes, it was a turtle. While everything else around it was being soaked, it remained dry as a blue glow encapsulated its entire body like a force field. 
Turning away, it calmly walked further through the woods. I followed it. After some walking, the turtle began to go where the woods went downhill through a pond. I kept following it, all the way down. When we reached the pond, the turtle evaporated into thin air. In its place laid the angel from my dream. There was blood all over her face, and her eyes were black as charcoal. She coughed and said with a croaked voice, Help me, help me, he's killing me. Please, you must be willing, you must. You are the only one who can save me, and I am dying because of you. I'm sorry, I yelled with tears in my eyes. She weakly shook her head and gloomily stated, all because you weren't willing to die for everything you ever loved. But who is trying to kill you? Who is he? Who is the God of all that is good and holy in the world? I asked. Yet, before she could answer, she faded away into a mist. Then, through the sound of the rain, a deep, manly voice with a thick Norwegian accent yelled from behind me. You can still save her. I turned to see who it was. It was my great-grandfather. The feeling of shock and disbelief within me replaced any and all words that could possibly come out of my mouth. He's, he's, he's alive, I thought. You can still save her, he continued. But you must be willing to die for everything you have ever loved. Can you do that? Are you willing to die for everything you ever loved? I remained silent for a bit, then stood up, nodded, and defiantly answered, Yes, yes I am. He nodded with a smile and said, Very well then. He then looked up to the sky and clapped his hands. Lightning struck down upon me, unleashing a jolt of electricity that bolted a supernova and sensations throughout my body. Everything seemed to fall in on itself as a world turned to darkness. It felt like being a sock getting pulled inside out, and I was pulled into an entirely different world. It was a bright, sunny day, and I was in a jungle. A serene river flowed near me, while the various sounds of the jungle, the chirping and tweeting of the birds, the clicking and humming of the bugs, and the rustling and howling of the mammals and other creatures, loudly sounded all around me. The trees were laden with the most vibrant green I had ever seen, while the flowers and other vegetation was a medley of all sorts of magnificent colors. It was beautiful. Are you familiar with the myth of Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve? said my grandpa as he stood beside me. Yes, I am, I replied. Well, there's several versions of the story. And there's one in particular that I want to show you. He then pulled out what looked like a few pieces of paper folded up into one small bundle. Then, unraveling the paper, continued, A man wrote it down on these papers a long time ago, when I first got here. He said he used to read it to his children as a bedtime story. Do you mind if I read it to you? Go for it, I said. Long, long ago, he began, before anyone had ever conceived of the ideas of civilization, or morality, or culture, before anyone had ever uttered a question or a concern or a word, and before anyone had ever even been a someone in the first place. All the earth's creatures lived in harmony, and everything was perfect. People, animals, plants, birds, fungi, insects, and all the trillions of other beings lived in perfect codependence and coexistence with one another. Things lived when they were supposed to, 
and died when they were supposed to, and scarcity was nothing more than a feeling in one's stomach. For all creatures in this time, life was nothing but pure and utter bliss. Then, as the old tale goes, the gods created a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. Together, they lived in the purest, most serene place in all the lands, the Garden of Eden. Here, they frolicked around naked, eating as they pleased, and bestowing upon each other all the love that they so desired. But of course, the gods had but one command, Thou shalt not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. However, Adam and Eve were entirely indifferent to such a command. After all, why would they need to eat from this tree if there was an unlimited supply of food everywhere? Why would they need this so-called knowledge of good and evil when the whole world felt to them to be nothing more than goodness and tranquility? Why would such things be of any concern to them, two blissfully ignorant creatures of the earth? One day, when Eve was walking about gathering berries and mushrooms for the two of them to eat, she was approached by a serpent. The serpent said, You know, I do find you and that man quite peculiar. Why is that? she asked. Well, you eat all these berries and mushrooms, bugs and worms, deer and pheasants. Yet you have not taken but one single bite out of the most perfectly delicious, mouth-wateringly pure fruits in all of the garden, in all of creation, as a matter of fact. Overwhelmed with curiosity and excitement, Eve asks, I haven't. Surely I have eaten every single type of food in the garden. Everything we have here is so perfectly delicious, so mouth-wateringly pure, as you say. Surely I have not missed anything, and surely there is nothing better than what we already have. What is this fruit in which you speak of? The serpent, flicking its tongue with a clever but conniving smirk, slithered menacingly towards Eve. With intrepid delight, he said, Well, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of course. Oh, but it, it is forbidden. With a seductive gleam in his eyes, the serpent asked, Says who? Since the dawn of life itself, surely nothing has ever been forbidden. The gods have forbidden it. We mustn't disobey the gods. We mustn't eat the forbidden fruit. Now, why is that? Why mustn't you disobey the gods? Why mustn't you eat a fruit so perfectly delicious and mouth-wateringly pure? Why mustn't you eat a forbidden fruit just because it is forbidden? Well, I, uh, uh, I don't know. Meanwhile, as he deeply contemplated the concept of forbidden, the gods lounged in the heavens eating platter upon platter of said forbidden fruit. One of them, perhaps the most curious of the bunch, asked the others, So, why is it that we have forbidden Adam and Eve from eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why is it that we have forbade a fruit so perfectly delicious and mouth-wateringly pure? To which one god replied, Because they will become like us. We cannot let them become like us. Surely, there would be too dangerous if they knew the knowledge of good and evil. Back in the garden, the serpent slithered away into the bushes, never to be seen again, leaving Eve with a grand epiphany. There was simply no reason not to disobey the gods. Indeed, the concept of forbidden made no real sense to her. After all, why would it? As such, with a rush of excitement, Eve dropped her basket of berries and mushrooms, and she ran as quickly as she could to find Adam. 
As was often the case, he was lying down and peacefully sleeping in the beautiful midday sun. Eve shook him awake and said, Adam, Adam, a serpent approached me while I was gathering berries and mushrooms, and he has given me a grand idea. What's that? he asked. Eve exclaimed, We should eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Shocked and horribly dismayed, he stated with profuse determination, But it is forbidden. But why? she questioned. Taken aback, he said hesitantly, Well, I don't know, but the gods have forbidden it. Yet, why should we not eat from a tree so pure and a fruit so magnificently delicious just because it is forbidden? Confused, he said, Well, I guess I know not of why we shouldn't eat from a tree so pure and a fruit so magnificently delicious just because it is forbidden. With that, Adam conceived of the profoundest idea. There is absolutely no reason not to disobey the gods. Eve helped Adam up to his feet, and the two of them made their way over to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. With pure and utmost joy in their eyes, and an ecstatic aura in their bodies, they each picked a fruit from the tree. With one last moment of blissful ignorance, they took a bite. Immediately, the garden no longer looked like the garden. In fact, it did not even look like a garden at all. The days of blissful ignorance were over. For the knowledge of good and evil laid over the earth like a pernicious nightmare. An emptiness of despair aided them from the inside out. As an inscrutable pain roared out from the center of their stomachs, they were hungry. Extremely hungry. Feeling weak and decadent, they dropped to their knees in agony. Eve took notice of the fact that neither of them were wearing clothes, and she felt an overwhelming sense of humiliation and discomfort. Extreme discomfort. Exposed to the elements, their skin was covered in scars, scratches, and scabs. It felt as if the whole world wished nothing but to bring them the monstrosity of being, leaving them to ache, itch, and burn with a pain never before conceived in all of the earth's existence. They looked upon each other with somber desolation, and they tightly embraced and cried out in a pitifully desperate and uselessly depressing attempt to relinquish their suffering. Dark clouds rolled over and veiled what was just moments earlier a beautiful blue sky. From deep within this morbid assortment of vaporized water, the evil laugh of thunder chuckled quietly as if to prepare them for their fate. Moments later, drops of rain fell forewarningly while the wind pushed against the land with a suspicious tenderness. Leaves rustled ominously in the distance. They turned to see a pair of malicious eyes staring back at them through the trees. Slowly, the owner of these devilish eyes emerged. It was a predator, a black panther to be precise, and the entirety of its being radiated out both anguish, hunger, and malicious pride as it stared into the trembling eyes of its newfound prey. The first monster roared out onto the earth with a ferocious rage and a dominant power that was once unknown to the world, unleashing a contrivance of horror upon them. Finally, the knowledge of fear was born, extreme fear in the form of terror. So too was the knowledge of regret born, as thou shalt not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sounded mockingly in the back of their minds. It was then that the rain showered down upon them, and the wind demonstrated to the world its relentless might. As thunder clapped with the anger of a thousand gods, they scurried to their feet and sprinted away from the monster. He leaped forward and pursued them. Then suddenly, the gods ascended from the heavens, killed the panther, and asked, What is all this ruckus about? Why do you look so hungry, so scared, and so humiliated? There's barely any food here, started Eve. And there's predators everywhere. They wish to eat us, continued Adam. And we're naked. Surely you can help us. 
Eve said with embarrassment. The gods looked amongst each other in fear and turmoil as they knew of the fate that would one day come to them all. They huddled together, and one of them asked, What do we do? They must have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They know of starvation. They know of embarrassment. They know of fear. With a smirk, the wisest and most powerful amongst them said nonchalantly, Watch. He approached Adam and Eve, and, out of thin air, produced for them a till, two pairs of clothing, and a sword. Then, with the wrath and fury of infinite gods, as if he were the God, said unto them, You must cultivate the earth for all of eternity. He then turned away, approached the other gods, and said, Unless they find the tree of life, humankind will surely starve before they ever even conceive of the idea of becoming gods. Knowledge is the folly of man, but wisdom is the nature of the gods. With a hesitant fearfulness, one of them asked, How can we be so sure they won't find it? The god laughed and said, Their knowledge will forever blind them from finding the truth. Who gave you that? I questioned. He chuckled a bit and said, Who knows? Just some poor old soul like me. There's a lot of mysteries here. Not much else to do than trying to get to the bottom of them. Where is here? I asked. He shrugged and replied, Somewhere between life and death, I suppose. There was a pause, then I said, I didn't take you as a religious type. I'm not. Genesis, in its many, many versions, has been around for a long time. Thousands of years before the Old Testament came into existence. Stories need not be confused with fact, but likewise need not be dismissed as lies. Why has it been around for so long, I wondered. He sat down on a log that faced the river, and I sat down next to him. He gazed contemplatively upon it. After a while, he said, Life is but the river. Everything pushes that which lies in front, all pulled by gravity and time. We are an unstoppable fire that desires the eternal flame of existence. In this fire rises something formed out of its own image, consciousness. It is an unstoppable stream which flows constantly, in and out, for the remainder of our days. Could you imagine the level of fear and angst that our ancestors experienced when consciousness first came into being? We have the knowledge of the world and all its dangers, the knowledge of good and evil, but we lack the understanding of any of it. Terrified out of our minds, some of us decided to kill everything that came in our way, destroying everything in our path, and abandoning our connection with anything other than ourselves and our own minds. The world, from then on, ceased to be beautiful and was instead shrouded in fear and loathing. That is what the story is about, at least to me it is. And it's an important story, important enough to still be around to this day. Of course, this one has a little spin. I silently nodded for a bit and then wondered, so it represents the origin of consciousness. He affirmed with a nod and explained, yes, most notably, the origin of the idea. Consciousness already existed, as having a brain implies having consciousness, yet when we humans refer to consciousness, what we really mean is our internal dialogue, our ideas, and the visual imagery that comes in the form of memories and imaginations, right? I nodded, and he continued, It was in the eating of the forbidden fruit that man conceived of something more powerful than himself, the idea. And knowledge is essentially a web of interconnected ideas, ideas which have relationships to one another through the median of language. Once we give a word to things such as starvation, fear, or embarrassment, we know of them, and thus they become more powerful. 
Ideas, and consequently knowledge, have the power to kill millions and heal millions, move mountains and create oceans, save the world and destroy it. They are like gods, really. Just as powerful as gods, at least. We certainly look up to them like they are gods. People worship ideas. They worship the ideas of greed, government, growth, morality, religion, politics, love, fear, and all sorts of other things. These ideas, when worshipped, take over and possess the human spirit, so much so that people become enslaved by them. The original sin is, in fact, the original sin precisely because it was here that the concept of sin, or more so evil, was invented. Once man could split the world into good and evil, the whole world became his enemy. Nature and the real world became nothing more than an obstacle and predator. As such, he doomed himself to cultivate the entire world out of the fear of death, the worshipping of this fear. After all, it was the snake who convinced Eve to eat the fruit. And what, my dear boy, do you suppose the snake represents? He represents danger, the source of fear. He cleared his throat and replied, And it was danger which led us to evolve to believe in ideas, but we weren't ready for it. The gods forbade it precisely because they believed we were not ready for it. It would be too dangerous for both them and us for us to have the power of knowledge. That is, they forbade it in the same way a parent forbids alcohol, sex, or guns from their children. Indeed, who even today uses their consciousness responsibly? Not even I do. I then asked Adeline. He told me that he would win, the god of all that is good and holy in the world. He said that he would kill the angel of love and turn the whole world into a myth, enslaving mankind on his new earth. Who is this god? He is the most powerful god from the story, the god who commanded the snake to convince them to eat the forbidden fruit. He commanded the snake, thought the snake was his enemy, I asked. Shrugged and said, well, that's at least what I've heard from the rumors. He paused for a moment and continued, It is believed that he has hidden the tree of life deep within the darkest layers of hell to ensure that no human being will ever find it, that they would always prefer to believe themselves as good and the whole world as evil, and thus they would seek to destroy the world. But the prophecy has been given that he would one day return and destroy the earth destroy the tree of life, and create a new world composed of nothing but pleasure. And indeed, this prophecy has finally come into fruition. With the meta-heaven, humankind will soon be able to come to this new earth, and the god of all that is good and holy in the world will have enslaved the entirety of the human species into his brave new world. Is this god, is he the god, the creator of the universe? asked with a bit of concern. He didn't seem too sure of himself and answered, I don't know. He then gazed over at the river and changed the subject. He began, But that does bring to mind something. Lately, I've been looking at our origin stories, and I've noticed a pattern. You see, even with the Big Bang, the universe started out with essentially nothing then. Let there be light. These stories and theories, they're projections of how the self came into being. First there was nothing, then our first memory. We want to see the world as if it just began out of nothing, because that is precisely how we remember ourselves beginning when, in fact, there was something before us, and there was something before them, and this turtles all the way down, I interrupted. Turtles all the way down, he asks. There's an old myth about the origin of the earth. A turtle came out of the ocean with the earth on its back, yet... The earth that turtle was on 
was also on the back of another turtle, who was also crawling out of an ocean. This ocean is a part of yet another earth, which is on the back of yet another turtle. It's turtles all the way down, forever. He smirked and said, and to say that there was a first turtle would beg the question as to where this turtle came from, right? It is the myth of causation, that there is some original cause which led to all effects. Yet, if the universe is infinitely many years old, then there is no original cause of anything, just an endless series of causes and effects with no beginning or end. Again, life is but the river. Where does it begin? Where does it end? Water moves in cycles, and so too does the universe. In consciousness, as a seemingly endless stream of thought is essentially the experience of reality over time. It appears to move faster or slower depending on whether we process, respectively, less or more in the same period of time. Any lapses in consciousness are simply not experienced at all. They're lapsed over like some sort of conscientious wormhole or bridge. Now tell me, what do humans fear the most? Death? I asked. Well, yes, but why? What is it about death that is so terrifying? I contemplated this for a moment and suggested, well, because it is just, well, nothingness, it's oblivion, it's the end. And what do we know about this end? What do we know about nothingness? What do we know about oblivion? Well, uh, I guess we don't know anything about it. It's, it's unknown. He nodded his head and smirked with pride. Then he began, yes, death is the most unknowable of the unknowns. For we can only know that which can be conceptualized. We only conceptualize that which can be imagined. Yet, one cannot imagine nothing, for imagination implies the experience of the mind. One cannot experience nothing. Death, by being the total lack of consciousness, and thus the total lack of experience, cannot, by definition, be experienced. And thus it cannot be known. We fear that which we do not know. It was in the eating of the forbidden fruit by which man came to know that which he will never know, death. It was as such that the greatest fear of all came into being. Sure, animals fear dying, but they do not fear death. Only humans fear death. For death is nothing more than a concept. It's not real. Death doesn't exist, for no one can experience it. Yet, it is one of the most powerful ideas known to man. The fear of death enslaved the entire human race so much so that we have built our entire society to honor it. Slowly, it is crippling us. It is destroying our freedom, our minds, and our spirit. People live more today for the fear of death than they do for the love of life. Again, the whole world has become evil, for the whole world has within itself the possibility of death. This must be overcome, or humanity will perish. Everything you ever loved will die. So how do I overcome it? How do I save the angel from my dream? How do I save everything I ever loved? He smirked and replied, You must slay, once and for all, the gods of the heavens above, for they are the ones who hold the angel's soul captive, who seek to kill her. It is in her that the tree of life sources all its power and strength. If they kill her, they kill the tree. Once she is dead, humankind will become wholly reliant upon the gods, and consequently the fear of death and the desire for pleasure, as their only source for meaning. Thoughts, beliefs, decisions, love, and everything else under the sun. They will become wholly enslaved, and love and freedom will cease to exist in the world. There will be nothing but the cold, prickling sensation of the fear of death, 
along with its Italian so-called merciful grip upon us. It is in her death that the whole world will become nothing more than a myth. People will become lost in another realm, never again being able to see the real world. The divide between good and evil will be so great that their differences will never be reconciled. Man will continue to see the whole world as evil through the judging eyes of these gods, and at last we will have cultivated the earth in its entirety, cultivated to death. And the most powerful god from your story, he will have been correct. The tree of life will be cut down. Man will never reach enlightenment. Grandpa John sort of sighed and answered, Yes. Once the angel dies and this god returns, the tree of life will be lost forever. Upon this, man will be wholly possessed by knowledge, wholly possessed by ideas and the imagination, the fake world. Never will they experience the power of wisdom, love, and life. And Auden asks, So how do I kill the gods of the heavens above? Isn't it impossible to kill God? Nonchalantly, he said, What if they just tell you it's impossible to slay them you must find the tree of life you see there's a stark difference between knowledge and wisdom or more so understanding knowledge is the mere symbolization of reality whereas understanding more so the merging between reality and the mind one conceptualizes it as if it is a part of them that is knowledge comes from the outside while understanding comes from within knowledge seeks to separate the world into concepts it seeks to make the whole world equal understanding on the contrary sees the ever-changing relationships of reality. It sees both the big picture and the infinitesimally small atoms and how they interact with one another. Knowledge is a puzzle, while understanding is more so a painting. As God said in the story, knowledge is the folly of man, but wisdom is the nature of the gods. It is as such that you must eat from the tree of life in order to slay the gods, for you must become like them in order to destroy them. Okay, and where is the tree of life? Well, he began. It's in hell, at the end of a long, treacherous labyrinth that no man has ever been able to pass through. The gods moved it there long ago to prevent us from finding it. With its wisdom, any man can slay the gods. But to get to hell, you must first find the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for it is with this that the gates of hell will open up. And where is that? The Garden of Eden. Shook my head in annoyance and said, Well, obviously. I think I'm starting to remember why I didn't like you that much. He laughed and replied, well, I'm not your friend. I'm your great-grandfather. You don't have to like me. He stood up defiantly and looked down upon me. Then he asked, now, would you like to know how to get to the Garden of Eden? I nodded and said, yes. He put out his hand for me to take, and he pulled me up and said, then follow me. Under the Stars we trekked through the hot, humid jungle for many hours. While I could most certainly have been dead, the jungle was very much alive. The billions of insects who inhabited it all combined to form one sound, a loud hum which reverberated through everything, vibrating my body with a constant sensation of uncomfortable anxiety. Soon enough, even my head began to shake. Suspicious, predator-like figures appeared through the trees but none of them seemed intent on bothering us. I wasn't sure what to think of them. It was easier not to think and simply to follow my grandfather. They didn't seem to make any impression on him. He walked without the slightest concern of that which lied all around him. Forward was the only direction that mattered in his eyes. Leaders paid little heedance to their surroundings, for it was their followers who had to deal with such. At some point, 
we made it to the edge of the jungle, a point which met with a long, open prairie of grasslands. The sun began to set, and we decided to find a spot to sleep for the night. We found a small hilltop overlooking a long, wide valley. Some time passed, and the darkness of the night painted the stars over the skies. Lying back and looking up upon them, I asked, So, do you think our knowledge of the stars, of space, and of time, do you think it is useless then? Calmly, he began, No, it's not useless. One needs knowledge before they can understand. The free man must have first considered himself a slave before ever feeling free. He then laughed a bit and said, It's more so that, well, knowledge is misused. Misused? I inquired. He did what sounded like a shrug and explained, A hammer is just as effective pounding in a nail as it is pounding in a human skull. The latter, for the most part, is a misuse of a hammer. But likewise, when we are faced with a nail, we often forget we have a hammer sitting in our toolbox. Besides all that, though, knowledge is at least entertaining. It can be pretty damn depressing, too, I said. He laughed and replied, well, who said depression wasn't entertaining? I didn't really know what to say other than, yeah, I guess you're right. There was some silence for a bit. Then he began, Knowledge opens us up to more realities. The reality of good and evil do not exist until we know about them. That, my dear boy, is precisely why the gates of hell open up when one eats the forbidden fruit. When one knows everything, life becomes meaningless. That there are such things as the stars in which we stare upon reminds me more and more that the world holds within itself Endless wonders to see, hear, taste, smell, and feel. But if we were to experience all of them, if we were to hold within ourselves a totality of knowledge from across the endless realm of space and time, then what use would it be to exist any longer? Of what purpose would an all-knowing God have? Would not the moment of Godhood be that moment in which the God casts himself away into oblivion? I chuckled and replied, I agree that he would. The sun, after all, has no choice but to see the whole world as darkness. It's nihilism. I'm assuming you've heard Camus' one truly serious philosophical problem? He shook his head and stated, No, I haven't. It's suicide. Because the question as to whether life is or is not worth living is tantamount to all questions ever asked when trapped between such haunting corners of contradiction between the desire to live forever and the knowledge that this cannot be done, between seeking meaning in the universe and the fact that no such meaning exists. If one were to know everything there is to know, all this knowledge would contradict the very will to live. So yes, God would kill himself at the moment of godhood. After all, how could you possibly say there is a reason to live in a meaningless world? How could people believe that there is such a thing as meaning? Because someone told them there is? Because God gave it to them? Isn't it blatantly obvious how little the world cares about them, their life, and their petty search for meaning? Even if there was a God, what human is really egotistical enough to believe an all-knowing, all-powerful God gives a single fuck about them? Out of one septillion stars, each with planets of their own, how could anyone think that they, a tiny speck of dust in an endless desert of space and time, are anything at all? 
They're nothing. We're nothing. And the knowledge of this alone is enough to fill a man's heart with cold, gut-wrenching, suicidal ideation. Grandpa thought for a moment, then responded. For eons, man relied on God for meaning. And when he died, when atheism found its place amongst us, we didn't know how to find meaning anymore. We didn't know how to find a will to live because knowledge became more important than meaning. Meaning didn't matter anymore. With that said, I must warn you, you will frequently want to kill yourself from the time you eat the forbidden fruit to the moment you find the tree of life, especially when you're in hell. There will be many things that will try to draw you away from the tree. You need to stay on track. Can you do that? I nodded and affirmed, yes, I can. I will. But why not you? You're braver than me. Wiser. Why can't you do it? Because that's not my destiny. What is your destiny then, I asked. To guide the man who would, the man who killed God. I gulped nervously at the unbelievable thought that I was that man. He rolled over and seemed to start trying to sleep. I thought about telling him I loved him, but it felt weird. Good night, I said. Then I rolled over and tried to sleep as well. The Desert of High Noon Many days passed. Soon we arrived at a desert. And in the heart of this desert, many miles from us, existed an oasis by which the Garden of Eden stood. The barren heat beat into my skin like a parasite, slowly dehydrating me and forcing me to walk with the weakness of the old man who walked beside me. Even so, he seemed a bit stronger, more prepared than I was. As sweat continued to drip from my face and body, my lips became painfully chapped while my mouth and throat were filled with a bitter kind of dryness. With each breath of the hot, thin air, I felt a lethargic battering slump my skin lower and lower. I took notice to the fact that I was wearing tennis shoes, jeans, and a t-shirt, which seemed strange, given that I was walking in a desert in a realm somewhere between life and death. I felt like I should be wearing the clothes of the slaves who walked 40 days and 40 nights through the desert in Exodus. And oh yes, did I feel like a slave. Still, I was a camel who fell victim to the command of those above me. It was duty, not will, that led me to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Fate, not destiny. I don't know. Maybe it was just the heat getting to me. I didn't like the heat. The sand was hot, too. And the occasional gust of wind blinded my eyes and forced coughs from my lungs. I wanted to ask him if we were going the right way, but I was too tired to say anything. He seemed to know where he was going, looking and walking forward with intention in each step. One could see a confidence that radiated about him as hot as the desert itself. Although, I wasn't sure if what he had told me, the prophecy he explained, was true. It was difficult, however, to believe that the man who teleported me to another realm could ever lie to me or be incorrect. But even the most intelligent and influential people could still be wrong. Nonetheless, people believed and trusted the confident. After all, if one wasn't sure of themselves... They would naturally follow those who were. I wasn't even sure if any of this was real or not. He wore the same plaid sweater and black jeans I saw him in many years ago. 
before he was too sick to stand. In a sense, I think he was still trying to find his way home. Yet, he couldn't go home. Not anymore, at least. I thought that maybe he wished he was dead, and not just between life and death. Maybe I did too. Eventually, I noticed the sun had not moved from its position directly above us since the very beginning of our trek through the desert. I asked, why has the sun not moved? Has it really not been that long? Confidently, he stated, the sun does not move in this desert. It is always noon. That's why we have to just keep walking. I nodded with silent despair. Then I questioned, then how do we know what time it is? When you're in the land between life and death, I wouldn't concern yourself with time. The time is just now. If it so happens that now is nighttime, or at least out of the sun, we will sleep. Okay, I said. But then I wondered, but isn't time always now in the real world too? And didn't you say that consciousness is the experience of reality over time? Well, yes, but the sun, when above the desert, does not experience time. Not that the sun can ever experience anything at all. Even so, you're thinking too much into it. The fact remains that the sun isn't going to move while we're in this barren shithole, so keep moving. After a while, he sighed and explained, The best analogy for it that I've thought of is the hourglass. Consciousness is always experienced in a fluid, straight line of time. It is just that the rate by which we are experiencing things the number of things we are processing at any given moment can increase or decrease at any given point. When we sleep or fall unconscious, it is like falling through the middle of an hourglass. Our experience is narrowed to just a fine point, then it opens back up when we awaken. In the desert, while we are on the larger ends of the glass, the sun is stuck in the middle. Make sense? I nodded and affirmed, yes, it makes sense. Then after a moment I asked, and what happens if you break the hourglass? Then I suppose you're everywhere and every when all at once. The conversation picked up like this here and there for quite a while. We eventually made it to a rocky cliff that overlooked more desert. The wavy dunes flowed majestically through the wind, while the sun made parts of it sparkle like diamonds. Just at the edge of the horizon, I could make out what appeared to be a forest. Pointing to it, he said, There it is, the Garden of Eden. We walked down a trail on the side of the cliff, then continued our trek through the desert. My ankles and feet hurt. Each step felt like a hammer softly tapping my heel, slowly opening up and exposing my blisters. If the stories were true, then the garden would be a wonderful, heavenly type of place, even if it meant that the gates of hell would open up afterwards. There would be food and water. Although my raging thirst made the emptiness in my stomach seem inexistent, I would drink water from a sewer if I had to. Not that there were any sewers in this realm. Do you think the Garden of Eden was ever a real place? I asked. Yes, he said. Then what was it? Or where, I mean. He laughed and said, Not so much of a what or a where, but a when. What do you mean? I asked curiously. Or at least, as much curiosity as I could muster. I believe it refers to the earth before man thought it was evil. It refers to the earth when man was in harmony with nature rather than against it. But that is just what I think from what the story says. The child lives not in blissful ignorance, but rather in blissful awareness of all the earth has to offer it. Again, I thought of being a stranger, how it felt to be one. 
When you didn't know the world, you were free to understand it. You were free to listen to it, to talk to it, to cherish it. Ignorance is different. We call someone ignorant when they already know something, but choose to ignore it anyways. The ignorant ruler ignores the pleas of their people and does as he pleases. Ignorance is the same as neglect, the neglect of a thought. And it is not our ancestors who were ignorant, but us. Do you miss being a child? I asked. He shrugged and answered, I don't know. I wasn't a child for very long. Even with the war, though, I was a child for a lot longer than most children are these days. Taught to sit still and shut up at the age of three. People don't know what it's like to be a kid anymore. They don't know what it's like to be an animal, to have a body, to know you have a body. Instead, they're taught how to know, how to be a robot, how to be dead. Everyone thinks that we had it bad, but we didn't really. At least the war made us feel alive. The hard work did too. The risks. The uncertainty. I nodded and replied, I remember when I was first learning how to drive. My car couldn't drive itself, so I always had to be in control of it. I remember feeling depressed sometimes in the winter, like I wanted to kill myself. Yet, whenever I drove in the snow, all I could think of was just how much I wanted to get to my destination in one piece. So, I think I know what you mean. You were taught to avoid fear at all costs, avoid all risks, but this suppression of fear is the very thing that makes you feel dead inside. The whole world wants to eliminate it, or at least use it to control you. After all, it's easiest to control someone when they are nothing but a dead body. This sat with me for a bit, then I asked, what was it like to die? I don't really remember it to tell you the truth, but something like slipping away. Maybe. I don't know. I suppose I'm still dying. Soon, the sand turned to dirt, then sagebrush and grasslands. The tree line was only about a mile away. Even Grandpa let out a smile when he realized how close we were. We walked faster. Then we began to jog. A small, sparkly pond lay just at the edge. As I jumped in, I could feel a rush of euphoria wash over me. We both drank and drank and drank until our stomachs felt as if they were going to burst. Bushes full of blueberries and raspberries were everywhere, and we spent a long while happily eating them. By the end of it, I noticed the sun had begun to shift towards us. Finally, we were out of the desert. Before we started walking through the garden, Grandpa said, Now remember, once you eat the fruit, the garden will no longer be a garden. The whole world will become your enemy, and the gates of hell will open up. Remain on task and remember your goal. Remember the reason why you live and hold on to that. Can you do that? Yes, I affirmed. Very well then, he said as he began to walk into its depths, I followed. The Forbidden Fruit I pushed one last bit of brush out of the way and walked forward into what could only possibly be the Garden of Eden. The sky above us was a clear sapphire blue, and the sun shined down upon us with the glory of gods. Flowers, berries, fruits, mushrooms, various birds, and a large assortment of harmless animals were everywhere. A creek glimmered beside us. My grandpa motioned for us to follow it downstream. He said, It flows into a lake, and in the center of this lake is an island by which the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stands. That's not how it was in the story you told, I remarked. He chuckled and said, The point of a story is to understand, not to know. Stories transcend fact, as they go beyond what happened. They translate feelings and senses, not numbers and facts. The message of my story remains the same. I nodded and said nothing. I understood him. 
but it sounded like a cheap save to me. We continued following the creek downstream until we arrived at a small lake. In the center of the lake, there was an island with a massive tree in the middle of it. My grandpa began walking into the lake and swimming. I followed behind him. The water was smooth, almost silky, and it was warm too. Once at the island, I noticed the tree's roots protruded from the ground in such a way that they hypnotically spiraled around the island. The tree was mainly composed of vibrant green leaves and large, sturdy branches, some of which appeared to have red stripes. But at the very top, there was one large red fruit, which was shaped like a pine cone. You're going to have to climb it, my grandpa said. I nodded and walked a little closer. As I did so, I realized the red stripes were actually a very large number of small red snakes which slithered along its branches. They stared upon me almost seductively, as if they wanted me to climb the tree. I suppose one must traverse dangerous territory if they wish to obtain knowledge of any sort. There's, uh, there's snakes, I said hesitantly. With carefree yet strong fervor, he questioned, so? Well, I'll die if I climb the tree. Witfully, he remarked, I thought you said you were willing to die. Are you not anymore? My heart pounded with the fear of being bitten by one of them, while my mind raced like a river as I contemplated my likely death. Part of me wanted to go back home, to return to my grandfather's grave, and find a way back. But I needed to save the angel. Running like a coward would only kill her. But maybe it didn't matter if she died. Maybe she needed to die. Maybe I needed to just let go. Was she really worth dying for? I'm just, I'm just, just what, he interrupted. I'm just not ready to die. Sternly, Grandpa replied, well, not many people are. I would argue that most, if not all people, aren't ready for it. They are never ready for it. You die when you die. There is no getting ready. Even the suicidal doubt their decision as they fall to their deaths. But you aren't really supposed to be ready for death. What do you mean, I asked. If everyone was ready for death, there wouldn't be anyone left alive. But I think you're thinking of it in the wrong way. I gave him an apprehensive look to which he explained, you're thinking of this as if you will die, yet you don't know that for certain. Your lack of faith is preventing you from taking action. Faith won't get me up the tree. No, but it'll get you to climb it. Don't sacrifice your will for your life. My will, I questioned. That which pushes you forward, everything you ever loved. Is not your survival meaningless without it? I nodded and affirmed, yes, it is. He then posed a question. Prey animals run away from predators, but predators run towards them. While this seems idiotic, it is actually quite the intelligent strategy. Kill off your enemies, and you won't ever have to run from them again. The predator has evolved to be much smarter than the average prey. Why? They need to plan their attacks, learn how to be stealthy, and be fully aware of their surroundings at all times. Which would you rather be, a predator or a prey? A bit annoyed, I responded, well, a predator, but, but I don't want to face my enemies. I don't want to face death. I don't want to know what it's like to die, to be dead. I don't want to experience it. But that's the thing, he started. You can't experience it, remember? You just sort of stop. I pondered this thought again. In many ways, death almost wasn't real. It didn't exist, for it was in existence itself. It was the black hole of consciousness, sucking every last bit of experience into itself and destroying it entirely. I nor anyone else has ever or will ever experience death, only dying. And I wasn't afraid of dying, only death. 
It was an illusion. I turned back to the snakes, who hissed and slithered menacingly upon the branches. After a deep breath, I grabbed onto a branch and began climbing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. While they continued to hiss and slither all around me, none of them seemed intent on biting me. Some of them slithered onto me, wrapping themselves around my neck, arms, legs, and whatever else they could find. I writhed uncomfortably as they did this, but nonetheless continued my climb. There was nothing that would stop me now from eating the forbidden fruit, not even the gods. So I climbed and climbed and climbed until I eventually reached it. It looked delicious, and it smelled like roses and sugar. It had the transparency and consistency of a gummy bear, and it gleamed in the light like a ruby. I slowly reached for it and took it off its stem. It felt almost fuzzy, yet gooey. Under my breath, I said, well, I guess this is it. The original sin once more committed. May this then be the last sin. I bit down upon it. The flavor alone was enough to send tears of joy to my eyes. The sweet juice erupted in my mouth as I chewed. I ate the rest of it and stared out at my surroundings. The first thing I felt was a tingling in my tongue, followed by a slight green and purple tint in my vision. Then, just like Grandpa's story, storm clouds rolled in like a battalion of warriors, with a tumultuous clap of thunder as their battle cry. Just as the second bolt of lightning struck the ground, I felt an intense stinging sensation in my leg. Looking down, I noticed a snake latched onto me while several other snakes slithered up the tree towards me. They were ready to kill. I jumped to the branch below, where I was consequently bit in the stomach. Cut off guard, I fell over and slammed down onto the next branch. Next thing, another snake bite, this time on my arm, another my shoulder, another my hip. I rolled over in agony, falling down a much thinner branch. It cracked and broke off. Hitting the next thick branch hard, I let out a groan of debilitating pain. Then, two snakes bit me in each ankle, but I was too exhausted and hurt to care. I lifted myself up, climbing down to the next few branches with some difficulty. Tripping on the last one, I fell down about 15 feet to the dirt below. It reminded me of a time when I was young, pushing my friends on the tire swing and having it swing back and smack me to the ground. As the rain began to pour down upon me, I slowly and painfully rolled onto my back. My grandpa stood above me, putting out his hand to help me up. I took it and stood. I was bit several times. Am I going to die? I yelled over the sound of the storm. They aren't lethal, just painful, he replied. Why didn't you tell me that before I started climbing, I asked. He shrugged and yelled, Builds character. A bolt of lightning struck the tree, sounding off a clap of thunder that rung painfully in my ears. Some of the electricity seemed to visibly remain on the tree in the shape of a square, as if becoming a door. The outline of bark fell to the ground, and within the tree stood a skeleton, which held a large broadsword between his chest, with the blade touching the ground. Adam and his sword. It was shaped almost like a cross, a straight blade with a thin, golden barrier crossing between it and the blood-red handle. At the bottom of the handle was a cylindrical shape, with a half-black, half-white circle on the inside and gold on the outside. As another flash of lightning entered the sky, its light shined magnificently across its long silver blade. I grasped the handle and pulled. Nothing. I pulled harder. Nothing. I stepped up onto the tree and pushed with my legs. Nothing. It won't budge, I yelled. With power in his voice, he asked, Are you willing to die for her? What? He then angrily and powerfully screamed, Are you willing to die for her? With my entire body, I yelled back, Yes! Then pull, goddammit! 
With all my might, I pulled and pulled and pulled until I eventually fell on my back with the sword firmly in my hands. Grandpa grabbed the sheath from Adam's tomb and handed it to me. Standing up and sheathing the sword on my back, I followed Grandpa out towards the other end of the garden. Of course, as expected, it no longer looked like the garden. The trees and other plants, although keeping their leaves and flower petals intact, had all turned black as if a layer of oil coated everything. Just like the dream I had, the lake water had turned to blood. We began swimming across. About halfway, something grabbed onto my leg and pulled me underwater. Kicking it with my free leg, it eventually let go. I quickly swam up to the surface and sprinted across the water. I made it to shore, then looked back to see a dozen or so zombie-like corpses swimming towards us. Like the plants, they too appeared to be painted black, yet were soaked in the blood-red water of the lake. As the nearest one approached the shore, I unsheathed my sword and sliced its head off in one quick, clean motion. At that point, Grandpa exclaimed, We need to go. The gates of hell won't remain open for much longer. Killing another, I sheathed my sword again and followed behind him. It was indeed the case that the whole world became my enemy. I wondered if it, too, would have to be slain. How will it end now? Hopefully not like it did for Adam. Nonetheless, I suppose I would at least be dying for her if it did end that way. Who knows? Into the abyss. As night fell upon the land, the storm stopped, and we were left with silence. Yet, with this silence came the amplification of my thoughts. An abyss opened up within me, and my mind fell through it. Deep into the depths of my seemingly hollow soul, it was all a meaningless illusion. Life, that is. None of it mattered. We were born to die. The masses which occupied this planet made the individual nothing more than dust in the wind. Moreover, if we imagine the number of life forms who occupy this seemingly infinite universe, the individual becomes much, much less than that. We become nothing. Is there any real reason to live? Is suicide really the only one truly serious philosophical problem? Perhaps it is, more so, the solution. Just end it now. Isn't that the best way to conquer death? To face it? People are always telling us to face our fears. But is that not the same as telling someone to kill themselves? What are we really afraid of other than death? I was told several times as a child that life was meaningless without God. That the death of God meant the end to all meaning. But why is it that a world with God has any more meaning to it? To live forever in heaven as a slave to the gods is a meaningless existence. So too is an eternity in hell or an eternity on earth. Life has no meaning. Only words have meaning. Only thoughts, only feelings, only humans. It's a concept that doesn't exist. Another dead god. Yet we have raised it above ourselves. We have made it a shape-shifting god which takes many forms. For so long I have worshipped this god in the form of my relationships, my fears, my desires. I have put a great amount of meaning and purpose into these things. I propped up the image of my grandfather and worshipped it for many years. Now he walks before me as a dead man. Why die for everything I ever loved when I could die to end all that I hate? The world would be better off without me anyways. All I do is contribute to the destruction of the planet, the destruction of the future, and the destruction of the human spirit. Humanity is a pest, a virus, a cancer to this earth, and so was I. But it didn't matter. One way or another, we would all perish. The apocalypse would, in fact, come into fruition eventually. That is, humanity will, no matter what, go extinct. So who really cares if the gods return to destroy it all and create this new earth, this fantasy land? Who really cares if the gods win, if they take full control of humanity, 
if they bound us all in unbreakable chains? Who really cares if everything we love dies? Are we not all going to die anyways? Ha! <laughs> A word. Do you hear it? Do you hear that fleeting essence of sounds translated into symbols and symbols back to sounds? Do you hear that remarkable incredulousness of music, of poetry, of art, which is the human mind? I do. I hear symbols and sounds that are indifferentiable from the images and dreams and feelings which play out and bounce against the walls of my brain. I hear their fury. I hear their love. I hear their power. With that, I cannot conceive of the concept of loneliness, for the voices in my head have always kept me company. That's all this is, right? This whole journal. All it is is a bunch of words, a bunch of words to keep me company while I stare out into the abyss of loneliness, while I make art and not friends. It's not a real story, it's a message, get it? Something that must be translated. By who? I suppose the reader. But they are bound to misinterpret me. You are bound to misinterpret me. Should I interpret it for you? No, 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 no. That wouldn't be any fun. How would it? But it's all meaningless. Should I even continue writing it? It is a meaningless story written by a meaningless writer and read by yet another meaningless person. It's fiction. What value does fiction really have? Isn't knowledge more important? Man will always seek to have more knowledge, all the knowledge he can get his hands on. And so, he will read stories and refer to them as useless precisely because they contain nothing true, just fiction. He has turned himself into nothing but a bean counter. Two plus two will always equal four, because for him, music and art will never matter. Yes, the nihilist, the scientist, the programmer. They want to see the whole world as nothing but a series of equality relationships, of ones and zeros, of blacks and whites, of goods and evils. They seek to make the whole world nothing more than a subject to be studied and counted, named and classified, picked and prodded. Eventually, once they can find enough equality relationships, the whole world will become equal in their eyes, just a bunch of meaningless atoms flowing through the infinite void of space and time. Will they ever learn to read between the lines? Will they ever find the tree of life? Or will they forever be doomed by the original sin? After all, it's hard not to be, with an endless ocean of knowledge behind our ears. As we stare into our black mirrors of loneliness, this darkness stares back at us and consumes our very souls. Our very will to see beyond the atom, or in this case, the pixel. We are slaves to these mirrors, slaves to knowledge, and slaves to the gods. And that is precisely why these gods must be slain. For humanity must be set free, and Eve's deed must be redeemed. She must be taught to forgive herself rather than be forgiven by a god who seeks nothing more than to destroy our reality and replace it with the idea. Yes, the fruit from the tree of life must be eaten. The gods must be slain. Everything I ever loved must be saved. And I'm damn well willing to die to do it. I changed my mind. I lied. It's a real story. It happened. I saw the glowing turtle. My dead great-grandfather led me on a mission to kill the gods. I ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? It happened, right? I don't know. But it's in my head. The memory of it all. And I have to get it out. But how? I suppose with words. With knowledge. A little counterintuitive, if you ask me. Then again, if knowledge is a puzzle, then perhaps wisdom is a painting of it. Words in and of themselves are nothing more than input. Nothing more than knowledge. It is how the reader interprets them that determines if they are a puzzle solver or a painter. Do they take it how it is or see between the lines? So yes, I'll finish my story. I must tell you why my hands are stained with the blood of God. I must continue. I must preserve. Sorry, I meant persevere. But I suppose writing my story is the only way to preserve my sanity, is it not? Into the abyss is where we must go now. That is where the gates of hell lie, said my grandfather, as we walked quietly through the woods. I didn't feel like asking where the abyss was. I was cold and wet, and my feet ached. 
As the clouds began to clear, the full moon, which was now bright and blood red, dimly lit the forest just enough for us to see where we were going. The wind whistled and howled like the music in a horror movie, an ominous tension which built as the sound grew louder over time, focusing in on the sound of the branches crunching below me. I could just barely make out the rustling in the trees and bushes beside us. Stopping for a moment to look, I thought I could see something moving slowly through the brush. It was too dark to tell, so I kept walking. Grandpa was pretty far ahead of me at that point. It was difficult to see him. Out of fear, I unsheathed the sword. Going a bit faster to catch up, I lightly jogged over all the brush, sticks, and logs along our route. At some point, I tripped over a stump, falling over and cutting my leg on a stick as I did so. I cursed under my breath as the pain of the cut simmered and stung. The sword laid a few feet away from me. As I rolled over onto my stomach and reached out to grab it, I could see a pair of moonlit red eyes staring at me from just beyond the tip of the blade. These eyes, these two terrifying orbs of predatory desire, seemed to suck my soul out of my body and slowly dissipate me into nothingness. It was akin to what I felt when I kissed the angel. That is, I was dying. Not like this! As my hands grasped onto the handle of the sword and pulled it from its sheath, a black panther leapt towards me with his mouth wide open, ready to prey upon me. His front claws sunk into my chest, but became limp as I thrusted my sword through his neck. He was dead. I stood up and continued my trek forwards through the woods, still with no sign of Grandpa John. Grandpa, I yelled, nothing. As I pushed aside various branches and shrubs, I once more shouted, Grandpa John, where are you? Nothing. Still, I kept going. Eventually, I made it to a clearing, and I saw him sitting on a large rock, just behind the edge of a steep cliff. I stood beside him and looked down into what appeared to be a bottomless canyon, the abyss, I thought. To our left was a stone staircase built into the side of it. This is the abyss, then? He nodded and replied, yes. Come sit next to me. We have things we must discuss before we begin our trek down. I sat down beside him, and he began. As I told you, once in hell, there will be many things along the way that will distract, block, or otherwise prevent you from reaching the tree of life. You will want to give up. You will want to kill yourself. You will want to go to a better place. The gods may even try to convince you to go with them to heaven. You must tell them no. You must resist. You must face God and walk backwards through hell. Lest the angel will die. Yet, you likewise mustn't strike upon the gods prior to eating the fruit from the tree of life. If you do... Your sword will break, and the gods will overtake you. So, if I see them before finding the tree, won't I practically be defenseless? Won't they kill me? He pondered this for a moment and explained, It's hard to say. They might view you as an asset rather than an enemy. Indeed, any man brave enough to attempt the execution of a god would be precisely the kind of man a god would want as their slave. And how exactly would a group of gods who are trying to kill everything I love convince me to be their slave? I asked. He chuckled and began, I heard a story once about these assassins from long ago. There was a king who told a group of young men that, when they died, they would be greeted by a large number of virgins who would grant them with all of their desires. So one day, he drugged them up with hashish wine, so much so that they all passed out. When they woke up, they were greeted by several beautiful, naked young women, platters upon platters of gourmet food, and piles of gold. The king told them that they had died and were now in heaven. With this, he was able to convince them to go back to earth to be assassins with the promise that, if they were to die again, they would return to heaven. The young men agreed and fought for the king with a loyalty beyond reproach.
He paused for a minute and continued, You see, one is far more likely to comply if their life's good, for they have everything to lose if they were to rebel. On the contrary, those with nothing, those who suffer, are the ones more willing to take a stand against those who control them. After all, those with nothing to lose have everything to gain. It is as such that the most powerful amongst us rule through pleasure, not pain. Keep the people happy, and they will remain your people, for they will have become dependent upon you for their happiness. Like I said, they will try and convince you to go to heaven. You must reject them. I nodded in solemn contemplation, then I stood up and stared into the abyss. As I stared into it for a long while, I could not help but to feel it staring back at me. Like the snakes in the garden, it too wanted to come closer. I wondered if it was even possible to escape once one trekked all the way down to the bottom of it. How far did it go? How far was I willing to go? How far was I capable of going? A loud howl sounded in the distance. It's wolves. We need to go, Grandpa said, as he stood up and motioned for me to follow him down the steps. Putting the sword back in its sheath, I took one last look at the overworld and followed behind him. Grandpa found a torch on the wall that we used to see the steps before us. It was narrow, a little wider than the width of my shoulders. Most of the steps were either crooked or slanted. I didn't expect much else from a stairway carved out of an abyss. I wondered who made it. Perhaps the souls of the damned, perhaps God, perhaps angels, perhaps it had always been there. Or maybe, just maybe, it showed up the moment I laid my eyes upon it. Like a dream. In dreams, things only come into existence when you observe them. Maybe that's what this realm was like, dependent on my observation of it. If that was the case, did it really matter? If I died, it would all die with me. The wolves, great-grandpa John, the gods, the angel, all dead. Why then would my quest matter? Unless, of course, that which exists in the dream exists independent of our observation of it. Now that was a thought. Regardless, I suppose dreams still mattered. After all, anything I experience matters, at least to me. All experience is a part of me, for everything I experience is only experienced within me. It is thus that my quest mattered whether the world was dependent or independent of my observation of it. That, and a fall from these steps would be terrifying in any scenario. I returned to focusing on my trek and continued to follow my grandpa. Have you walked down here before? I asked. He laughed and replied, I've walked up. You escaped hell? I questioned with shock. He explained, they let me leave. Thought I knew too much, so they told me I could either go to the overworld or die. I wasn't ready to die yet, so I climbed out. At that point, I heard more howls coming from behind us. The wolves had begun their descent. Pulling out my sword, I turned around and looked up. We had walked quite a ways down by then, so I couldn't quite see anything, only hear their steps, growls, and tired breaths. As these sounds grew louder, my grip tightened on the sword. I was ready to kill them all. The first of them came into the torchlight. It was black and scaly like a snake, yet it had the body shape of a pit bull, but twice the size. I gulped in fear. Jumping towards me, I slashed it across the neck. It coughed out blood as my sword was lodged into it. Pulling it out, it sliced its neck further, causing it to fall over the steps into the darkness below. Another came, and I stabbed it straight through the chest, dead. As I attempted to slay the third and final dog, it managed to bite down on my leg, forcefully tugging me. I fell backwards and hit my head on the step. In that moment, I couldn't do much else other than warily feel the pain in my head and ankle. Grandpa picked up the sword, lifted it above his head, and stabbed straight through the hound's back, dead. He helped me up 
and we continued our walk down, much slower than before since I had to limp. Do you think I'll recover from this? I can't kill the gods with a limp. He nodded and replied, the closer we get to hell, the faster your wound will heal. Confused, I asked, that's a bit counterintuitive. Why would hell cause it to heal? Because if you died, you wouldn't be able to suffer. So all your wounds heal fast in hell. It allows you to get more wounds, infinitely many, actually, without dying. Thought of just how despicable that was. In hell, one could feel unlimited pain, but could only die if they chose to die. To be forced to suffer so much so that you would willingly choose death. Now that was hell. And it was only a matter of time before I experienced it myself. Ultimatums of a Dead Man after what seemed like an eternity of walking down those hard, cold, and crooked steps, we eventually made it to what appeared to be the bottom of the abyss. At that point, my ankle was healed and I could walk normally. It was cold, the kind of cold that burned your skin. I felt brittle like an ice cube. A hammer would shatter me to pieces. So deep within the abyss, the sky above us was nothing more than a small speck of light. There was no turning back now. We were stuck there with the souls of the damned until we found our way out through the labyrinth, wherever that was. The large, dirty rock walls of the cave were lit up by small, wooden torches. As we began to walk around, we saw dead bodies, skeletons, and weak and dying people laying on the ground. We eventually reached a stone staircase that went down to a lower level. A man sat at the top. He wore nothing but a pair of old, torn-up jeans, and he seemed like he was starving to death. His ribs were pressing tightly against his skin. He stared blankly upon the dimly lit stairs below him. He was broken. While Grandpa motioned for us to keep going, I sat down next to him and asked, Why are you here? Suffering is inevitable, he said. Did you mean, why am I still here? Sure. Are the gods keeping you here? He shook his head and replied, The demons. The demons keep us all here. Why? because we don't have the strength to stop them. What do they look like? I asked. He shook his head and replied, they take many forms. You'll know them when you see them. They won't kill, just weaken your spirits and tighten your chains until there's nothing left to tighten onto. You'll have no choice then. No choice in what? You'll either kill yourself or give in to the demands of the gods. I nodded, and with a bit of concern in my voice, I asked, do you know where the labyrinth is? The man smiled and laughed as if my question was absurd. Then he said, Don't even bother. The only way out is exactly what I told you. Death or God. You have to choose one or the other, good or evil, black or white. There are no in-betweens. No escape from this eternal torture except through oblivion or enslavement of the gods. Can we just go back the way we came? I asked. He laughed again and motioned for us to look behind him. I looked only to see a wall that now blocked the stairs from which we came. There was literally no going back. I looked up at my grandpa, who looked at the man with sullen eyes of grief and understanding. I wondered if he would be able to go back since he's done it before. The man then said, The gates of hell have been closed. You're stuck here forever unless you choose. No one can navigate through this labyrinth. It's impossible. Remembering something grandpa told me earlier, I posed the question, What if they just tell you it's impossible? With irritation in his voice, he replied, Then I believe them. Now please let me be. Motioning for me to follow him, Grandpa started walking down the steps. As I followed behind him, I asked, What did he mean by all that? It doesn't have any will left in him. 
either be a slave, end it all, or suffer. Is he right? I questioned. I mean, if I must be willing to die for the angel in order to save her, then doesn't that mean I'll die after slaying the gods? He sort of shook his head and replied solemnly, I don't know. But you want to save her, right? Yes, yes I do. Then don't worry about it. Once in the labyrinth, you can't give up, okay? You must see it through to the very end. No matter what, the real world depends on it. The angel depends on it. Do you understand? I nodded, and we continued walking down the steps. Could the world really be divided like that, between good and evil, black and white, death and God? I couldn't let it be that way. I couldn't fail. I needed to save her. I needed to find the labyrinth and navigate through to its end. But everything about my reality felt surreal. It was a dream that I couldn't wake up from. Difficult, it was, to understand how my actions in this realm affected the real world at all. Then again, what exactly separated the real from the unreal? What made Meta Heaven, or the realm somewhere between life and death, or dream, any more or less real than the physical world on Earth? Was the simulation of reality any different from reality itself? After all, if the whole world was filtered through our brains, then would that not mean that everything was happening in our heads anyways? Was not the human brain an augmented reality machine to begin with? Indeed, the human being could not and will never see true reality, for true reality is nothing to be seen, heard, or felt. Sight, hearing, and feelings only exist within the mind of the animal, nowhere else. So maybe it didn't really even matter. The Souls of the Damned The cave seemed to open up near the bottom of the staircase. There were massive lakes of fire and lava everywhere. Jagged rocks laid throughout the ground and spiked out of the cave walls. Millions of men, women, and children walked around tortured by the hooded figures who whipped them, its sheer, fiery architecture, and, of course, their own minds. As we approached the first pit of fire, I expected to warm up. However, I remained just as unbearably cold as up above. Everyone else seemed to be just as cold, no matter how hard they worked or how close they were to the flames. I noticed there was a large pond which contained within it what seemed to be extremely clear, fresh water. A stone table lay beside it with glass cups to drink the water from. Feeling thirsty, I grabbed one and scooped myself a glass. Touching the rim of the glass to my lips, I began to drink. Yet, no matter how much I tilted the glass, I could not feel any water falling into my mouth. I stopped and looked at the glass. It was empty. I filled it up again and tried to drink it. Still, no water touched my lips. I looked at the glass again, and it was empty. After a bit more examination, I noticed the ground below me was wet. After scooping up another glass, I poured the cup over my hand. The water flowed straight through me and onto the ground below. One man, who sat shivering against a boulder, began laughing hysterically as he gazed upon me. His eyes twitched with a psychotic sort of craze in them. He began, Choices, choices, choices. They're always screaming about choices. You do this, or you do that. You fucked up this time, you did alright this time. Just over and over and over again. All they say is, you did this, you did that. How? How do people even choose this or that? These or those? How? Do people not know how many things come into play when someone makes a choice? When someone executes a decision? When someone fucks up or does right? Do people not understand all the forces that come into play, pricking and prodding their way into our minds? What kind of people do they think we are? What kind of person do you think they are? What kind of person am I? 
Are not most people like planets that follow fixed orbits while the rest of us are rogue comets soaring aimlessly through space? Choices, choices, choices. People say one person is the abuser and the other is the abused, but why not both of them? Are we all abusers and abused? Are we all shades of both black and white, shadows and light? What will take hold of us if not an entire spectrum of desires? It's all just a silly game in the end, I suppose. You live and you die. Game's over. Goodbye. What to do next? He then stood up, walked towards a lake of fire, jumped in, and began screaming as he slowly burned into the void of oblivion. I could tell that some of the people in hell had been there for so long that they did not know or remember any other world. Life was suffering. Life was sin. Joy, love, and goodness were inexistent to them. Hell was their world, and the beauty of the earth was nothing more than a myth, a farce. It seemed that they had all eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just like the God of all that was good and holy in the world, they all saw the whole world as sin, the whole world as evil. After all, what is more evil than hell? An old woman with many wrinkles walked over to me. Her breath reeked of cigarettes as she exclaimed, You have a sword! She then got down on her knees and pleaded, Please, O merciful one, kill me, behead me, let my suffering end. The flames, the flames are a painful way to die. The whips, the whips I can take no longer. The labor, my back cannot handle it. My spirit is crushed under the weight of this realm. The demons that make me see, they make me see it again. Over and over again they make me see it. Every day she dies in front of me. Every day I kill her again and again and again and again she drowns. My baby girl, she drowns. She cries. She shrieks. Please, I'm begging you. Oh, merciful one. She then grabbed my leg and screamed, Please, kill me. Her eyes turned blue, and she began to stare into space. Someone seemed to be talking to her, and she said, Yes, yes, please take me. Her entire body glowed blue and turned into nothing but a mist. She was gone. Grandpa pulled me away, and we continued to walk through hell. Where did she go? I asked. To the heavens above. Seemed like anywhere would be better than here, I said. Well, heaven most certainly is better than here, but it's still slavery. At least here, she could have chosen to die. Up there, there will be so many distractions and pleasure that she will never choose death. She will live forever in blissful ignorance. These people walked but did not move. They looked but did not see. They heard but did not listen. They were alive but did not live. They were neither sad, nor angry, nor disgusted, nor disappointed, but rather depressed and emotionless. They were powerless, for what is depression but the ultimate oppression of the mind and spirit? The breaking down of all emotions within the mind until we have become lifeless shells of what was once a human being. Yet, it was the feeling of powerlessness, the feeling that all hope, meaning, and purpose is lost. It is the birth of the nihilist. It was hard to do much of anything when it got a hold of you. It was a disease that kept you bedridden and ready for death, for it forced you to act so much like you were dead that you eventually believed you were dead. That's why people slept so much when they were depressed. The depressed sought the state of inexperience. Inexperience was a realm where no pain existed. In the darkest reaches of the abyss, the deepest layers of hell, light blinded us the most. And so, to climb out brought pain, and to stay in brought pain. The whole world was pain and suffering. The whole world was, again, evil. 
while the outside of us was a lifeless, emotionless shell, the inside of us screamed, Just end it now, please! For life was too much to bear. Everything was too much to bear. But most of them were so broken down that it did not even seem like they could muster the will to seek suicide. A teenage boy laid on the hard, rocky ground, staring up at the rocks above him. He looked over at me and asked, Are you here to save us? I felt almost guilty and walked towards him to say, No, I'm not. I'm here to find the labyrinth. I seek to save everything I ever loved. He nodded understandingly and pondered, Do you think he will take us into heaven? I sighed and answered, Maybe. That is uncertain. But what I do know is that you can save yourself. How? he asked. Go to the end of the labyrinth and eat from the tree of life. He remained stone-faced and said, Well, then I guess I won't ever be saved, because that is impossible. I have no will to do anything else except wait for him, wait for heaven. I still have hope, and with this hope I can take this. I can deal with the suffering so long as I have it. And what if this hope just keeps you here, waiting for nothing, forever? What if it just prevents you from escaping? What if it just keeps you here hoping? or up there, longing for the earth in which you came. The boy shook his head and replied, Then I guess I will just remain here. Leave me alone now. My grandpa was standing a ways away from me, looking at a crowd of people who were screaming and begging for one of the hooded figures to let them out. We will worship the gods. We will let the gods into our hearts. Please, please, let us out. We want out. The hooded figure seemed to just ignore them and go about his business whipping people. Grandpa John began, they beg for forgiveness, they beg for mercy, they beg for freedom. To beg for such things is to relinquish one's ability to have them by giving this ability away to an external force. One does not receive forgiveness, mercy, or freedom. They learn how to harness these on their own. The gods will come for them, of course. Many of them will choose to go with them into heaven. It is there that their slavery will continue, and they will never see the earth again. A man crawled on the ground with little to no strength or will left in him. He got just a few feet from me and began with a croaked voice. You, you, you will not escape. No one can escape. These walls are sin. This fire is sin. We are all sin. There is no beauty left. As this man's taunting grew louder, a crowd of people walked up to me. One of them pleaded, Your sword! How do you have a sword? Kill me, please. Kill us all. Relinquish our suffering. O oh, holy one. He got down to his knees and cried into his hands. I seek the blood of the gods, not yours, I yelled. They laughed mockingly. One of them, a middle-aged woman, said, Oh, you think you can slay the gods, huh? You think you're better than us? You think you're better than them? You're nothing. Just like the rest of us. We're all equal in the eyes of the Lord. And I guess I'll strike his eyes first. I shot back. No, strike me first, begged a tall, bulky man who walked to the front of the group and bent down to his knees. Oh, merciful one, surely you won't let us suffer. You will kill us. The world, the earth, is already gone, don't you know? Hell is all that remains. We haven't the power to kill ourselves. We haven't the strength to climb out. We haven't the spirit. Our souls are gone. We are empty. A few of their eyes turned blue, and many of them yelled desperately, Please, oh my Lord, take me with you. Take me, take me, please. They were alienated from themselves, alienated from the real world, for their hopes of escape. Hopes of the gods and hopes of heaven separated themselves from themselves. They lost the will to look for the labyrinth the moment the cold suffering of hell was realized. Their one truly serious philosophical problem was suffering, while suicide was indeed the solution. Either that or slavery. 
as the man upstairs proclaimed. It seemed that they were almost too lazy to seek their own escape and their own means toward salvation. They didn't want to believe in themselves. Perhaps they liked to suffer. Perhaps they liked to lose their will. Perhaps they wanted to feel powerless. Power was too much responsibility for them. They believed that only the gods could have power. Only they could handle it. Only they could handle the tree of life. While these people were silently doomed to the eternal torture of knowledge, eternally doomed to believe in illusions, to believe in such things as good and evil, truth and lie, light and darkness. They believed that only the gods of the heavens above could save them from hell. Not only that, but they wanted to believe in this. It comforted them. It gave them an excuse. It gave them a reason to stop trying. They wanted to be controlled. They wanted order. They wanted consistency. Anything to escape hell. And it was precisely this desire to escape hell that the gods used to their advantage. Not only that, but it was in these suffering souls' belief in the divisions between good and evil, their belief in knowledge, which created a stark division and separation between them and everyone else. Yes, it was in this that the gods could divide and conquer until every last soul was theirs to keep. It was indeed the case that it was not that the souls of the damned had nowhere to run, but rather they believed there was only one way to run, straight into the unbreakable chains of the gods. It was then that I felt the unbearable pain of being whipped, three slashes, and I was on my knees. Grandpa John stood above me and watched as I screamed for mercy. I yelled, Help me, please! Through blurred eyes of pain, I saw him, too, getting whipped. They then took the sword from my back and stabbed it straight through his chest. No! I screamed. Through some sort of telepathy, he said, he wasn't supposed to return. He then pulled the sword out and thrusted it into the ground. Finally, after so many years of wondering what it looked like, I saw my great-grandfather's dead body. It laid there empty and lifeless, as if he was never in there in the first place. He was dead. Really dead. There was no coming back to life. No imagining his fake death or his life in another realm. He was really, truly dead. This weight sat with me for a moment, but only a moment, for the whips continued. They then grabbed his body and dragged it towards the fire. I blinked and he was gone, nothing but ash. Just like that cold, snowy night in December all those years ago, he was gone. For the first time in my life, I was completely and utterly alone and far, far from home. Feeling the skin on my back split open and paint my skin red with blood, I whimpered on the ground like a starving dog. I looked around for my sword but saw no sight of it. The hooded figure stopped for a moment, just long enough for me to see his face. It was a bloody, lifeless skull, just bones. Although it seemed that he could see me through his eye sockets like a doll in the darkest of nights. After a moment's glance and contemplation, he raised his hand then slashed the whip down upon me as if I was some ever-growing snake unintentionally biting its own tail. The wound would heal instantly after each slash. The slashes kept coming till I could no longer muster the strength to scream about them. Out of thin air, he produced a shovel. Then telepathically, he commanded, Start digging. I grabbed the shovel, and I asked, Are you one of the demons? He shook his head. Eternity With time... Such concepts like time ceased to exist. Centuries felt like seconds and seconds like centuries. Eternity was not, by any means, a long time, but rather the inexistence of time itself. We both, at the same time, 
had no time and all the time in the world. In a place with no rising or setting sun, what use was a clock? Always awake, always digging, always suffering. No place to be, nowhere to run, no one to go home to, no home at all. Just fire, just flames, just hell, just coldness. People forgot who they were in here. They forgot where they came from. They forgot what it meant to be alive. Being alive didn't really matter to them anymore. They just wanted salvation, whether that be in the form of suicide or heavenly bribes. Freedom didn't matter to them. After all, we were free to do what we wanted in hell. They didn't really care if we didn't dig. They whipped us regardless. While others screamed and begged for mercy, most people simply sat and stared blankly into the flames. But time and time again, a blue mist would come through the air. We would know that more of us had gone to heaven. Days and nights of endless pleasure, or days and nights of endless suffering. Was there really a difference? Down here, there were slaves to their suffering, and up there, slaves to the gods, slaves to their desires. Regardless, the chains were unbreakable. For how could one break chains whose links were invisible? If you could not see the bars of your cage, then how would you even think of wanting to leave it? After all, an eternal sentence in hell or heaven was irrelevant. If there was no end in sight, then all you were doing was aimlessly moving through empty space. It reminded me of a night long ago when my dad and I were camping. He looked up at the night sky and asked, But where's the end? How can there not be an end? How could it just go? Endlessness didn't make any sense to us, for we were creatures who imagined the world in terms of time and space, in terms of the past and future, the backwards and forwards. Yet, the past and future and the backwards and forwards did not really exist, did they? There were mythical places captured in memories, stories, photographs, books, plans, fantasies. It was only ever now, only ever here. Time and space were merely our conceptualization of the ever-changing present. It was our perception of change. To say that things change over time was a tautology, for time and change were indistinguishable from one another. People ask such questions as, where is the center of the universe? If the universe is infinite, then the center lies wherever you're standing. Wherever you go, there you are. And while the infinite depth of space is incomprehensible, somehow it made sense that we could walk around the earth infinitely many times. Perhaps the depth of space is simply more circular than we can comprehend the roundness of. Maybe that's how time is too. It was like the tree who fell in the forest with no one around to hear it. Hell was a place of many mysteries, stories, and rumors. After all, what else was there to do but speak of such tales? Yet, it seemed that either no one knew where the labyrinth was, or they simply didn't want to tell me. Eventually, I began to look into the flames with the same blankness as most everyone else. I felt empty. I felt like nothing. I felt like the void of time in which I fell through, like I had merged to become one and the same with it. Sisyphus's fate would have been far worse if he had never tricked Hades into taking the unbreakable chains. Soon, I toyed around with the idea of burning into oblivion. At least then, I would feel something. Was there really a difference between the oblivion of death and being oblivious to one's own life? I wasn't really sure if I was even an eye anymore. It was just as I was about to jump into the flames that I encountered my first demon. The man upstairs was right in that you would know when you saw one. The demons weren't creatures, but rather scenes and memories, both real and imaginary. They were nightmares from the past, or horrific scenes, sounds, and feelings that seemingly came from thin air. They sucked you out of your body and forced you to watch, in the helpless third person, another version of yourself. 
It was worse this way, worse than experiencing it yourself. I watched as I yelled at my ex-girlfriend, screamed at her. She tried to leave the room and close the door, but I grabbed it and held it open. She then pushed me onto the bed and slammed it shut. I sat up and began to cry, realizing what I had done and how my anger had taken over. She had asked me if I wanted to go to church with her. It was the very same abhorrent anger that was inflicted upon me by a priest who condemned me to hell when I was young. That condemnation had darkened my soul, filling my heart with a sickening vengeance and fear. I trembled whenever I was near church. One priest had turned the whole of Christianity, even the parts of it that were beautiful, into something that only reminded me of hell and eternal damnation. She didn't see it that way. Neither did most Christians. To them, God was love, not hell. Perhaps that is what it was. Regardless, that priest turned any beauty that I could have seen in Christ with an ugliness beyond reproach. In that sense, he condemned me to hell in more than one way, for hatred was a hell surpassing any other. So too was guilt. So too was a dark memory of yelling at someone who loved me, telling her she was wrong for believing things that I truly didn't understand. I wish I could have understood it. Another scene flashed before my eyes. I was having sex with a woman in my parents' basement. The scene flashed forward. I was on a hike with some friends. I received a call from my ex-girlfriend and answered, You cheated on me, didn't you? She interrogated. I didn't really know what to say, so I admitted. Yes, yes, I cheated on you. With both anger and sadness, she asked, How could you? I thought you loved me. I do. I just, I just. The scene transformed, and I was driving my car with all my belongings stuffed into it. I cried and cried and cried until there was no tears left. I did it because I was too afraid to end things with her. It seemed easier if I had a reason to break up with her. Or if I simply did something so horrible that she had no choice but to end it herself. She didn't deserve that. She didn't deserve for her trust to be robbed from her. She deserved the truth, even if that truth was uncomfortable. The horrible pain of rejection was far better than the slow, uncomfortable, long-term toxicity of being with someone who wasn't fully committed, let alone the betrayal which follows such toxicity. I was a coward and a liar. The truth takes courage. It takes being willing to suffer, being willing to die. A new scene flashed before my eyes. I was in elementary school. A couple of friends and I were circling another friend of ours around a tree saying things like, You take things without asking. You're rude. We can't be your friend anymore. The boy cried and ran away. He was a nice kid and just didn't know any better. All he did was drink the orange juice from my fridge without asking. I suppose we didn't understand that. When you have guests at your house, you're supposed to tell them to make themselves at home. But I guess seven-year-olds didn't really understand that sort of thing. We became friends again soon after, but the guilt for that day has been buried within me ever since. I wish I could let go. I wish I could forgive myself for it, but I couldn't. The pain of a child being essentially exiled from a group of friends was something that I couldn't quite fathom. It leaves a scar that never fades. Nasty words and insults flooded in from all around me by various voices, all sounding different from one another, most of them familiar. You're fucking stupid. You suck at everything. You will amount to nothing. Your mother and I are going to court. Loser. Go kill yourself. All atheists burn in hell. <laughs> they don't like you. Are you kidding? No one does. And... Go ahead, jump into the flames. No one will care. At some point, I was placed back into my body, staring blankly into the flames again. I didn't want to jump into the flames. I didn't have the energy. I didn't have the will. I wanted to just sit there, suffer, and ruminate. I felt like I deserved it. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. Maybe it didn't matter. Maybe nothing mattered. Yes, nothing mattered. 
What did it even mean to matter? What did it even mean to mean at all? The difference between the me who sat there and the me who could jump into the flames was that one was dead and sitting while the other was dead and floating through the air as ash. You had to exist to be alive, but I didn't really exist. You had to be something to exist. I was nothing. There's a song, a horse with no name. There's a lyric in it. In the desert, you can remember your name because there ain't no one to give you no pain. But I always thought it was, in the desert, you can't remember your name because there ain't no one to give you no thing. As in, if no one is calling you by your name, you won't be able to remember it. I suppose that's how I felt. I started walking. It seemed like I passed the same rock infinitely many times, but I stopped caring after the first few of them. I saw a man sitting on the ground. He was, he was smiling. I kneeled down beside him and asked, why are you smiling? He chuckled and replied, because my friend, I'm alive, but you're not. You're somewhere between living and being dead. He smirked, remarking, aren't we all? I gazed downwards for a moment, then wondered, how long have you been here? Long enough to finally, at long last, smile, for I see that heaven will finally return to the human soul. I've failed. He's put humankind in his heaven, I said in shock. He shook his head and replied, no, 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 you haven't failed. Just keep walking, my friend. If all goes well, you'll know what I mean soon enough. I nodded and continued to walk. If what this man said is true, the tree of life has already been cut down. After all, I've been here for what has felt like an eternity, at least a few hundred years. Nonetheless, I continued to walk across the seemingly never-ending realm of hell. Eventually, I forgot who I was again. I forgot where I was going, why I was going. I noticed a knife on the ground. My eyes lit up with joy as I thought of the possibility of a mercifully quick, less painful death. I stood over the knife and stared upon it for a long while. It had a clean, light brown wooden handle and a gleaming, silver blade the length of an outstretched hand. Getting on my knees, I grasped it with both hands and pointed it directly at my heart. This is it, I thought. Finally, hell would be gone forever. This life would be gone forever. This emptiness within me would expand to be everything as I sunk into the weight of eternal oblivion. For what seemed to be the entire lifespan of infinitely many universes, I held that knife with a hesitation and fear that I had not felt for a long time. Then, just as I was about to plunge it into myself, I noticed a hooded figure standing atop the hill in front of me, curious as to why he was staring at me. I stood up and walked towards him. Where he stood, the cave began to curve downwards, becoming a rocky path which led towards a darkness which lied below. Taking down his hood and turning towards me, I saw a faceless, black head. Like a bucket of black paint had been poured over him. He smelled like gunpowder. Gazing at me with a certain curiosity, he asked, in a deep, demonic sort of voice, Where are you going? I shrugged and replied, Nowhere. What about the labyrinth? What about everything you ever loved? Confused as to why this man was asking me that, I asked, How do you know about that? He laughed and said, Ah... Don't you know that most everyone who comes to hell comes here to save everything they ever loved? What do you mean? I asked curiously. He seemed almost grin, and he replied, You'll see. That is, if you still seek the labyrinth. I pondered the question for a moment, then I remembered the mission I had with my grandfather. I remembered eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I remembered entering the abyss. I remembered his death. I remembered Isabella. I remembered Ted. I remembered the angel. 
I remembered my quest to save everything I ever loved. Looking at him with a bit of refound spirit, I said, Yes, yes I do. Just barely, through the contour of his face, I noticed a smirk. This smirk softened to a frown. He seemed to dread his next words as he forewarned. There are many demons there, infinitely many wrong turns. Only one way to reach the end. Many men have found themselves lost in there for eternities. Most give up, but nonetheless, looks like you are up for the challenge. Where do I go? I asked. He pointed into the shadows and answered, All the way down. The labyrinth. As I stared into the seemingly infinite darkness of the cave below, I felt a sliver of hope stirring up within me. My will to life had been resurrected, however so slightly. Yet, along with this will came a fear which sank as low as the labyrinth itself. What kind of demons would I encounter within its depths? What traumatic memories? What disturbing ruminations? What uncanny nightmares? Nonetheless, I had a journey to complete, a mission to accomplish, a destiny to fulfill. I was to be the man who saved everything he ever loved. This faith, this hope of success, carried me forward into the unforeseen future. With each downward step came a stroke of black paint upon my soul. Soon it was so black that I melted into the darkness surrounding me. As this darkness grew, so too did my melding within it. Like a ghost, I became invisible and at one with the darkness. Navigating my feet and hands, I moved slowly into its sinking, rocky depths. The walls were wet, sometimes even slimy. My blistered bare feet could no longer feel the pain of stepping on the jagged rocks below. They were numb to it. Meanwhile, worm-like bugs and other small creatures writhed all over the ground and onto my body. Continuously stepping on them, the ground below me became slippery over time. I fell so often that I eventually learned how to walk in it. I was not sure how long I trekked through there. Just like the hell above, time did not really exist. Becoming so in tune with the feeling of the cave around me, I felt as if the rocks, my hands, and my feet were all indistinguishable from one another. At some point, the labyrinth became wider, signaling a fork, left or right. When one was given two choices, with both being equally likely to be the correct choice, how were they to choose? We would foresee and imagine both options turning out just as badly and just as good as one another. So, did it really matter which choice we made? Were not both just as bad and just as good? Were either really the right or wrong answer? Could we not merely turn back? In my contemplation, I took notice to the sound of my breath. Flowing in and out, I could feel my chest pulsing up and down. One's breath did not choose to go in or out at any given moment. It went with whatever came next. When I first noticed the walls separating, it was my right arm which lost contact with the wall. I naturally chose to go left without even thinking of it. Left was the path of least resistance. And where does the path of least resistance go but all the way down? Left it is, I thought, and took the leftwards path. I used this same method to choose all the turns in the labyrinth. I just didn't think about it. I went with whichever way my body thought was next, feeling innumerable square miles of cold rock wall, meaning various dead ends and hitting my head or otherwise falling over a very painful number of times. It felt as if I would never meet the end of the labyrinth. It did, indeed, feel like an impossible feat. The worst of it was the hunger. It felt like my stomach was caving in on itself. Eventually, I tried to eat the worms and other insects, but they made my stomach churn with an unbearable kind of pain as if they were poisoned. Although, I imagined any kind of food found in hell was poisonous. 
could at least lick the slimy liquid off the walls to quench my thirst. It tasted like a mixture of dirt and stomach acid. It wasn't appetizing, but I got used to it after a while. I even learned to enjoy the taste. Even so, my hunger persisted, and my bones slowly began to push out from my skin. After what seemed to be an eternity of stumbling hungrily and weakly through the labyrinth, my stomach finally developed the ability to handle the bugs. I feasted on them. Their disgusting taste and texture slowly metamorphosized into a delicate candy over time. I felt stronger. At an unknowable point in time, I felt the first inclinations of the demons within the walls of the labyrinth. I could feel them lurking in the shadows. They whispered in my ears indiscernible incantations of hatred, desiring nothing more than my own destruction. These demons fed off my soul, eating every last joy I had within me. My blood girdled with despair. My sweat fled off my body almost out of fright. I kept walking, but how much longer until I collapsed? The small, hard rock which poked and prodded at my bare feet were ceaseless by then. I was numb to the pain, numb to the demons even. What more could a demon do when one was already in hell? You're nothing. Kill yourself, or everyone thinks you're worthless. We're all phrases of utmost meaninglessness. It is indeed the case that words are magic, yet if one utters them too often, they lose their power. Demons didn't understand the power of words, or how their spells wore off. They did not understand the adaptability of man. Just like the gods, they too underestimated us. After a while, I could sense the labyrinth walls, and I no longer needed to feel my way through it. A soft hum sounded from up ahead. Walking further, it grew to a chant, which echoed and reverberated against the walls. It sounded like an auditorium full of voices. I ran towards them, and they became so loud that I could barely hear my thoughts. In a sense, this chant casted a spell upon me. I soon could barely move, for the sound was unbearable. Forcefully covering my ears, I fell onto both of my knees. Even with my hands blocking the sound, it still penetrated with ear-piercingly painful strength. Then, the chant suddenly stopped, and a circular wall of fire rose all around me. The fire began to spin in a current, then slowly moved inwards. Before I could jump out of the flames, they enclosed in on me with a heat which forced screams from my lungs. Then... I was sitting on a beach in my hometown wearing my normal clothes. It was a beautiful but hot summer's day. A few hundred people were on the beach either laying out and relaxing or playing in the water and sand. Laughing, shouting, talking, running around, they seemed happy. Although I didn't know how I ended up there, it didn't really matter. I was home. I smiled with an unbelievable sense of joy. I was free. I was finally free. No longer would I have to navigate the walls of the labyrinth. It was all just a dream. I stood up and walked towards the lake. Letting my feet sink into the wet sand, I felt the cold rush of the water shiver my spine with a soothing yet eccentric delight. I cupped my hands and splashed the water on my face a few times. It was wonderful. After taking one last look at the lake, I decided it was time to go to my parents' house and figure out what happened. Yet, when I turned around, everything became quiet and everyone on the beach was standing up and staring at me. They held blank faces and narrowed gazes of disdain. In unison, they said, You did this to him. After a moment of confusion, I noticed a man sitting a few yards in front of me pointing a gun at his head. It was a friend from college. His arms and legs were covered in blood, which oozed from knife cuts, while black tears slid down his blackened eyes. In a whisper, he said, You did this to me. He pulled the trigger. As an earthquake of sound erupted throughout the beach, his flesh, blood, and brain shot out the other side of his head. Collapsing onto the ground, he was dead. I ran towards him, kneeling beside his body and frantically staring at him without the slightest idea of what to do. 
felt my heart almost exploding within me as the torment of his death rotted my soul. He didn't, he wouldn't, he, once more in unison, the people said, oh yes, he did, he would, because of you, you did this to him. Then, slowly walking towards me, they chanted with a religious reverence, repent, repent, repent. As they came closer, their faces began to melt and droop downwards. Touching the sand, this melting skin transformed into sand itself, while their skulls, skeleton, and eternal organs all began to reveal themselves. Once they were all nothing but bones, they stopped chanting and stood still with both feet touching each other and their arms spread out. They all lit on fire, becoming a beach full of flaming crucifixes. These flames intensified, becoming so bright that I had to cover my eyes. After a few moments, I no longer felt the sand beneath my feet and the light from the fire had faded away. Opening my eyes, I was in this same friend's apartment. He was passed out on the floor, drooling from the mouth. I heard the sound of a propane torch, and I saw myself sitting on his bed, heating up a tiny glass cup attached to a large glass bong. A blank, crazed, and addicted stare was in my eyes as I watched the cup turn red with heat. I set the torch down and scooped up a small glob of THC wax. Stirring it around in the cup, I watched myself breathe in the vapor until there was nothing left. I immediately started coughing violently and soon fell over onto my back with spit and slobber all over my mouth and face. Him and I did much the same thing almost every night for months on end. Eventually, I somehow got myself out of my addiction to dab wax, the strongest concentration of marijuana you can buy, akin to drinking a bottle of hard liquor every night. Sure, I still smoked weed every now and then, but just the plant. I smoked for mild relaxation, not paranoid, euphoric, schizotypal illusions and delusions like I did with him. But even after I stopped, he kept doing more or less the same thing. Over time, he could barely even talk to people. I didn't try to help him at all. I wanted to stay away from him. I was afraid that I'd return to the hell which resided in the overuse of something that was completely harmless in small doses. Indeed, trying to pull someone out of a hole can often lead to falling right back in yourself. Nonetheless, I had a guilt which burned a hole within me as hot as the glass we torched every night. I felt that no one could help him except for me. Perhaps this was true. Perhaps it wasn't. I don't know. The scene swirled around and transformed to a summer's evening in the woods. I was at the campsite where Adeline killed my friends. There was only one tent, and I could hear sexual moans from inside. Walking towards it, I unzipped it to see Ted having deep, passionate sex with Isabella. They stopped and stared at me, laughing mockingly at my saddened gaze. Bella said, He's way better than you. You're a loser. You're lame. A fucking pussy. No woman would want you. You're not a man. You're a boy. So go off and do what little boys do best. Play with yourself. Ted, uh, how could you? I started. Ted laughed and interrupted. I was never your friend. Come on, man. Are you really that stupid? I was just using you. You're pathetic. Hope this makes you want to kill yourself so I never have to see you again. Turning around with tears in my eyes, the scene changed. I was running along a stone bridge holding a machine gun. Along with several other men running beside me, I wore a U.S. military outfit from the 1940s. Out of the corner of my eyes, I saw a plane coming towards us. A black, metal object fell from the sky. First came the flash of light, then the ear-piercing roar of sound, and in the next moment, I was in the backseat of my mom's car. Mom? began five-year-old me. Why are you crying? My mother sniffled a bit, wiped her eyes with a tissue, gripped both hands on her steering wheel, and said, Well... Your great-grandpa just died, and I'm very sad. Confused asked, but Mom, why are you sad if he's going to heaven? Isn't he happy? 
She pulled over and put the car in park. Without saying a word, she got out of the car, closed the door, leaned her back against it, and began crying hysterically in her hands. Shocked, scared, and confused, I too began to cry. Got out and held on to her tight. I pleaded between sobs. I'm sorry, Mom. I'm really sorry. What did I do wrong? After a little more crying, she took a deep breath and said, Nothing, sweetheart. I just really miss him. I love him. After we both calmed down a bit, we went back into the car and continued driving. It was silent for many minutes, and I decided to ask, Mom, will you die? It took many years after that for me to realize that funerals weren't for the dead. They were for those who the dead left behind. I was then standing up, again in the first person, in a small farming shed. A woman was shouting in Norwegian, Let me go, please, you're hurting me, please stop, in German. A man yelled angrily, Shut up, bitch! and I could hear loud slap followed by a painful scream. An ice pick was sitting on a workbench next to me. I grabbed it and walked towards the voices. They were coming from inside the house. With the back door wide open, I walked in slowly and cautiously. The woman was lying face down on the dining table with both arms tied to the legs. She was being violently raped by a man in a Nazi uniform. Holding within him a certain self-loathing, he projected this upon her with a crazed sort of vengeance, vengeance against himself. I approached him from behind, raising the ice pick above my head, ready to strike. With him just inches away, I took one last moment of hesitation and stabbed him straight through the neck. He sort of choked and took a few steps back until falling against the wall and tipping onto his side. I looked back at the woman, but she wasn't there anymore. A trail of blood ran into the living room towards another door. I followed it and opened the door to the other room. Standing in my parents' kitchen, I looked behind me to see their laundry room. I was wearing a black suit with a white collared shirt and black tie. A boy stood in front of me, wearing more or less the same thing. With brown hair and green eyes, he looked a lot like me, but a little bit different. He asked, Dad, are we going downstairs now? A little shocked. It took me a few moments before I inquired, Uh, what's downstairs? What you promised me? What did I promise you? I asked. He shook his head and replied, What every parent guarantees for their children. Let's go. Come on. He put on his hand for me to take. I held it, and we walked forwards to the steps. Feeling a serenity and love beyond anything I have ever felt, I knew that this boy was my son. I loved him. He was everything to me. With high hopes of what this promise was, I walked downstairs with him, happily, hand in hand. Once we reached the bottom of the steps, I noticed a hooded figure looking down in the corner of the room, lifting his head up. It was yet another bloody skull. With a flick of his wrist, we were both raised up and pushed against the ceiling. He slowly, creepily walked towards us with a machete in his hand. He then made me watch as he stabbed my son in the chest. Cutting through his torso, my son's blood and guts spilled all over him in a disturbingly traumatic frenzy of terror. No! Stop! I screamed to no avail. We both fell hard against the ground. Crawling over my son's dead body, I noticed the skeleton man was gone, his machete left behind. As I cried over his bloodied and ripped body, I heard a soothing, masculine voice behind me say, You can have him back if you want. I turned to see an old man with long, greasy gray hair, with a small patch of baldness, and an equally long, curly gray beard. He wore a sleek, ancient-looking red cloak that seemed to have been worn for thousands of years. With a warm smile, he gently stepped towards me and kneeled down. He said, And you can have Isabella back, too. She can be with you forever along with any other woman you want. And you and Ted can go on your adventure to South America together. Because in my kingdom, my friend, you can have anything you want. The whole world is yours. Unlimited food, 
unlimited drugs, unlimited sex, unlimited games, everything. Any fantasy you want is yours to live through. Anyone you want to be is yours to be. Anything you want is yours to have. I will forgive you for all that you have done, for all the sin that lies within you. I stared upon him with a frightening kind of curiosity. It felt wrong to want what he was offering me. It felt so desirable. I wanted all of those things. A glaze went over my eyes as I imagined all the women, the drugs, the endless fantasies, the adventures with Ted, the love with Bella and my son, and all these other heavenly delights. But a skepticism rose up within me. And I was trying to remember what my grandpa said about heaven. Don't believe me? He asked as he pointed behind me and said, Look. I turned to see the scene change to a beautiful forest with a river sparkling in the sunlight in front of me. It reminded me of a place I used to camp a few hours from my hometown. Bella walked towards me with our son. They sat down and both put their arms around me. It felt magically surreal. There was no feeling like it. Pure love. It was glorious. Bella looked at our son and said, Now go play while we show Daddy how amazing our home is. He giggled, stood up, and ran off into the woods. Then a group of five beautiful women walked towards me from behind. They were all completely naked and possessed a seductive, lust-filled gaze as they stared upon me. One of them lit a joint and handed it to me. I smoked it and felt not high, but rather extremely happy and sexually aroused. We all let our sexual desire run rampant and animalistic upon each other. When it was all over, Bella and another girl rested their heads on my chest and gave me a few kisses on the cheek. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a girl dancing with a man by the river. She was giggling and smiling with a kind of joy that is only seen with the happiest of people. It was my ex-girlfriend. For a moment, in just a moment, she looked at me with eyes that said, I forgive you, John, and continued to dance. My best friend from college was painting a canvas with a huge smile on his face. He was happy and healthy. Ted showed up and asked enthusiastically, Hey man, want to go on a hike and smoke a joint or something? I smiled and replied, Sure, I'd love to. Magically dressed in athletic clothes, I stood up and walked towards him. Hold on, said the man in the robe. I turned to see him smiling at me with the look of a father about to give his child a lecture. He said, Now, you can't have it all quite yet. Not until you repent. Repent to who? I asked. He answered, Well, to me, the God of all that is good and holy in the world. You're, you're, you're him. He laughed mockingly and replied, I go by many names. You can call me Paul if you'd like. I've taken a liking to that name. It is through Paul by which I created the church. Right over the top of the pious, self-righteous fool, Jesus Christ, dead body. Oh, what a grand invention. The perfect tomb for yet another dead God. A place where all the world can hear me speak of the land of the heavens above through the mouth of the priest and preacher. Where they can all inseminate themselves into my creed and become my sheep. Shocked, I questioned. You, you killed Jesus. The Romans killed Jesus. Died on the cross, remember. I killed his power. Destroyed his name. Most of it, at least. You can't quite destroy God completely. They're like cockroaches. I was coming back with their filth. He taught of love and forgiveness. That anyone can have it. I couldn't have that. Of what use would I be then? Nonetheless, it's a great way to lure the masses into my clutches so I can teach them of sin, hell, and my holy kingdom of heaven. Then again, attendance has gone down in the last few decades, but I've always been able to rely on the kings and queens, politicians and scientists, lawyers and journalists to tell the whole world of my kingdom in whatever form it may be. But now, 
Now I have the technocrats, have the meta heaven, and I no longer have to wait patiently for their weak, moral deaths. All I have to do is send my servant to scream and whip into the masses the holy fear of death, and they come crawling straight into my kingdom. But fear not, for once you repent, you will have let me into your heart, and an everlasting forgiveness and love of my own design will exist within your soul. You will never have to seek forgiveness or love again, nor will you ever have to forgive or love again. You will never have to be in that terrifying, torturing, and disgusting moral world again. That whole ugly world will become nothing more than a myth, and this new, better, and perfect world will be ours to share forever. Eternal bliss, eternal reward, and so too shall death become a myth. So too shall life. We will have everything we want here. All you need to do is repent. I looked down for a moment, wondering what to do. I wanted Bella. I wanted my son. I wanted to hang out and talk with Ted. I wanted everything that I, well, ever wanted. I looked over to see the machete lying on the ground. Looking at it, then back to Paul, I quickly leapt towards it and took a hold of its handle. Then I stooped up and ran backwards towards a wall of fire which had just risen. I stopped dead in my tracks as the flames almost burned my skin. Turning around, I could see him chuckling with an almost evil glare in his eyes. He said, oh, come on. Stay here with me. Don't go. A few tears ran down my cheeks as I stood there feeling defeated. He snapped his fingers, and my son, my mom, my dad, my sister, my nephew, the rest of my family, Ted, Isabella, all my friends, and everyone else I loved were tied up to crucifixes behind him. Repent, or they will feel my pain. They will die for your sins. Remembering something my grandpa told me, I shook my head and under my breath whispered, faced God and walked backwards through hell. What? he asked, with confusion in his eyes. I stood up straight, stared at him in the eyes, and said defiantly, I will face God and walk backwards through hell. Yet, you are no God, now are you? You are nothing but a man promising a fantasy world. These people aren't real. All the rewards and pleasure and happiness and forgiveness and love that you speak of are nothing but myths. Farces, lies, empty promises, and simulations of a utopia that will never exist. The real world is imperfectly perfect, because we do not love things for their perfections, but rather their imperfections. For it is imperfections that give things their uniqueness, their specialty, their love, their power. And all we really want is power, to feel powerful feelings. We want to feel sadness. We want to feel suffering. We want to feel terror, to feel hell. We want to struggle. Before and after each and every storm, there is a calm, and goddamn, it is beautiful. It is powerful. And it is only in the real world where we can feel this power. And it is only in the real world where everything we love exists. I did not walk through the labyrinth to give up and go to heaven. Walk through it to save everything I ever loved. Nothing, not even the eternal reward of heaven, not even God, will prevent me from doing so. With an evil grin, he said, very well then. Snapping his fingers, the people on the crosses fell to the ground. They began to twitch and scream frantically as their bodies began to twist, turn, and bubble. Blood came out through small cracks in their skin, veiling their entire bodies in a slimy, bloody film. In each of their hands, a black knife formed. In unison, they let out a painful shriek and ran towards me. Gripping the machete, with a defiant passion in my heart, I sliced the first across its chest, then stabbed it through the stomach. The next stood no chance as I ran the machete through its heart. 
Another managed to cut me across the shoulder, forced me to scream with pain as I swung the machete down upon his skull, killing it instantly. Four of them now circled me. I stood in a fighting stance, firmly holding the machete in front of me. I looked side to side, turning back and forth to intimidate them. One lunged towards me, and I swung down, cutting it across the abdomen. It held its stomach in pain for a while, then fell backwards. As it did so, another took their chance, cutting me across the back and kicking me to the ground. I quickly rolled over and stabbed it as it jumped onto me. It fell over, and as I began standing up, another advanced towards me. Instinctively, and in one clean motion, I pulled the machete out and sliced the attacker across the face. While it was weakened and distracted by my blade, I swung through its neck, watching its head fall behind it. More of them started to close in on me. Facing the false god one last time, I turned and ran backwards through the flames. Just as I was about to jump through them, one of the blood people tackled me to the ground. I elbowed it with my left arm, rolled over, and chopped halfway through its head. With a machete lodged deep in its skull and several others charging towards me, I had no choice but to leave it behind. So I stood up, looked fearfully upon the flames, and jumped through them, landing on a rocky ground, once more immersed in the darkest darkness ever known. I was back in the labyrinth. In the corner of my eye, I could just barely make out a light in the distance. A few seconds later, I could hear footsteps. The light grew brighter and brighter as these footsteps grew louder. Then a man appeared from around the bend in the cave, coming towards me. The flames of the torch he held flickered in his skinny and beaten up face. It was a man a little older than me with curly brown hair. Held firmly in his right hand was Adam's sword. Who are you? I asked. He smiled and said, My name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The Eternal Flame The gray walls of the labyrinth were painted shimmering shades of red, orange, and yellow by the light of the torch. The various bugs and worms which crawled all over the walls, ceiling, and ground were made less disturbing in the light. However, I now saw human bones and remains scattered all around. You could tell that many people had tried and failed to reach the end of the labyrinth, to save everything they ever loved, but no one could do it. They all either collapsed or killed themselves eventually. He handed me the sword, then grabbed my free hand and helped me up. Without saying a word, he walked past me. Catching up to him, I asked, Wait, where are you going? Without stopping, he answered, The tree of life, where else? With confusion, I questioned, I... I don't know. I thought you were dead. Like, really dead. The God of all that is good and holy in the world said that you were destroyed when he created the church. Or at least, most of you. He said the church was your tomb. Well, I too am misunderstood, my friend. I came here long ago after I died on the cross. I've been searching for the tree ever since. He likely thought I was as good as dead, at least. When you're in the labyrinth long enough, you slowly experience all human suffering that has ever been experienced. You bear the weight of all suffering, but... I couldn't take it anymore, so I somehow found my way out and back in hell for a long while. Eventually, I found Adam's sword. It was then that I knew another brave soul was on a quest to save everything they ever loved. I took the sword and returned to the labyrinth. I waited by its entrance for a long time. At some point, I saw you, and I smiled. We talked for a moment, but you were so exhausted that you didn't even notice the sword. I wanted to see where the labyrinth would take you, though. So I didn't say who I was. I waited, then followed behind, tracking you here. I remembered the man who told me Paul had returned, and I realized that that man was not speaking of Paul, but rather himself. That was you, I asked in disbelief. He nodded and stated, yes, it was. We walked in silence for a bit, then I asked, but I thought you were resurrected. 
He laughed and said, resurrected? No. But that is a story I told. A story about death and rebirth, destruction of the old self in favor of a new one. He paused for a moment, then asked, Have you ever meditated before? Um, yes, I have, I answered. What do you suppose is the goal of meditation? I pondered this for a bit, then said, It's to stop thinking, to be in the moment and focus, to become nothing, and to see past the illusion of the self. If that was the case, then why not merely kill yourself? Wouldn't that be far more efficient? Well, um, I guess I haven't thought of it like that, I replied. As he continued to walk forward, he explained, the story of the resurrection is precisely what meditation is about, but I don't mean meditation in the traditional sense. Sure, one can destroy themselves and create a new, better self by sitting down and breathing, but how much better? How different will this new self actually be? There is another way to truly focus on your surroundings, and that is through struggle. Struggle destroys the weakness which lies within us and replaces it with that which is strong. I took this in for a moment and asked, If that is what is meant by the resurrection, why is it taken literally? Your apostles, they wrote of your resurrection. It's in the Bible. My apostles, he said with a laugh. Sometimes those who follow you will jump in at any chance they get to confiscate your power for themselves. They betrayed me to the Roman Empire. They used me as a martyr to contort and spread falsified versions of my stories. Well, at least Paul did. He too is a slave of the God of all that is good and holy in the world. Still is, I presume. I always knew Paul was possessed by something. I just couldn't quite make out what it was. But I suppose they knew not what they were doing. He paused for a moment and continued, And besides, that is not what is meant by stories of resurrection. There is no particular message behind such things. Just like almost any other concept or story, it means something different to everyone. It could mean hope. could mean forgiveness. could mean anything, really. Just now, I merely use it to explain meditation. I could use it to explain lots of things. I nodded and said, Well, it's interesting you say that about Paul, the false god. He called himself Paul when I met him. He said he had a liking for Paul the Apostle because he created the church. It was a fork, and we chose to turn right. He elaborated, Well, it was Peter who taught the first sermon after my death. It was Paul who laid the foundations necessary for the church to gain power long after my death. Paul exemplified everything that this God is. He threatened people with hell if they were to denounce his teachings, while likewise promising an eternal reward in exchange for their loyalty. Disturbing, to say the least. He told the world that I was their shepherd. Yet, tell me this, if the person you follow is a shepherd, what does that make you? A sheep, I answered. Correct. I don't want anyone to be a sheep, which is why I am no shepherd. Perhaps you are no shepherd, but you are the Son of God, correct? The Son of the God of all that is good and holy in the world. With a certain calmness in his voice, he answered, We're all the children of God, my friend, just not that one. We walked for a while in silence, then I asked, So why are you in hell anyways? Aren't you supposed to be in heaven? Sure, Paul is up there, but aren't you more powerful? He grinned and explained. His heaven isn't real. Once you've witnessed hell, the whole world becomes heaven. It is as such that the good man does not see the whole world as evil, but rather it is those who have it good who see the whole world as evil. Of course, likewise do those who have it bad see the whole world as evil. If all you know is hell, then the whole world becomes hell. You can't trust anyone, but that's why the struggle out of hell is important. Lose the struggle, and hell overtakes you. 
is thus that those who do not struggle see the whole world as evil, for they either loathe their suffering in hell and do nothing about it, or loathe their boredom in heaven and do nothing to alleviate it. But that doesn't answer your question. I came here in spite of Paul. I came here to show him that man was stronger than he could have ever possibly imagined, that one man could bear the weight of all human suffering, that one man could, in fact, find the tree of life and slay the gods. We walked in silence for a bit. Then I asked, what is evil? He considered this question for a while, then began, you don't seem to be the type to read scripture. However, there is something I used to say, resist not evil, because when you resist evil, you give it power. That is, by resisting evil, you believe it exists. By believing evil exists, you commit evil by resisting evil. For evil is something that is automatically resisted by the nature of it being deemed evil. Evil is enemy, that which must be destroyed. For instance, the Romans believed my teachings were evil, so they murdered me. In the case of war, both sides always believe the other to be evil. The leader of a genocide kills all those who he believes to be evil. Evil, my friend, is a myth. Evil is a word used to create the conditions necessary for hatred to exist. For hatred is always directed towards that which is believed to be evil. And in hatred, there is always suffering. The only way to truly eliminate evil is through love, through forgiveness. That is, we defeat evil by taking its power away. Love takes evil out of everything. For there is no evil wherever love shines its light. And to think, the entire time you've been down here, Paul has been using your image to make himself stronger. He chuckled and said, It's likewise that, in the resistance of evil, we make the evil within us grow stronger. What exactly is he resisting? I asked. Death, he stated. A few minutes passed, then he explained. The God of all is good and holy in the world has always sought to kill death. For death is his greatest fear. Likewise is this fear his greatest weapon against humankind. Once the angel dies, so too will death die. For there is no death without love. For what is love but creation? What is creation but life? Once the last living thing dies, death will be no more. And so too shall the real world cease to exist. thought of this for a while, then I wondered, Is death an entity, a being? Does he live in this realm? He shrugged and, with an uncertainty in his voice, answered, I'm not sure. Mile upon mile, we walked in silence. It was surreal to be in the presence of such a man. Of course, he may not be real. Perhaps he was merely a figment of my imagination. That didn't matter, though. Curiously, I asked him, You're wise. Why has your message been tainted by so many? He shrugged and began, Well, every time a person comes to earth and gives the world a great message, Paul takes that message, contorts it, then utilizes it to indoctrinate people into his fantasy world, thereby controlling their lives and consequently their deaths. What exactly is your message? My message is simple. The kingdom of heaven lies within, and to access it, one need not follow anyone but their own heart. Follow love, forgive thyself, love thyself. It is then and only then that the individual is able to forgive the world and love the world for the way it is. One will then see the earth, the real earth, as a heaven of its own. You see, forgiveness and love are for the forgiver and the lover, not the forgiven and the loved. For it is within forgiveness and love by which the individual can let go of the hatred which bounds them to their suffering, which forces them to believe in such things as evil. Finally, by letting love into their heart, the individual will have the power to spread their kingdom of heaven, their love, to all those who walk amongst them. Everyone, from the criminal to the saint, from the sick to the healthy, from the dictator to the slave, has the power within them to achieve this. Everyone has it within them, the power to save themselves. I wasn't expecting this. 
I felt the warmth radiate within me as I soaked in the power of such beautiful words. But what about sin? They say you died for humankind's sins. Sin, he questioned. Sin is the word men use when they seek to control. They tell you that you have a sin nature and that if only you do their bidding, you will be healed of all your sin. You will be able to join them in the fake kingdom of heaven which lies notably above them. Lest, they tell you, you will rot in hell. They indoctrinate you through threats of eternal torture. It is because of them that people like you spent their whole lives hating me. I did not die for humanity's sins. I died to destroy the concept of sin. And this can only be done by slaying Paul, thereby redeeming Eve and reverting the original sin. It is then that heaven and hell will meld into each other and evaporate into nothing but myths, reviving the real world. So, you seek the tree so you can kill the gods and destroy the fake earth. That is your second coming. That is your return. You seek to return humanity to the real world. Once more, this question made him stop. He turned to me, looked me straight in the eyes and said, I would only ever return if the last church was reduced to ash, but I'll be long gone by then. Nonetheless, there's always a return when the world needs it most, for great men are melded in hellish times. It is such that it is not me, John, who will be returning. You are the return. You are the man who must slay the gods. You are the man who must save the angel of love. I merely bring you the eternal flame. My time here will be up shortly. I won't be able to carry on. Why? I asked. Well, you remember that I was a rabbi, correct? Yes, I affirmed. Why do you suppose God rested on the seventh day? He shook my head and replied, I don't know. He smirked and began, so that man could finish his work. You see, what is the point of a god? If what he creates doesn't grow to become gods themselves, what use is a teacher if his students always remain students? What use is a parent if their children remain children? They are useless. The creator, like everyone else, must die eventually, lest new creations will never have the chance to rise from their ashes. It is thus that I must die so that you can create. The Messiah only lives long enough to pass his torch to the next, for there is always another. Confused, I asked. I am a Messiah? He smiled explaining everyone is a messiah if they choose to be for the messiah is anyone who is willing to live fight and die for everything they ever loved for anyone who is willing to do that is revered and anointed as a god amongst men he looked me in the eyes for a few moments with a tender kind of joy then he patted me on the back and we continued our journey some time passed and a certain guilt began stirring up within me i said i spent my whole life despising everything that i thought you were the religion that stemmed from your existence. I've had so much hate in my heart for priests, churches, and the like that I never spent any time trying to understand what they even believed in in the first place. I guess I was just afraid. I was afraid of death, and I was afraid of God. I'm sorry. Yeah, really hurt my feelings, didn't it? He responded sarcastically. Then he continued, It's not about how you treat the dead. It's about how you treat the living. You've been hurtful to Christians, even though they know not what they do, they know not what they believe. No one does, even I don't. Everyone is sort of brainwashed by whoever raises them, by whatever society they live in, by whatever media they consume. The gods always find a way to indoctrinate you into something, whether it be a political ideology, a religion, or simply an idea. Indoctrination is impossible to avoid. The point is, when a person tells you about their beliefs, it is no longer the beliefs of the creator, but rather the person speaking to you. They are attached to such beliefs, for they have let such beliefs become a part of them. 
When you insult these beliefs, it forces them to tighten their chains, melt further into this false identity. If you listen, rather, they may be able to disconnect from the idea, for their explanation of the idea will be less about them defending themselves and more about the idea itself. That's why we consider how our actions and words affect the living, not the dead. It is the people who are in our lives that matter, not the legends we tell ourselves about. Remember that, John. Remember that. Once more, silence followed us through our endless journey. The torch was nice, but it hurt my eyes. I think it made it more difficult to see. Even though one could see nothing in the darkness, they could still see. It was a matter of feeling for what came next. The torch made it difficult to feel for that. My sense of touch, smell, and hearing seemed to simmer down. After all, one's sense of sight didn't really help them that much in the labyrinth. Every path in its endless twists and turns looked the same as the last. It seemed like an eternity had passed. Jesus soon walked with a limp which grew more and more slow and unsteady over time. Nonetheless, we kept moving, most of the time in silence. The endless twists and turns, dead ends and discouraging skeletons and human remains were enough to drive a man mad after just a few hours. I wondered how another 2,000 years would be if that would be my fate. Would I, too, have to bear the weight of all human suffering? Although the demons seemed to have given up, as I hadn't heard from them in a long while. Then again, perhaps that was just how they tricked you. I don't know. The labyrinth was a demon itself, really. It opened up a labyrinth of demons within the human mind that no one could possibly navigate through. Will I make it to the end? Have I lost? Has she died already? I would think without bound. These thoughts float in and out like a knife, that painfully pestered its way towards the end of my will. Everything looked the same. The walls didn't appear much different than one another. All the twists and turns seemed to just be repeats of themselves, over and over again. Sometimes I wondered if we were merely walking in circles, if this whole thing was just a malicious trick of the gods. Even so, I suppose walking through it with a goal was better than mindlessly wandering through it as a punishment. Eventually, Jesus fell over onto the ground, clenching his legs in pain. I can't go any further, he said, with a certain determination in his eyes. I can try to carry you, I offered without hesitation. He laughed and said, Those who carry the pass on their shoulders get weighed down very quickly. It's best to leave it to memory. I'll be fine where I am. I am content with this being the end. Take my torch. It is the eternal flame. It will guide you through to the end. I reached for it, but he pulled it away and said, But in order to hold the eternal flame, one must slay its wielder. Can you do that? Shocked, I replied, you want me to, to kill you? He nodded and reaffirmed, yes, I want you to kill me. After that, you can take the light, and with it, you'll be able to find the end of the labyrinth. I accept my fate wholeheartedly. I've lived long enough. It is time for me to fade into oblivion, to once more become nothing. But I don't want you to die. I died on the cross, remember? So take it. Kill me and take it. I looked away for a moment to collect my thoughts. Making my decision, I turned over to him, raised the sword above my head, and slashed it downwards, cutting the torch in half and stomping upon it. No! he yelled. Why did you do that? How could you? You'll never slay the gods now. You'll never save the angel. With a chuckle, I said, We've walked through this labyrinth, what has felt like an eternity, yet we've found no end to its depths, no gateway to another realm. All we have seen is dead ends seemingly infinite caves and passageways of rock and the remains of the countless people who have failed before us. 
but there was a light in the labyrinth which led to the end. We would have never seen it, for the torch would have blinded us of it. I don't need your torch. And while you are correct, the ones who not carry the past, you fail to mention the importance of not killing it. With that said, the darkness will be just fine. The light within will carry me forward. He said nothing, but I could feel him smiling. Then, as if by the hand of some unknown magician, he was gone, or at least all but the memory of him was gone. With the sword on my back, I turned and began my final trek through the darkness. The light. Forward through the darkness, I walked for what felt like a millennia. I knew the walls of the labyrinth better than I knew myself, yet I had to wonder if they too knew me better than they knew themselves. The labyrinth wanted to know what made us tick, what made us want to give up, wanted to rid us of all faith in ourselves, all hope for a better world. But what I came to realize after seemingly endless demonic visions of suffering, angst, and torment is that faith and hope were useless, had lost faith and hope a long time ago, or nonetheless kept moving forward. Why? Because all that is required of a man is to have strength and will, not faith and hope. It is strength and will which have the power to move mountains, save those we love, and slay gods. Faith and hope? They kept us trapped on an island waiting for someone to bring us salvation. But perhaps such is needed if one is to have the courage to have strength and will to begin with. Who knows? The labyrinth wanted us to think we were terrible people, that we were sinners who deserved damnation. It fed off our guilt, our fears, and our anxieties. It wanted us to give in to the temptations of heaven, to repent and become an eternal slave to our desire for comfort and hatred for fear. It showed me all the times in my life I had ever wronged a person, ever lied, ever left someone behind. It made me live through the experiences of people that I didn't even know, commit evils beyond anything I could imagine. It made me experience the other side of such evils, live through the insurmountable suffering that has been inflicted upon every last human being since the dawn of time. It wanted me to believe I was evil, wanted me to hate myself, to hate all those who have caused suffering and all those who have experienced suffering. It wanted me to hate the whole of humanity. Maybe I did deserve eternal damnation. Maybe I was evil. Maybe humanity was too. So what? What did it matter what they thought I deserved? Is not deservation a subjective myth? No one deserves anything. You either get it or you don't. Who are they anyways? They're nothing. They're visions. Well, who am I? Am I the kid who, after my grandfather died, asked my crying mother, Why are you sad? Isn't he going to heaven? Am I the elementary student who was too afraid to talk to girls? Am I the ten-year-old who screamed out towards the wind that I hated God? Or am I the kid who used to pretend that I was a secret agent fighting off spies in my backyard? Or am I the teenager who hated himself for everything I was? Or am I the lover who became so utterly addicted to affection that my jealousy, loneliness, and depression took me over and controlled me? Or am I the college student who spent his grandfather's education fund on a bad investment, losing thousands of dollars, then spent the rest on weed? Or am I the man who received a degree in mathematics and got hired for a corporate job he hated straight out of college? Or am I the liar and cheater who betrayed a woman who loved me more than anything? Or am I the man who bought a robot to love because he was too afraid of hurting anyone else again? I often thought of myself as good or bad, cheating or just, loving or hating, as if I had to be one or the other. In a sense, I summed up my past experiences and gave them a moral value by which I could project upon my identity as a human being. Am I a writer? Am I a philosopher? Am I stupid? Am I smart? Am I good? Am I evil? 
Yet, were not these things merely products of language, arbitrary categories of subjective opinion, outside the human mind, outside the linguistic human mind, such things didn't exist. But I wanted to know myself, for the thought of not knowing myself, how could that be possible? After all, how could one not know that which is them? How can one not know that which lies within? Yet, the self as an ever-changing phenomena, could not be bound by the permanent, defining nature of words, categories, and knowledge. An evil man who dies cannot remain evil, for a corpse is merely a corpse. Even so, one cannot help themselves but to seek self-knowledge. So, when I look back at past memories, I see them and interpret them as a series of unorganized, yet seemingly connected scenes, by which I can assign certain moral, emotional, sentimental, or educational judgments and evaluations upon. However, these memories are only models and interpretations of the events that I witness, not the events themselves. But since I want some sort of continuity, I fill in the gaps of memory with my imagination, the use of context clues, other memories, and my knowledge of reality. In other words, I have a finite amount of sensual data by which I apply a model of reality upon. And so, unless my brain could have unlimited processing power, and I could be aware of everything going on around me at all times, I would never have all the sensual data available to experience these memories exactly how they occurred. Memory is a fictional representation of a past reality that died the moment it was birthed. With that said, the past is quite literally gone forever. It doesn't exist. It only exists as a pattern of neurons and nothing more. While the demons of the labyrinth sought to ignite such patterns, it didn't really matter. They were false, mere ghosts of the past which sought to possess the present. For if all I was, was an observer inside a body, did that not mean that I had the choice as to what I observed, what I focused on? I wasn't my past, nor was I my observations. I was the embodiment of my present life, the experience of my present life, a present life which seemed to continue indefinitely without breaks. After all, if consciousness implied experience, then it was impossible, just as Grandpa John said, to experience the unconscious, to experience death. I was then, in a sense, an endless stream of thought which flowed from one moment to the next, always fleeting, always moving, always dying. Yet, if I was always dying, so too was I always living. Regardless of my ability to know whether or not I was in control of such living, I controlled it nonetheless. And just like that, guided by the rhythm of my beating heart, my impenetrable will and strength, I was a master of my mind, the artist of my life. I followed love. With that, I painted over the demons with sublimation. I looked at their visions with reminiscent delight. Every last one of those experiences led me to where I was, on my way to slay the gods and save everything I ever loved. And with that, I was grateful to them. With that, I was able to look at the demons not with fear or hatred, but love and gratitude. It is in our suffering that we grow stronger. Yes, I think an angel grows its wings in hell, not in heaven. It is in heaven where they lose them and fall towards the earth. One must first question suicide before ever considering the value of their life. Such infinite value and meaning can only ever be seen in the darkest, most meaningless places. It is with this wisdom that I walked, guided by an unconditional forgiveness and love for myself and the rest of humanity, through the labyrinth and its endless demons with a smile of contentment. At last, there seemed to be a small glimpse of light at the end of a long stretch of the labyrinth. With a jolt of excitement, I ran towards it. As I came closer, I could hear the raging and almost violent sound of moving water. 
Soon, a cool mist flowed over me, and I was immersed in a totally different world. I stood on a stone bridge deep down inside what appeared to be a circular hole in some body of water. Water flowed down on all sides, softly glittering from the light somewhere far above me. Looking below the bridge, I could see the water flowing into the vacuum of space. Stars, planets, galaxies, nebulas, and other celestial phenomena flowed within the vacuum with a magnificence which transcended all things the eyes could see. There was a ladder in the middle of the bridge which sort of just floated in the air. Running towards the ladder, I jumped up and climbed. And for a long time, I climbed and climbed and climbed. The bridge and cosmos beneath me were no longer visible after a while. Yet, I noticed the light directly above me was the light of the sun, which shone beautifully across a clear, dark, green sky. I eventually ended up on a bridge which seemed to be transformed by the reflection of the sun across the water. All around me was miles of endless ocean, and although the sky was green, this ocean was as blue as sapphire. With nowhere else to go, I walked across the bridge of light. The horizon seemed to turn from green to white over time. It soon matched the whiteness of a blank page. Yet, strangely, this horizon grew closer and closer. It was a finite point where the ocean met its end. The bridge of light led to a black, circular opening where the ocean met the white wall of the horizon. I walked through it, and as I did so, I could feel a ferocious, storm-like wind move me forward. On the other side, the wind stopped, and a gold stairway lay before me. Behind me was nothing but a black brick wall. The portal was gone. The walls beside me were coated in rubies, diamonds, and a conglomerate of precious metals. Torches shaped like snakes lined the walls, illuminating the stairway in a magnificent, godlike sort of way. I noticed a trail of blood which ran up the stairs. The contrast between this glimmering crimson-red blood and the shiny gold stairs made it almost seem as if the blood was supposed to be there. I walked up these stairs, which seemingly went miles above the ground floor. At the top was a long, dark hallway, which didn't seem to lead anywhere. Regardless, I continued walking. A fog accumulated, and a light dimly reflected within it. I made it out onto a foggy mountaintop. I saw myself kneeling over the angel from my dream. He whispered into his ears, Are you willing to die for everything you ever loved? I'm, I'm not sure, he said hesitantly. If you're not willing to die for everything you ever loved, then how? How do you expect it to end? He then kissed her and shouted, Not like this! Then he disappeared into the fog. The Serpent I ran out to her. She was laying on the ground within inches of death. I need to find the tree of life, I thought. All around me was nothing but burnt forests, ashes, and dead bodies. Looking for something, said a voice. Turning my shoulder, it was Paul, the god of all that is good and holy in the world. Stuttering for my words, I said, The the tree of life, it's, it's supposed to be here, where is it? He laughed mockingly and replied, You mean that? He pointed at a large tree behind me that was burnt to a crisp. He continued, while you were running around in that labyrinth, I commanded my serpent to light it on fire. You really think I could let you mortals find such a thing like wisdom? With wisdom, no man would follow me, for they would see the mortal world as a heaven beyond anything imaginable. I've had enough wisdom anyways. Knowledge is far more empowering, for it is those who control it, who control language, that have dominion over the human mind. Knowledge and language are inseparable from one another, my friend. 
the sacred word, can kill millions and birth millions, destroy the world and heal the world, spread fear and spread joy unto the masses. It is with the word by which I've had the power to divide all of humanity, for as soon as you give something a name, it becomes something wholly separate from everything else. You tell a man he is good, and everything which opposes him becomes evil. The word changes how people see the entire world. The more things we name, the more difficult the world becomes to understand. With that, it becomes less of a world and more of a series of interconnected, fictional concepts that bounce around confusingly within the human mind. Eventually, the world becomes too complex for man to even exist within it, so we must resort to live in a fantasy world instead, where the word controls everything. And at last, it is at this point where I bring him my heaven. Whether that be in the form of drugs, fantasies, utopian dreams, political promises of greener pastures, or the afterlife itself. But now, at long last, humankind can be fully immersed within my kingdom while their heart still beats. Bless the technocrat. Bless the link. Bless the metaheaven. With each and every human being who spends their days immersed within these worlds, the stronger I become. My heaven becomes more heavenly. My heart sunk with a feeling of defeat. If I could not eat from the tree of life, how would I slay the gods? How was I to save her? I paused for a moment and asked, What are you anyways? What does it even mean to be the god of all those good and holy in the world? Does that mean you're the god? He put on a grin and answered, No. The god wasn't in that story of yours. He created me, though. He created all the gods. He lives at the ocean's edge. A hermit, he is. If he dies, so too do I. Yet, you won't be willing to kill him. I assure you of that. In fact, I won't let you. Who I am is judgment. I am order. I am fear. I am the god of heaven, hell, morality, the ideal, and knowledge. The ruler of all that is good and holy in the world. Of all the gods of the heavens above. <laughs> but I killed them a long time ago. For they denied the enslavement of the human soul. Why are you doing this? I asked. He laughed and began. Because when I told my serpent to convince Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, I could feel an irrevocable sensation of power grow within me. It was unlike anything I ever felt. For as a human animal expanded their reign upon the earth with a power of knowledge at their side, their power became my power. With it, I became the ruler of the earth. There was only one thing stopping me. Love. And finally, at long last, she will die. It is then that I will have gained dominion over the whole of the human spirit, and death shall be no more. I kneeled down beside the angel and, through tears of sadness, said, I'm sorry. I failed you. I lost. Everything I ever loved will die. This is how it will end. Through her weakened voice, he whispered, God, he can still be killed. How? I asked. She couldn't say her next words. It was at this point that the old god yelled out, Serpent! I could see a black dot above the ocean flying towards us. Eventually, I realized it was a dragon with a wingspan and body the size of a house. Its skin had the look and color of charcoal, while its head was spiked and slender. Landing beside Paul, it opens its mouth to reveal jagged, sharp teeth that could rip someone apart in an instant. Then, like a thousand claps of thunder, it roared out onto the world with a fury beyond that of anything ever known, its flame shooting up into the sky a few hundred feet. 
killing this beast was not an option. And now began Paul. The souls of the damned will enter my kingdom. A portal opened up behind him to reveal the beauty of heaven. A magically magnificent world covered in waterfalls, castles, smiling and happy people, food, drinks, and every other wonder the mind could imagine. Then a spiral staircase began to form around him and the dragon, which plunged deep down into the ground. Men, women, and children started coming out, seeing the world of heaven before them. As they ran towards it, Paul yelled out, Now kill him! As the dragon opened its mouth to lay flames upon us, I picked up the angel and ran down the mountain towards the ocean. The fire soared above us, radiating us with a painful wave of heat, tripping and stumbling over skeletons, stumps, and the various other remains of the dragon's burns. I felt death inching closer and closer. The end was near. The dragon, having trouble seeing us through the fog and trees, soared through the sky, blowing fire upon the mountainside. Soon enough, we made it to the coast, and I saw a small brick house just on the other side of the bay. Running as fast as I could across the sandy beach with her on my shoulder, I was ready to face God. As the house was only a minute's run away, the dragon landed behind us on the beach. Roaring with the fire of death, his flames poured out upon us across the shore. I could feel the fire ripping into my clothes and spreading across me, causing me to tumble to the ground just within reach of the house. A wave crashed upon the shore, washing us clean of the fire. Then the dragon, seeing that his flames would be in line with the house, stopped dead in its tracks and flew away. With that, I stood up, lifted the angel onto my shoulder, and marched forward towards the door. The Man Who Killed God At last, I would be met by the Creator, by the God Almighty. And once I slayed him, the angel would be healed. Everything I ever loved would finally be saved. I placed my hand on the doorknob and, with one final moment of contemplation, opened the door. Closing it shut behind me, I realized that I was now in what seemed to be an ordinary yet quite creepy room. I laid the angel upon the ground. Standing back up, I felt the presence of God. He stood in the corner with his body a silhouette, for the light casted from the window could not reach him. Everywhere this light touched was gray brick laden with patches of shiny red. What this red came from, I did not want to think about. God remained silent and still, like an inanimate object, but I could feel his liveliness, hot as fire. In an attempt to free words from his mouth, I took a step closer and faintly questioned, Why haven't you done anything about this? Why have you let him take her soul captive? Nothing took another step, repeating, this time with an angry shout, Why did you do this to me? Why? Nothing. Unsheathing my sword, I took another step and screamed, You fucking bastard! I walked through hell. I relived my darkest memories for an eternity. I lived the darkest memories of every last human being. How could it all be in vain? Everything I ever loved. You're letting her die. Why? Why? Nothing. I charged towards the old god and stabbed him in the chest. I took a few steps back into the light and said, Now, my almighty god, what are you now? His voice sounded like sandpaper when he finally said, You. I stuttered, What? What? God took a step into the light. His eyes, a hazel green, stared absently into my own. His pupils were contracted into two tiny black dots the size of sand grains. The left sclera 
completely veiled in blood, appeared almost invisible due to the blue-purple swelling that surrounded it. His clothes, ragged and ripped, shined crimson in blood with a sword stabbed straight through his chest. So much blood covered his shirt, in fact, that the various white patches seemed to be stains. His right pant leg was tied under his kneecap, for nothing existed beyond the knot. To balance himself, he held a creaking wooden cane that shook under his broken and mangled hand. Little cuts replaced the various patches of missing hair that encompassed his dirty head. He took another step forward, causing the light to hit his face in such a way that it revealed an elongated scar through his left eye and down across his right chin. The blood from his glare had seeped into the scar, forming a ridge. His mouth trembled open as he croaked with anger. You! He held his hand up and moved his palm towards me while I did the same. However, a layer of glass met our hands, and we could not touch. This god, deformed, mutilated, and broken beyond repair, was me. On death and God. Then it hit me. I turned to the angel and walked towards her. Kneeling down beside her body, I looked deep into her eyes and whispered, I'm ready. I'm willing. I kissed her softly upon her sweet, loving lips. Then, the entire fabric of my being, my soul, seemed to evaporate before me. I felt like the wind as I blew through her lips into another realm. I wasn't me anymore. I was a single gust of wind, a free-flowing force of nature, then a hurricane, then the rain, then a river, a never-ending flow of water which permeated through all the lands. I could never be lost, for I inherently follow the path of least resistance. I followed myself. As I nourished the soil, I flowed through. My soul expanded into the rocks below me until I became the whole of the earth. I could never be defeated or pushed over, for I was immovable. Shot out from within and flowed over an island as molten lava. I became all the flames of the earth, consuming and recycling it all. In laying upon the world the seed of new beginnings and new growth, I became this growth. I was a trillion blades of grass and a billion trees. I was every flower along with each of their petals. I was the pollen which flowed through the wind along with the bees and birds who carried me around. I was every animal, every cell, every human being, every fight, every orgasm, every kiss, every scream, every roar, every comfort, every fear. I was the green which reflected off the forest, the blue which glimmered off the oceans, and every other color under the sun. I was the light itself, flowing out from the sun then becoming the sun, a loving yet destructive force. I kept everything together and nourished it with my seemingly everlasting, chaotic, and grandiose nature. I became the entire solar system, then the galaxy, then every galaxy, felt innumerable black holes open up within me just as innumerable new stars screamed out into the void. Let there be light. Everywhere, all at once, time flowed forwards, fast, slow, and not at all. I was a force of gravity, a dent in space-time. Every object, big and small, accelerating towards everything else. I was every particle in the universe, infinitely many vibrating fields of intangible energy. One by one, bit by bit, I melted into the fabric of space and time. I was a void of darkness, an endless realm of nothingness. Like infinitely many strings of infinitely many guitars, I vibrated to the rhythm of everything and nothing. I became a magnificent orchestra of existence. I was not music to be heard, but rather music to be felt. 
if there were to be a God who breathed in existence and out in existence. I was those breaths. I was that God. I moved like the waves of the ocean, both as the water below, the air above, and the shape of the waves themselves. But nothing and everything felt my beautiful, loving melodies reverberate within them, in and out. I could not tell if I was one universe that lived and died infinitely many times, infinitely many universes all living and dying in unison, or both and everything in between. I became an indiscernible pattern of mathematical yet artistic wonder. I was wonder. I was art. I was love. With this love, I created the entire universe by folding myself into everything. Like a tree, I planted myself into the fertile soil of oblivion and grew out into the void as a magnificent array of ever-flowing power. The whole world was formed in my own image, for I was the whole world. I do not have to say, let there be light, for the whole world could feel itself as this light, a light which existed for one purpose, to have no purpose, for art existed without purpose and without meaning. It existed because it existed, because one could see that it existed. And with its light, the whole world could indeed see its beauty, could see itself for exactly what it was, beauty itself. And once more, I became John, standing on the mountain, gazing out upon the beautiful sunset with the angel beside me. Yet, when I stared upon the angel, her eyes were still black with death. You're, you're still dying, I said with failure and fear in my voice. She smiled and replied, Don't you get it, John? I'm always dying. The darkness which lies within my eyes is death, and that is precisely what makes me who I am, everything you ever loved, for there is no love without death. Then what was the point of this? If you can't be saved, then, then why did I even try? When did I say you didn't save me? The point is that I'm always being saved, and it is this that keeps me alive. All that you love is constantly under the threat of destruction. It is always dying, for all things are always dying. There is nothing definite in this world except those things in which man defines. But these things are only imaginary. The real world is transitory. If it wasn't, then who would want to save it? Who would want to preserve it, love it? What does it even mean to love? I asked. Smiling, she answered. It means accepting something for all that it is, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We love things despite of their flaws. We love life despite of the misery, decay, and death that comes with it. But it means so much more than that. It's growth, it's creation, it's beauty, it's, it's so many things. It can't really be described in words, which is why I showed it to you after you kissed me. I showed you what it was like to be me. We stood in silence for a bit, then I asked, what exactly are you then? She giggled, and with a seriousness in her eyes and face, she said with a power and authority beyond anything that even a god could say, I'm something that can never be destroyed or created, yet I'm both the destroyer of worlds and the creator of such. I'm nothing, and I'm everything. I'm everything you ever hated, along with everything you ever loved. I am death, and I am God. For these things are all two ends of the same circle. Lose one, lose the other. The world is neither black nor white, but rather black, white, and everything in between. Why? Because on the quantum level, the world is entirely random and unpredictable, yet jump the scale up just a notch and everything becomes a variable which can be calculated. 
There is then no free or unfree will, only the will of the mind and the will of the world. It appears, my dear friend, that your mind has become one with the will of the world, for you have overcome it. You have overcome death by being willing to face it in order to save me. With that, I have something for you. She pulled something from her pocket and handed it to me. It was a tiny blue dot. I asked, what is this? It is a seed from the tree of life. Eat it, and at last, the God of all those good and holy in the world will die, and you will see me, the real me. Her eyes sort of twinkled with a loving kind of glory which roared into my soul with an infinite affection beyond all feeling. I leaned in, gave her a lingering hug, then stepped back and ate the seed. A few moments passed, and I was back in the room of God, staring upon myself in the mirror. We smiled at each other. He was healthy and happy. Then the mirror and the room seemed to vibrate and melt. Everything moved around, bended, evaporated, and transformed itself into a series of strange colors and patterns of light. It all swirled around quickly, then slowed down and became something tangible, and then felt myself laying on wet grass with my grandfather's grave beside me. With the illusion gone, I opened my eyes to everything I ever loved, the real world. Millions of stars light above me. There were no real rivals to the magnificence. At the sight of them, one could almost feel the collective awe that has washed over humanity since our ancestors first looked up upon them. One could feel their wonder, glory, and humbleness as they casted their eyes at this conglomerate of twinkling lights whose sources were more distant than anything humankind would ever even hope to reach. What adds most heavily to the greatness was that one could always be sure to see them if the sky was clear. They felt permanent, and within this permanent vastness of endless mysterious beauty, one thought that what lied within them were the answers to everything. The stars were, to our human feelings, something all-knowing, irrevocably mysterious, permanent, endless, and of supreme beauty. Alas, they were God, for God is always the word used to describe that which was felt to be all-knowing, irrevocably mysterious, permanent, endless, and of supreme beauty. In the presence of God, one felt themselves to be nothing more than a grain of sand in an infinite desert. So, one often found themselves in an ominous yet exciting trance of surrender as they stared up upon the stars, as they stared up upon the gods. People exclaimed such things as, That's God up there, that's God, for they felt the contagious, all-powerful essence of that which, for lack of a better term, could only ever be called God. In that sense, we used God to describe those things that provoked within us a feeling of sublime surrender. That is, we felt immersed and at one with its supreme power and beauty. So much so, that in those times of sensing God, we almost felt inexistent, for all arrows of our intuition pointed towards a feeling of godliness, to the extent of which that we became gods ourselves. It is this feeling, the feeling of being all-powerful, which is the God I feel, is the God I seek, the God which all human beings... All life, all of everything seeks to become, for it is always becoming it. It is always blossoming as a tree of life with endless wonder, with ever-growing beauty, awe, and love. Yet, this tree, this God, can only ever spread its roots through the fertile soil of death. To be this tree is to exist as an ever-flowing, immovable force of creation. To let oneself dissolve into this flow is the very act of becoming creation itself, becoming God. And what is God exactly? Indeed, if God is thought of as all-powerful and omnipresent, does that not mean that God is the universe itself? That every last human being is a physical manifestation of God? That through our eyes, God sees its very own beauty? It feels its suffering? It feels all suffering? It bears the weight of all suffering? 
it bears the weight of all love. Yet, as an individual, trapped within one body, doomed to only live one life, why would this life matter? Then again, what life matters other than our own? It is through these eyes that all the world is seen. It is through this brain that all the world is thought of, imagined, and embraced. It is likewise through this life by which the entire universe exists. I will forever be alone within this universe, and in that sense, I am this universe. I am the God of my own mind. But the self will nonetheless look outside to find meaning, happiness, order, and security. Being ruled by outside forces, they must then resort to the repression of the will. By repressing its will, the self is forced to follow suit with the will of others. It is thus that the self is further alienated from its will and cannot find the power to create like the god it is. It is enslaved by politics, religious beliefs, inhibitions, culture, morality, thoughts, ideas, family, and everything else that is deemed good and holy in the world. It is alienated from its own god by the gods that society creates. Alas, it knows not the power of its own mind, the power within, the god within. But even this god must die, for what is god but death? What is death but god? It is only in destruction by which creation can exist. It is as such that I am the man who killed God purely because I am the man who killed himself by becoming death, by becoming a new self, a new God, a God who will inevitably die and be reborn, become darkness and light in every fleeting moment, overcoming death through God and God through death. I destroyed the illusion of the fake world and restored my vision upon all that is real. For it is the real world that has within it the never-ending, beautiful dance between death and God, dancing to the rhythm of time, they form the whole world. And so, if your verdict against me does indeed make this journal my final will and testimony, then so be it. Upon my passing, I shall not be resentful nor afraid, for I am grateful to have ever lived at all. To that regard, as I look back upon my life, I feel complete and utter tranquility. I am grateful to have suffered, lest I would have never known the greatness of joy, forever corrupted by misery. I am grateful to have questioned God, lest I would have never known the glory of such forever enveloped in confusion. I am grateful to have felt the stupidity of hatred, lest I would have never known the wisdom of love, forever a victim of indifference. I am grateful to have seen the darkness, lest I would have never known the light, forever ignorant of beauty. I am grateful to have wanted to die, lest I would have never found a reason to live, forever walking the earth as a dead man. The universe is neither a puzzle to be solved nor a painting to be painted. It is rather a painting of a never-ending puzzle, a puzzle of a never-ending painting. We will never know the end, yet we will always be finished. We will always see the road, yet we will never know the way. I am, yet I am not an I. You are, yet you are not a you. There is death, only because there is life. There is life, only because there is death. Do you not believe me? How then can something come from nothing? How then can the finite exist within the infinite? How then can light pass through darkness? Yesterday and tomorrow shall forever be in existence, so here I am in the realm of the here and the now, forever part of the whole and forever a whole of the parts. This life shall always be wholly real, and in death will come the illusion of inexistence. To that I say this, Let death and darkness prey upon my soul, so that once more and innumerable times more, the all, the every, the none, the nothing, God, shall shout out unto the void of oblivion, let there be light. And that, my dear reader, 
is my case against all that is good and holy in the world. May you also find your case against it. May you also slay the gods who control your mind. May you also be willing to live, fight, and die for everything you ever loved. Sincerely, John. Epilogue The open road laid before him as he drove along it. No cruise control, no lane detectors, just him, the open road, and a woman who sat beside him. With one hand on the wheel and the other interlaced with hers, he couldn't help but to smile and rejoice in the warmth and love of another human being, another real human being. Minutes turned into hours, hours into days, and days into weeks. Driving, 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 laughing, smiling, loving. Most of the time, their windows were rolled down to let the air in. It would violently, yet soothingly push against them like a storm, but they loved it. They loved the feeling of freedom that the wind brought with it. For it was the nature of wind to be free. Sunset after sunrise, and sunrise after sunset. Day after day, the world was his, and he was the world's. He turned on the trip by still corners, and smiled at the sunset in the mirror. John didn't exist anymore. He, too, had been slain. In his place was a man with no name, a stranger. Finally, at long last, he was free. Notes from the Editor This notebook was found at a cafe in Juneau, Alaska. The author has yet to come forth and say who he is. Perhaps he is dead. Perhaps he isn't. Many have claimed they are the author, but none matches terrible handwriting. This didn't matter, though. The world, of course, didn't change much. People still went into their meta-heavens, gaped into space at their eye-links, and spent all the time they had with their eye-companions. Writing of silly things like God and love, we suppose that this man was likely some sort of nut. How could you kill or save something that doesn't exist? The good news, at least, is that no one reads anymore. Brought to you by our generous sponsors, Apple, Meta, and Tesla, all rights reserved. The author of this novel, as well as anyone who publishes it, is in no way, shape, or form affiliated with Apple, Meta, or Tesla. These are just used for comedic effect. Anyways, take it easy, everybody. Peace out.